of Beren and Luthien. Among the tales of sorrow and of ruin that come down to us from the darkness of those days, there are yet some in which amid weeping there is joy, and under the shadow of death light that endures. And of these histories most fair still in the ears of the elves is the tale of Beren and Luthien. Of their lives was made the Lay of Lathian, release from bondage, which is the longest save one of the songs concerning the world of old. But here the tale is told in fewer words and without song. It has been told that Barahir would not forsake Dothonian, and there Morgoth pursued him to the death, until at last there remained to him only twelve companions. Now the forest of Dothonian rose southward into mountainous moors, and in the east of those highlands there lay a lake, Tarn Eluin, with wild heaths about it, and all that land was pathless and untamed, for even in the days of the long peace none had dwelt there. But the waters of Tarn Eluin were held in reverence, for they were clear and blue by day, and by night were a mirror for the stars. And it was said that Melian herself had hallowed that water in days of old. Thither Barahir and his outlaws withdrew, and there made their lair, and Morgoth could not discover it. But the rumour of the deeds of Barahir and his companions went far and wide, and Morgoth commanded Sauron to find them and destroy them. Now among the companions of Barahir was Gorlim, son of Angrim. His wife was named Elinel, and their love was great ere evil befell. But Gorlim, returning from the war upon the marches, found his house plundered and forsaken, and his wife gone, whether slain or taken he knew not. Then he fled to Barahir, and of his companions he was the most fierce and desperate, but doubt gnawed his heart, thinking that perhaps Elinel was not dead. At times he would depart alone and secretly and visit his house that still stood amid the fields and woods he had once possessed, and this became known to the servants of Morgoth. On a time of autumn he came in the dusk of evening, and drawing near, he saw, as he thought, a light at the window and coming warily he looked within. There he saw Elinel, and her face was worn with grief and hunger, and it seemed to him that he heard her voice lamenting that he had forsaken her. But even as he cried aloud, the light was blown out in the wind, wolves howled, and on his shoulders he felt suddenly the heavy hands of Sauron's hunters. Thus Gorlim was ensnared, and taking him to their camp they tormented him, seeking to learn the hidings of Barahir and all his ways. But nothing would Gorlim tell. Then they promised him that he should be released and restored to Elinel, if he would yield. And being at last worn with pain and yearning for his wife, he faltered. Then straightway they brought him into the dreadful presence of Sauron, and Sauron said, I hear now thou wouldst barter with me. What is thy price? And Gorlim answered that he should find Elinel again, and with her be set free. For he thought that Elinel also had been made captive. Then Sauron smiled, saying, That is a small price for so great a treachery. So shall it surely be. Say on. Now Gorlim would have drawn back, but daunted by the eyes of Sauron, he told at last all that he would know. And then Sauron laughed 
and he mocked Gorlim and revealed to him that he had seen only a phantom devised by wizardry to entrap him, for Elinel was dead. Nonetheless, I will grant thy prayer, said Sauron, and thou shalt go to Elinel and be set free of my service. Then he put him cruelly to death. In this way the hiding of Barahir was revealed, and Morgoth drew his net about it, and the orcs coming in the still hours before dawn surprised the men of Dorthonion and slew them all save one. For Beren, son of Barahir, had been sent by his father on a perilous errand to spy upon the ways of the enemy, and he was far afield when the lair was taken. But as he slept benighted in the forest, he dreamed that carrion birds sat thick as leaves upon bare trees beside a mere, and blood dripped from their beaks. Then Beren was aware in his dream of a form that came to him across the water, and it was a wraith of Gorlim, and it spoke to him, declaring his treachery and death, and bade him make haste to warn his father. Then Beren awoke, and sped through the night, and came back to the lair of the outlaws on the second morning. But as he drew near, the carrion birds rose from the ground, and sat in the alder trees beside Tarn Eluin, and croaked in mockery. There Beren buried his father's bones, and raised a cairn of boulders above him, and swore upon it an oath of vengeance. First, therefore, he pursued the orcs that had slain his father and his kinsmen, and he found their camp by night at Rivil's well above the fen of Serech. And because of his woodcraft he came near to their fire unseen. There their captain made boast of his deeds, and he held up the hand of Barahir, that he had cut off as a token for Sauron that their mission was fulfilled, and the ring of Felagund was on that hand. Then Beren sprang from behind a rock and slew the captain, and taking the hand and the ring, he escaped being defended by fate, for the orcs were dismayed and their arrows wild. Thereafter, for four years more, Beren wandered still upon Dorthonion, a solitary outlaw, but he became the friend of birds and beasts, and they aided him, and did not betray him, and from that time forth he ate no flesh, nor slew any living thing that was not in the service of Morgoth. He did not fear death, but only captivity, and being bold and desperate, he escaped both death and bonds, and the deeds of lonely daring that he achieved were noised abroad throughout Beleriand, and the tale of them came even into Doriath. At length, Morgoth set a price upon his head no less than the price upon the head of Fingon, high king of the Noldor. But the orcs fled rather at the rumour of his approach than sought him out. Therefore an army was sent against him under the command of Sauron, and Sauron brought werewolves, fell beasts inhabited by dreadful spirits that he had imprisoned in their bodies. All that land was now become filled with evil, and all clean things were departing from it and Beren was pressed so hard that at last he was forced to flee from Dorthonion. In time of winter and snow he forsook the land and grave of his father, and climbing into the high regions of Gorgoroth, the mountains of terror, he descried afar the land of Doriath. There it was put into his heart that he would go down into the hidden kingdom where no mortal foot had yet trodden. Terrible was his southward journey. Sheer were the precipices of Ered Gorgoroth, and beneath their feet were shadows that were laid before the rising of the moon. 
Beyond lay the wilderness of Don Gortheb, where the sorcery of Sauron and the power of Melian came together, and horror and madness walked. There spiders of the fell race of Ungoliant abode, spinning their unseen webs in which all living things were snared, and monsters wandered there that were born in the long dark before the sun, hunting silently with many eyes. No food for elves or men was there in that haunted land, but death only. That journey is not accounted least among the great deeds of Beren, but he spoke of it to no one after, lest the horror return into his mind. And none know how he found a way, and so came by paths that no man nor elf else ever dared to tread to the borders of Doriath. And he passed through the mazes that Melian wove about the kingdom of Thingol, even as she had foretold, for a great doom lay upon him. It is told in the Lay of Lathian that Beren came stumbling into Doriath grey and bowed, as with many years of woe, so great had been the torment of the road. But wandering in the summer in the woods of Neldoreth, he came upon Luthien, daughter of Thingol and Melian, at a time of evening under moonrise, as she danced upon the unfading grass in the glades beside Esgalduin. Then all memory of his pain departed from him, and he fell into an enchantment. For Luthien was the most beautiful of all the children of Iluvata. Blue was her raiment as the unclouded heaven, but her eyes were grey as the starlit evening. Her mantle was sown with golden flowers, but her hair was dark as the shadows of twilight. As the light upon the leaves of trees, as the voice of clear waters, as the stars above the mists of the world, such was her glory and her loveliness, and in her face was a shining light. But she vanished from his sight, and he became dumb as one that is bound under a spell, and he strayed long in the woods, wild and wary as a beast, seeking for her. In his heart he called her Tinuviel, that signifies nightingale, daughter of twilight in the grey elven tongue, for he knew no other name for her. And he saw her afar as leaves in the winds of autumn, and in winter as a star upon a hill, but a chain was upon his limbs. There came a time near dawn on the eve of spring, and Luthien danced upon a green hill, and suddenly she began to sing. Keen, heart-piercing was her song, as the song of the lark that rises from the gates of night and pours its voice among the dying stars, seeing the sun behind the walls of the world. And the song of Luthien released the bonds of winter and the frozen waters spoke, and flowers sprang from the cold earth where her feet had passed. Then the spell of silence fell from Beren, and he called to her, crying, Tinuviel, and the woods echoed the name. Then she halted in wonder and fled no more, and Beren came to her. But as she looked on him, doom fell upon her, and she loved him. Yet she slipped from his arms and vanished from his sight even as the day was breaking. Then Beren lay upon the ground in a swoon, as one slain at once by bliss and grief. And he fell into a sleep, as it were, into an abyss of shadow. And waking he was cold as stone, and his heart barren and forsaken. And wandering in mind, he groped as one that is stricken with sudden blindness, and seeks with hands to grasp the vanished light. 
Thus he began the payment of anguish for the fate that was laid on him. And in his fate Luthien was caught, and being immortal, she shared in his mortality, and being free, received his chain. And her anguish was greater than any other that the elder Leah has known. Beyond his hope she returned to him, where he sat in darkness, and long ago in the hidden kingdom she laid her hand in his. Thereafter often she came to him, and they went in secret through the woods together from spring to summer, and no others of the children of Ilovata have had joy so great, though the time was brief. But Daron the minstrel also loved Luthien, and he espied her meetings with Beren, and betrayed them to Thingol. Then the king was filled with anger, for Luthien he loved above all things, setting her above all the princes of the elves, whereas mortal men he did not even take into his service. Therefore he spoke in grief and amazement to Luthien, but she would reveal nothing, until he swore an oath to her that he would neither slay Beren nor imprison him. But he sent his servants to lay hands on him, and lead him to Menegroth as a malefactor, and Luthien, forestalling them, led Beren herself before the throne of Thingol, as if he were an honoured guest. Then Thingol looked upon Beren in scorn and anger. But Melian was silent. "'Who are you?' said the king, "'that come hither as a thief and unbidden, dare to approach my throne.' But Beren, being filled with dread, for the splendour of Menegroth and the majesty of Thingol were very great, answered nothing. Therefore Luthien spoke and said, "'He is Beren, son of Barahir, lord of men, mighty foe of Morgoth, the tale of whose deeds is become a song even among the elves. Let Beren speak, said Thingol. What would you hear, unhappy mortal? And for what cause have you left your own land to enter this which is forbidden to such as you? Can you show reason why my power should not be laid on you in heavy punishment for your insolence and folly? Then Beren, looking up, beheld the eyes of Luthien, and his glance went also to the face of Melian and it seemed to him that words were put into his mouth. Fear left him, and the pride of the eldest house of men returned to him, and he said, My fate, O king, led me hither, through perils such as few even of the elves would dare. And here I have found what I sought not indeed, but finding I would possess for ever. For it is above all gold and silver, and beyond all jewels, Neither rock, nor steel, nor the fires of Morgoth, nor all the powers of the elf kingdoms shall keep from me the treasure that I desire. For Luthien, your daughter, is the fairest of all the children of the world. Then silence fell upon the hall, for those that stood there were astounded and afraid, and they thought that Beren would be slain. But Thingol spoke slowly, saying, Death! you have earned with these words. And death you should find suddenly, had I not sworn an oath in haste, of which I repent, base-born mortal, who in the realm of Morgoth has learned to creep in secret as his spies and thralls. Then Beren answered, Death you can give me, earned or unearned, but the names I will not take from you of base-born, nor spy, nor thrall. By the ring of Felagund that he gave to Barahir my father on the battlefields of the north, my house has not earned such names from any elf, be he king or no. 
His words were proud, and all eyes looked upon the ring, for he held it now aloft, and the green jewels gleamed there that the Noldor had devised in Valinor. For this ring was like to twin serpents, whose eyes were emeralds, and their heads met beneath a crown of golden flowers, that the one upheld and the other devoured. That was the badge of Finarfin and his house. Then Melian leaned to Thingol's side, and in whispered counsel bade him forego his wrath. For not by you, she said, shall Beren be slain, and far and free does his fate lead him in the end, yet it is wound with yours. Take heed. But Thingol looked in silence upon Luthien, and he thought in his heart, Unhappy men, children of little lords and brief kings, shall such as these lay hands on you and yet live? Then, breaking the silence, he said, I see the ring, son of Barahir, and I perceive that you are proud and deem yourself mighty. But a father's deeds, even had his service been rendered to me, avail not to win the daughter of Thingol and Melion. See now, I too desire a treasure that is withheld, for rock and steel and the fires of Morgoth keep the jewel that I would possess against all the powers of the elf kingdoms. Yet I hear you say that bonds such as these do not daunt you. Go your way, therefore. Bring to me in your hand a Silmaril from Morgoth's crown, and then, if she will, Luthien may set her hand in yours. Then you shall have my jewel, and though the fate of Arda lie within the Silmarils, yet you shall hold me generous. Thus he wrought the doom of Doriath and was ensnared within the curse of Mandos. And those that heard these words perceived that Thingol would save his oath, and yet send Beren to his death. For they knew that not all the power of the Noldor, before the siege was broken, had availed even to see from afar the shining Silmarils of Feanor. For they were set in the Iron Crown, and treasured in Angband above all wealth, and balrogs were about them, and countless swords, and strong bars, and unassailable walls, and the dark majesty of Morgoth. But Beren laughed. Ha! For little price, he said, do elven kings sell their daughters, for gems and things made by craft. But if this be your will, Thingol, I will perform it. And when we meet again, my hand shall hold a Silmaril from the Iron Crown, for you have not looked the last upon Beren, son of Barahir. Then he looked in the eyes of Melian, who spoke not, and he bade farewell to Luthien to Nuviel. And bowing before Thingol and Melian, he put aside the guards about him, and departed from Menegroth alone. Then at last Melian spoke, and she said to Thingol, O oh, king, you have devised cunning counsel, but if my eyes have not lost their sight, it is ill for you whether Beren fail in his errand or achieve it, for you have doomed either your daughter or yourself, and now is Doriath drawn within the fate of a mightier realm. But Thingol answered, I sell not to elves or men those whom I love and cherish above all treasure. And if there were hope or fear that Beren should come ever back alive to Menegroth, he should not have looked again upon the light of heaven, though I had sworn it. But Luthien was silent, and from that hour she sang not again in Doriath. A brooding silence fell upon the woods, 
and the shadows lengthened in the kingdom of Thingol. It is told in the Lay of Lathian that Beren passed through Doriath unhindered and came at length to the region of the twilight mirrors and the fens of Sirion. And leaving Thingol's land, he climbed the hills above the falls of Sirion, where the river plunged underground with great noise. Thence he looked westward, and through the mist and rains that lay upon the hills, he saw Talath Dirnan, the guarded plain, stretching between Sirion and Narog. And beyond, he descried afar the highlands of Tower Enfaroth, that rose above Nargothrond, and being destitute without hope or counsel, he turned his feet thither. Upon all that plain, the elves of Nargothrond kept unceasing watch, and every hill upon its borders was crowned with hidden towers, and through all its woods and fields archers ranged secretly and with great craft. Their arrows were sure and deadly, and nothing crept there against their will. Therefore, ere Baron had come far upon his road, they were aware of him, and his death was nigh. But knowing his danger, he held ever aloft the ring of Felagund, and though he saw no living thing, because of the stealth of the hunters, he felt that he was watched, and he cried often aloud, I am Beren, son of Barahir, friend of Felagond. Take me to the king. Therefore the hunters slew him not, but assembling, they waylaid him and commanded him to halt. But seeing the ring, they bowed before him, though he was in evil plight, wild and wayworn, and they led him northward and westward, going by night lest their paths should be revealed. For at that time there was no ford or bridge over the torrent of Narog before the gates of Nargothrond. But further to the north, where Ginglith joined Narog, the flood was less, and crossing there and turning again southward, the elves led Beren under the light of the moon to the dark gates of their hidden halls. Thus Beren came before King Finrod Felagund, and Felagund knew him, needing no ring to remind him of the kin of Feor and of Barahir. Behind closed doors they sat, and Beren told of the death of Barahir and of all that had befallen him in Doriath, and he wept, recalling Luthien and their joy together. But Felagund heard his tale in wonder and disquiet, and he knew that the oath he had sworn was come upon him for his death, as long before he had foretold to Galadriel. He spoke then to Beren in heaviness of heart. It is plain that Thingol desires your death, but it seems that this doom goes beyond his purpose, and that the oath of Feanor is again at work. For the Silmarils are cursed with an oath of hatred, and he that even names them in desire moves a great power from slumber, and the sons of Feanor would lay all the elf kingdoms in ruin rather than suffer any other than themselves to win or possess a Silmaril, for the oath drives them. And now Kelegorm and Kurufin are dwelling in my halls, and though I, Finarfin's son, am king, they have won a strong power in the realm, and lead many of their own people. They have shown friendship to me in every need, but I fear that they will show neither love nor mercy to you if your quest be told. Yet my own oath holds, and thus we are all ensnared. Then King Felagund spoke before his people, recalling the deeds of Barahir and his vow, 
and he declared that it was laid upon him to aid the son of Barahir in his need, and he sought the help of his chieftains. Then Kelagorm arose amid the throng, and drawing his sword he cried, Be he friend or foe, whether demon of Morgoth or elf or child of men, or any other living thing in Arda, neither law nor love nor league of hell, nor might of the Valar, nor any power of wizardry, shall defend him from the pursuing hate of Feanor's sons, if he take or find a Silmaril and keep it. For the Silmarils we alone claim, until the world ends. Many other words he spoke, as potent as were long before in Tyrion the words of his father that first inflamed the Moldor to rebellion. And after Kelegorm, Kurufin spoke, more softly, but with no less power, conjuring in the minds of the elves a vision of war and the ruin of Nargothrond. So great a fear did he set in their hearts, that never after until the time of Turin would any elf of that realm go into open battle. But with stealth and ambush, with wizardry and venomed dart, they pursued all strangers, forgetting the bonds of kinship. Thus they fell from the valour and freedom of the elves of old, and their land was darkened. And now they murmured that Finarfin's son was not as a valar to command them, and they turned their faces from him. But the curse of Mandos came upon the brothers, and dark thoughts arose in their hearts, thinking to send forth Felagund alone to his death, and to usurp, it might be, the throne of Nargothrond. For they were of the eldest line of the princes of the Noldor. And Felagund, seeing that he was forsaken, took from his head the silver crown of Nargothrond, and cast it at his feet, saying, Your oaths of faith to me you may break, but I must hold my bond. Yet if there be any on whom the shadow of our curse has not yet fallen, I should find at least a few to follow me, and should not go hence as a beggar that is thrust from the gates. There were ten that stood by him, and the chief of them, who was named Edrahil, stooping, lifted the crown, and asked that it be given to a steward until Felagun's return. For you remain my king and theirs, he said, whatever betide. Then Felagund gave the crown of Nargothrond to Orodreth his brother to govern in his stead, and Kelagorm and Kurufin said nothing, but they smiled and went from the halls. On an evening of autumn, Felagund and Beren set out from Nargothrond with their ten companions, and they journeyed beside Narog to his source in the folds of Ivlin. Beneath the shadowy mountains they came upon a company of orcs, and slew them all in their camp by night, and they took their gear and their weapons. By the arts of Felagund, their own forms and faces were changed into the likeness of orcs, and thus disguised, they came far upon their northward road, and ventured into the western pass between Eredwethrin and the highlands of Tower Nufuin. But Sauron in his tower was ware of them, and doubt took him, for they went in haste, and stayed not to report their deeds, as were commanded to all the servants of Morgoth that passed that way. Therefore he sent to waylay them, and bring them before him. Thus befell the contest of Sauron and Felagond, which is renowned. For Felagond strove with Sauron in songs of power, and the power of the king was very great. But Sauron held the mastery, 
as is told in the Lay of Lathian. He chanted a song of wizardry, of piercing opening, of treachery, revealing, uncovering, betraying. Then sudden Felagund, there swaying, sang in answer a song of staying, resisting, battling against power, of secrets kept, strength like a tower, and trust unbroken, freedom, escape, of changing and of shifting shape, of snares eluded, broken traps, the prison opening, the chain that snaps. Backwards and forwards swayed their song, reeling and foundering, as ever more strong, the chanting swelled. Felagund fought, and all the magic and might he brought of Elveness into his words. Softly in the gloom they heard the birds, singing afar in Nargothrond, the sighing of the sea beyond, beyond the western world, on sand, on sand of pearls in elven land. Then the gloom gathered, darkness growing, in Valinor the red blood flowing. Beside the sea where the Noldor slew, the foam riders and stealing drew their white ships with their white sails from lamplit havens. The wind wails, the wolf howls, the ravens flee, the ice mutters in the mouths of the sea, the captives sad in Angband mourn, thunder rumbles, the fires burn, and Finrod fell before the throne. Then Sauron stripped from them their disguise, and they stood before him naked and afraid. But though their kinds were revealed, Sauron could not discover their names or their purposes. He cast them, therefore, into a deep pit, dark and silent, and threatened to slay them cruelly unless one would betray the truth to him. From time to time they saw two eyes kindled in the dark, and a werewolf devoured one of the companions, but none betrayed their lord. In the time when Sauron cast Beren into the pit, a weight of horror came upon Luthien's heart, and going to Melian for counsel, she learned that Beren lay in the dungeons of Tol in Gauroth, without hope of rescue. Then Luthien, perceiving that no help would come from any other on earth, resolved to fly from Doriath and come herself to him. But she sought the aid of Daron, and he betrayed her purpose to the king. Then Thingol was filled with fear and wonder, and because he would not deprive Luthien of the lights of heaven, lest she fail and fade, and yet would restrain her, he caused a house to be built from which she should not escape. Not far from the gates of Menigroth stood the greatest of all the trees in the forest of Neldoreth, and that was a beech forest and the northern hearth of the kingdom. This mighty beech was named Hirilorn, and it had three trunks, equal in girth, smooth in rind, and exceeding tall. No branches grew from them for a great height above the ground. Far aloft, between the shafts of Hirilorn, a wooden house was built, and there Luthien was made to dwell, and the ladders were taken away and guarded, save only when the servants of Thingol brought her such things as she needed. It is told in the Lay of Lathian how she escaped from the house in Hirilorn, for she put forth her arts of enchantment and caused her hair to grow to great length, 
and of it she wove a dark robe that wrapped her beauty like a shadow, and it was laden with a spell of sleep. Of the strands that remained, she twined a rope, and she let it down from her window, and as the end swayed above the guards that sat beneath the tree, they fell into a deep slumber. Then Luthien climbed from her prison, and shrouded in her shadowy cloak, she escaped from all eyes, and vanished out of Doriath. It chanced that Kelagorm and Kurufin went on a hunt through the guarded plain, and this they did because Sauron, being filled with suspicion, sent forth many wolves into the elflands. Therefore they took their hounds and rode forth, and they thought that ere they returned they might also hear tidings concerning King Felagund. Now the chief of the wolfhounds that followed Kelagorm was named Huan. He was not born in Middle-earth, but came from the Blessed Realm, for Arame had given him to Kelagorm long ago in Valinor, and there he had followed the horn of his master before evil came. Huan followed Kelagorm into exile, and was faithful, and thus he too came under the doom of woe set upon the Noldor. And it was decreed that he should meet death, but not until he encountered the mightiest wolf that would ever walk the world. Huan it was that found Luthien flying like a shadow surprised by the daylight under the trees, when Kelegorm and Kurufin rested a while near to the western eaves of Doriath. For nothing could escape the sight and scent of Huan, nor could any enchantment stay him, and he slept not neither by night nor day. He brought her to Kelegorm, and Luthien, learning that he was a prince of the Noldor and a foe of Morgoth, was glad, and she declared herself, casting aside her cloak. So great was her sudden beauty revealed beneath the sun that Kelegorm became enamoured of her. But he spoke her fair, and promised that she should find help in her need if she returned with him now to Nargothrond. By no sign did he reveal that he knew already of Beren and the quest of which she told, nor that it was a matter which touched him near. Thus they broke off the hunt and returned to Nargothrond, and Luthien was betrayed, for they held her fast and took away her cloak, and she was not permitted to pass the gates or to speak with any save the brothers Kelegorm and Kurufin. For now, believing that Beren and Felagund were prisoners beyond hope of aid, they purposed to let the king perish, and to keep Luthien and force Thingol to give her hand to Kelegorm. Thus they would advance their power and become the mightiest of the princes of the Noldor. And they did not purpose to seek the Silmarils by craft or war, or to suffer any others to do so, until they had all the might of the elf kingdoms under their hands. Orodreth had no power to withstand them, for they swayed the hearts of the people of Nargothrond, and Kelegorm sent messengers to Thingol, urging his suit. But Huan the Hound was true of heart, and the love of Luthien had fallen upon him in the first hour of their meeting, and he grieved at her captivity. Therefore he came often to her chamber, and at night he lay before her door, for he felt that evil had come to Nargothrond. Luthien spoke often to Huen in her loneliness, telling of Beren, who was the friend of all birds and beasts that did not serve Morgoth, and Huan understood all that was said, 
for he comprehended the speech of all things with voice, but it was permitted to him thrice only ere his death to speak with words. Now Huan devised a plan for the aid of Luthien, and coming at a time of night he brought her cloak, and for the first time he spoke, giving her counsel. Then he led her by secret ways out of Norgothrond, and they fled north together, and he humbled his pride, and suffered her to ride upon him in the fashion of a steed, even as the orcs did at times upon great wolves. Thus they made great speed, for Huan was swift and tireless. In the pits of Sauron, Beren and Felagund lay, and all their companions were now dead. But Sauron purposed to keep Felagund to the last, for he perceived that he was a Noldo of great might and wisdom, and he deemed that in him lay the secret of their errand. But when the wolf came for Beren, Felagund put forth all his power and burst his bonds, and he wrestled with the werewolf and slew it with his hands and teeth. Yet he himself was wounded to the death. Then he spoke to Beren, saying, I go now to my long rest in the timeless halls beyond the seas and the mountains of Ammon. It will be long ere I am seen among the Noldor again, and it may be that we shall not meet a second time in death or life, for the fates of our kindreds are apart. Farewell. He died then in the dark, in Tol in Garoth, whose great tower he himself had built. Thus King Finrod Felagund, fairest and most beloved of the house of Finwë, redeemed his oath. But Beren mourned beside him in despair. In that hour Luthien came, and standing upon the bridge that led to Sauron's isle, she sang a song that no walls of stone could hinder. Beren heard, and he thought that he dreamed, for the stars shone above him, and in the trees nightingales were singing and in answer he sang a song of challenge that he had made in praise of the seven stars, the sickle of the Valar that Varda hung above the north as a sign for the fall of Morgoth. Then all strength left him, and he fell down into darkness. But Luthien heard his answering voice, and she sang then a song of greater power. The wolves howled, and the isle trembled, Sauron stood in the high tower, wrapped in his black thought, but he smiled hearing her voice, for he knew that it was the daughter of Melian. The fame of the beauty of Luthien and the wonder of her song had long gone forth from Doriath, and he thought to make her captive and hand her over to the power of Morgoth, for his reward would be great. Therefore he sent a wolf to the bridge, but Huan slew it silently. Still Sauron sent others one by one, and one by one Huan took them by the throat and slew them. Then Sauron sent Draugluin, a dread beast, old in evil, lord and sire of the werewolves of Angband. His might was great, and the battle of Huan and Draugluin was long and fierce. Yet at length Draugluin escaped, and fleeing back into the tower, he died before Sauron's feet. And as he died, he told his master, Huan is there. Now Sauron knew well, as did all in that land, the fate that was decreed for the Hound of Valinor. And it came into his thought that he himself would accomplish it. 
Therefore he took upon himself the form of a werewolf, and made himself the mightiest that had yet walked the world, and he came forth to win the passage of the bridge. So great was the horror of his approach that Huan leapt aside. Then Sauron sprang upon Luthien, and she swooned before the menace of the fell spirit in his eyes and the foul vapour of his breath. But even as he came, falling, she cast a fold of her dark cloak before his eyes, and he stumbled, for a fleeting drowsiness came upon him. Then Huan sprang. There befell the battle of Huan and Wolf Sauron, and the howls and baying echoed in the hills, and the watchers on the walls of Eredwethrin across the valley heard it afar and were dismayed. But no wizardry nor spell, neither fang nor venom, nor devil's art, nor beast strength, could overthrow Huan of Valinor. And he took his foe by the throat and pinned him down. Then Sauron shifted shape, from wolf to serpent, and from monster to his own accustomed form. But he could not elude the grip of Huan without forsaking his body utterly. Ere his foul spirit left its dark house, Luthien came to him and said that he should be stripped of his raiment of flesh and his ghost be sent quaking back to Morgoth. And she said, There everlastingly thy naked self shall endure the torment of his scorn, pierced by his eyes, unless thou yield to me the mastery of thy tower. Then Sauron yielded himself, and Luthien took the mastery of the isle and all that was there, and Huan released him. And immediately he took the form of a vampire, great as a dark cloud across the moon, and he fled, dripping blood from his throat upon the trees, and came to Taur Nufuin, and dwelt there, filling it with horror. Then Luthien stood upon the bridge, and declared her power, and the spell was loosed that bound stone to stone, and the gates were thrown down, and the walls opened, and the pits laid bare, and many thralls and captives came forth in wonder and dismay, shielding their eyes against the pale moonlight, for they had lain long in the darkness of Sauron. But Beren came not. Therefore Huan and Luthien sought him in the isle, and Luthien found him mourning by Felagund. So deep was his anguish that he lay still and did not hear her feet. Then, thinking him already dead, she put her arms about him and fell into a dark forgetfulness. But Beren, coming back to the light out of the pits of despair, lifted her up, and they looked again upon one another, and the day rising over the dark hills shone upon them. They buried the body of Felagund upon the hilltop of his own isle, and it was clean again, and the green grave of Finrod Finarfin's son, fairest of all the princes of the elves, remained inviolate until the land was changed and broken, and foundered under destroying seas. But Finrod walks with Finarfin, his father, beneath the trees in Eldamar. Now Beren and Luthien Tinuviel went free again, and together walked through the woods, renewing for a time their joy. And though winter came, it hurt them not, for flowers lingered where Luthien went and the birds sang beneath the snow-clad hills. But Huan, being faithful, went back to Kelegorm, his master. Yet their love was less than before. 
There was tumult in Nargothrond, for thither now returned many elves that had been prisoners in the Isle of Sauron, and a clamour arose that no words of Kelagorm could still. They lamented bitterly the fall of Felagund their king, saying that a maiden had dared that which the sons of Feanor had not dared to do. But many perceived that it was treachery rather than fear that had guided Kelagorm and Kurufin. Therefore the hearts of the people of Nargothrond were released from their dominion, and turned again to the house of Finarfin, and they obeyed Orodreth. But he would not suffer them to slay the brothers as some desired, for the spilling of kindred blood by kin would bind the curse of Mandos more closely upon them all. Yet neither bread nor rest would he grant to Kelagorm and Kurufin within his realm. And he swore that there should be little love between Nargothrond and the sons of Feanor thereafter. Let it be so, said Kelagorm, and there was a light of menace in his eyes, but Kurufin smiled. Then they took horse and rode away like fire to find if they might their kindred in the east. But none would go with them, not even those that were of their own people, for all perceived that the curse lay heavily upon the brothers and that evil followed them. In that time, Celebrimbor, the son of Curufin, repudiated the deeds of his father, and remained in Nargothrond. Yet Huan followed still the horse of Celegorm, his master. Northward they rode, for they intended in their haste to pass through Dimbar, and along the north marches of Doriath, seeking the swiftest road to Himling, where Maedhros their brother dwelt and still they might hope with speed to traverse it, since it lay close to Doriath's borders, shunning Nan Dungortheb and the distant menace of the Mountains of Terror. Now it is told that Beren and Luthien came in their wandering into the forest of Brethil, and drew near at last to the borders of Doriath. Then Beren took thought of his vow, and against his heart he resolved, when Luthien was come again within the safety of her own land, to set forth once more. But she was not willing to be parted from him again, saying, You must choose, Beren, between these two, to relinquish the quest and your oath and seek a life of wandering upon the face of the earth, or to hold to your word and challenge the power of darkness upon its throne, but on either road I shall go with you, and our doom shall be alike. Even as they spoke together of these things, Walking without heed of aught else, Kelegorm and Kurufin rode up, hastening through the forest, and the brothers espied them and knew them from afar. Then Kelegorm turned his horse and spurred it upon Beren, purposing to ride him down, but Kurufin, swerving, stooped and lifted Luthien to his saddle, for he was a strong and cunning horseman. Then Beren sprang from before Kelegorm full upon the speeding horse of Kurufin that had passed him. And the leap of Beren is renowned among men and elves. He took Kurufin by the throat from behind, and hurled him backward, and they fell to the ground together. The horse reared and fell, but Luthien was flung aside and lay upon the grass. Then Beren throttled Kurufin, but death was near him, for Kelagorm rode upon him with a spear. In that hour, Huan forsook the service of Kelagorm and sprang upon him so that his horse swerved aside and would not approach Beren, 
the cause of the terror of the great hound. Kelegorm cursed both hound and horse, but Huon was unmoved. Then Luthien rising forbade the slaying of Curifin, but Beren despoiled him of his gear and weapons and took his knife, Angrist. That knife was made by Telcha of Nogrod and hung sheathless by his side. Iron it would cleave as if it were green wood. Then Beren, lifting Curifin, flung him from him, and bade him walk now back to his noble kinsfolk, who might teach him to turn his valour to worthier use. Your horse, he said, I keep for the service of Luthien, and it may be accounted happy to be free of such a master. Then Curufin cursed Beren under cloud and sky. Go hence, he said, unto a swift and bitter death. Kelegorm took him beside him on his horse, and the brothers made then as if to ride away, and Beren turned away and took no heed of their words. But Kurufin, being filled with shame and malice, took the bow of Kelegorm and shot back as they went, and the arrow was aimed at Luthien. Huen, leaping, caught it in his mouth, but Kurufin shot again, and Beren sprang before Luthien, and the dart smote him in the breast. It is told that Huan pursued the sons of Feanor, and they fled in fear, and returning he brought to Luthien a herb out of the forest. With that leaf she staunched Beren's wound, and by her arts and by her love she healed him, and thus at last they returned to Doriath. There Beren, being torn between his oath and his love, and knowing Luthien to be now safe, arose one morning before the sun and committed her to the care of Huan. Then in great anguish he departed while she yet slept upon the grass. He rode northward again with all speed to the pass of Sirion, and coming to the skirts of Tower Nufuin, he looked out across the waste of Angfauglith, and saw afar the peaks of Thangorodrim. There he dismissed the horse of Kurufin, and bade it leave now dread and servitude, and run free upon the green grass in the lands of Sirion. Then being now alone, and upon the threshold of the final peril, he made the song of parting, in praise of Luthien and the lights of heaven, for he believed that he must now say farewell to both love and light. Of that song, these words were part. Farewell, sweet earth and northern sky, forever blessed since here did lie, and here with lissom limbs did run, beneath the moon, beneath the sun, Luthien Tenuviel. More fair than mortal tongue can tell. The wall to ruin fell the world, and were dissolved and backward hurled, unmade into the old abyss, yet were its making good for this, the dusk, the dawn, the earth, the sea, that Luthien for a time should be. And he sang aloud, caring not what ear should overhear him, for he was desperate and looked for no escape. But Luthien heard his song, and she sang in answer as she came through the woods unlooked for. For Huan, 
consenting once more to be her steed, had borne her swiftly, hard upon Beren's trail. Long he had pondered in his heart what counsel he could devise for the lightening of the peril of these two whom he loved. He turned aside, therefore, at Sauron's isle as they ran northward again, and he took thence the ghastly wolfheim of Draugluin and the Batfell of Thuringuethil. She was the messenger of Sauron, and was wont to fly in vampire's form to Angband, and her great fingered wings were barbed at each joint's end with an iron claw. Clad in these dreadful garments, Huan and Luthien ran through Tower Nufuin, and all things fled before them. Beren, seeing their approach, was dismayed, and he wondered, for he had heard the voice of Tinuviel, and he thought it now a phantom for his ensnaring. But they halted and cast aside their disguise, and Luthien ran towards him. Thus Beren and Luthien met again between the desert and the wood. For a while he was silent and was glad. But after a space he strove once more to dissuade Luthien from her journey. Thrice now I curse my oath to Thingol, he said, and I would that he had slain me in Menegroth, rather than I should bring you under the shadow of Morgoth. Then for the second time Huan spoke with words, and he counseled Beren, saying, From the shadow of death you can no longer save Luthien. For by her love she is now subject to it. You can turn from your fate and lead her into exile, seeking peace in vain while your life lasts. But if you will not deny your doom, then either Luthien, being forsaken, must assuredly die alone, or she must with you challenge the fate that lies before you, hopeless, yet not certain. Further counsel I cannot give, nor may I go further on your road. But my heart forebodes that what you find at the gate I shall myself see. All else is dark to me. Yet it may be that our three paths lead back to Doriath, and we may yet meet before the end. Then Beren perceived that Luthien could not be divided from the doom that lay upon them both, and he sought no longer to dissuade her. By the counsel of Huan and the arts of Luthien, he was arrayed now in the haem of Draugluin, and she in the winged fell of Thuringuethil. Beren became in all things like a werewolf to look upon, save that in his eyes there shone a spirit grim indeed, but clean. And horror was in his glance as he saw upon his flank a bat-like creature clinging with creased wings. Then, howling under the moon, he leapt down the hill, and the bat wheeled and flitted above him. They passed through all perils, until they came with the dust of their long and weary road upon them, to the drear dale that lay before the gate of Angband. Black chasms opened beside the road, whence forms as of writhing serpents issued. On either hand the cliffs stood as embattled walls, and upon them sat carrion fowl, crying with fell voices. Before them was the impregnable gate, an arch wide and dark at the foot of the mountain. Above it reared a thousand feet of precipice. There dismay took them, 
for at the gate was a guard of whom no tidings had yet gone forth. Rumour of he knew not what designs abroad among the princes of the elves had come to Morgoth, and ever down the aisles of the forest was heard the baying of Huan, the great hound of war whom long ago the Valar unleashed. Then Morgoth recalled the doom of Huan, and he chose one from among the whelps of the race of Draugluin, and he fed him with his own hand upon living flesh, and put his power upon him. Swiftly the wolf grew, until he could creep into no den, but lay huge and hungry before the feet of Morgoth. There the fire and anguish of hell entered into him, and he became filled with a devouring spirit, tormented terrible and strong. Kacharoth, the Red Moor, he is named in the tales of those days, and Anfauglir, the Jaws of Thirst, and Morgoth set him to lie unsleeping before the doors of Angband, lest Huan come. Now Kacharoth espied them from afar, and he was filled with doubt. For news had long been brought to Angband that Thraugluin was dead. Therefore, when they approached, he denied them entry and bade them stand, and he drew near with menace, scenting something strange in the air about them. But suddenly some power descended from of old from divine race, possessed Luthien, and casting back her foul raiment she stood forth, small before the might of Kacharoth, but radiant and terrible. Lifting up her hand, she commanded him to sleep, saying, O woe-begotten spirit, fall now into dark oblivion, and forget for a while the dreadful doom of life. And Kacharoth was felled, as though lightning had smitten him. Then Beren and Luthien went through the gate, and down the labyrinthine stairs, and together wrought the greatest deed that has been dared by elves or men. For they came to the seat of Morgoth in his nethermost hall, that was upheld by horror, lit by fire, and filled with weapons of death and torment. There Beren slunk in wolf's form beneath his throne, but Luthien was stripped of her disguise by the will of Morgoth, and he bent his gaze upon her. She was not daunted by his eyes, and she named her own name and offered her service to sing before him after the manner of a minstrel. Then Morgoth, looking upon her beauty, conceived in his thought an evil lust, and a design more dark than any that had yet come into his heart since he fled from Valinor. Thus he was beguiled by his own malice. For he watched her, leaving her free for a while, and taking secret pleasure in his thought. Then suddenly she eluded his sight, and out of the shadows began a song of such surpassing loveliness and of such blinding power that he listened perforce and a blindness came upon him as his eyes roamed to and fro, seeking her. All his court were cast down in slumber, and all the fires faded and were quenched. But the Silmarils in the crown on Morgoth's head blazed forth suddenly with a radiance of white flame, and the burden of that crown and of the jewels bowed down his head, as though the world was set upon it, laden with a weight of care, of fear, and of desire, that even the will of Morgoth could not support. Then Luthien 
catching up her winged robe, sprang into the air, and her voice came dropping down like rain into pools, profound and dark. She cast her cloak before his eyes, and set upon him a dream dark as the outer void, where once he walked alone. Suddenly he fell, as a hill sliding in avalanche, and hurled like thunder from his throne, lay prone upon the floors of hell. The iron crown rolled echoing from his head. All things were still. As a dead beast, Beren lay upon the ground. But Luthien, touching him with a hand, aroused him, and he cast aside the wolf hame. Then he drew forth the knife Angrist, and from the iron claws that held it, he cut a Silmaril. As he closed it in his hand, the radiance welled through his living flesh, and his hand became as a shining lamp. But the jewel suffered his touch and hurt him not. It came then into Beren's mind that he would go beyond his vow and bear out of Angband all three of the jewels of Feanor. But such was not the doom of the Silmarils. The knife Angrist snapped, and a shard of the blade flying smote the cheek of Morgoth. He groaned and stirred, and all the host of Angband moved in sleep. Then terror fell upon Beren and Luthien, and they fled, heedless and without disguise, desiring only to see the light once more. They were neither hindered nor pursued, but the gate was held against their going out, for Kacharoth had arisen from sleep and stood now in wrath upon the threshold of Angband. Before they were aware of him, he saw them and sprang upon them as they ran. Luthien was spent, and she had not time nor strength to quell the wolf, but Beren strode forth before her, and in his right hand he held aloft the Silmaril. Kacharoth halted, and for a moment he was afraid. "'Get you gone and fly!' cried Beren, "'for here is a fire that shall consume you and all evil things.' And he thrust the Silmaril before the eyes of the wolf. But Kacharoth looked upon that holy jewel and was not daunted, and the devouring spirit within him awoke to sudden fire, and gaping he took suddenly the hand within his jaws, and he bit it off at the wrist. Then swiftly all his innards were filled with a flame of anguish, and the Silmaril seared his accursed flesh. Howling he fled before them, and the walls of the valley of the gate echoed with the clamour of his torment. So terrible did he become in his madness that all the creatures of Morgoth that abode in that valley, or were upon any of the roads that led thither, fled far away. For he slew all living things that stood in his path, and burst from the north with ruin upon the world. Of all the terrors that came ever into Beleriand ere Angband's fall, the madness of Kacharoth was the most dreadful, for the power of the Silmaril was hidden within him. Now Beren lay in a swoon within the perilous gate, and death drew nigh him, for there was venom on the fangs of the wolf. Luthien, with her lips, drew out the venom, and she put forth her failing power to staunch the hideous wound. But behind her, in the depths of Angband, the rumour grew of great wrath aroused. 
the hosts of Morgoth were awakened. Thus the quest of the Silmaril was like to have ended in ruin and despair. But in that hour above the wall of the valley, three mighty birds appeared, flying northward with wings swifter than the wind. Among all birds and beasts the wandering and need of Beren had been noised, and Juan himself had bidden all things watch, that they might bring him aid. High above the realm of Morgoth, Thorondor and his vassals soared, and seeing now the madness of the wolf and Beren's fall, they came swiftly down, even as the powers of Angband were released from the toils of sleep. Then they lifted up Luthien and Beren from the earth, and bore them aloft into the clouds. Below them suddenly thunder rolled, lightnings leapt upward, and the mountains quaked. Fire and smoke belched forth from Thangorodrim, and flaming bolts were hurled far abroad, falling ruinous upon the lands, and the Noldor in Hithlum trembled. But Thorondor took his way far above the earth, seeking the high roads of heaven, where the sun day-long shines unveiled, and the moon walks amid the cloudless stars. Thus they passed swiftly over Dor Nufauglith, and over Tower Nufuin, and came above the hidden valley of Tumladen. No cloud nor mist lay there, and looking down, Luthien saw far below, as a white light starting from a green jewel, the radiance of Gondolin the Fair, where Torgon dwelt. But she wept, for she thought that Beren would surely die. He spoke no word, nor opened his eyes, and knew thereafter nothing of his flight. And at last the eagles set them down upon the borders of Doriath, and they were come to that same dell whence Beren had stolen in despair and left Luthien asleep. There the eagles laid her at Beren's side and returned to the peaks of Chrysagrim and their high eyries. But Juan came to her, and together they tended Beren, even as before when she healed him of the wound that Kurufin gave to him. But this wound was fell and poisonous. Long Beren lay, and his spirit wandered upon the dark borders of death, knowing ever an anguish that pursued him from dream to dream. Then suddenly, when her hope was almost spent, he woke again, and looked up, seeing leaves against the sky. And he heard beneath the leaves singing soft and slow beside him, Luthien Tinuviel, and it was spring again. Thereafter Beren was named Echamian, which is the one-handed, and suffering was graven in his face. But at last he was drawn back to life by the love of Luthien, and he arose, and together they walked in the woods once more. And they did not hasten from that place, for it seemed fair to them. Luthien indeed was willing to wander in the wild without returning, forgetting house and people and all the glory of the elf kingdoms, and for a time Beren was content. But he could not for long forget his oath to return to Menigroth, nor would he withhold Luthien from Thingol forever. For he held by the law of men, deeming it perilous to set at naught the will of the father, save at the last need. 
and it seemed also to him unfit that one so royal and fair as Luthien should live always in the woods, as the rude hunters among men, without home or honour or the fair things which are the delight of the queens of the elder Leah. Therefore, after a while, he persuaded her, and their footsteps forsook the houseless lands, and he passed into Doriath, leading Luthien home. So their doom willed it. Upon Doriath evil days had fallen. Grief and silence had come upon all its people when Luthien was lost. Long they had sought for her in vain. And it is told that in that time Daron the minstrel of Thingol strayed from the land and was seen no more. He it was that made music for the dance and song of Luthien before Beren came to Doriath, and he had loved her and set all his thought of her in his music. He became the greatest of all the minstrels of the elves east of the sea, named even before Maglor, son of Feanor. But seeking for Luthien in despair, he wandered upon strange paths, and passing over the mountains he came into the east of Middle-earth, where for many ages he made lament beside dark waters for Luthien, daughter of Thingol, most beautiful of all living things. In that time, Thingol turned to Melian. But now she withheld her counsel from him, saying that the doom that he had devised must work to its appointed end, and that he must wait now upon time. But Thingol learned that Luthien had journeyed far from Doriath, for messages came secretly from Caligorm, as has been told, saying that Felagund was dead, and Beren was dead, but Luthien was in Nargothrond, and that Caligorm would wed her. Then Thingol was wrathful, and he sent forth spies, thinking to make war upon Nargothrond. And thus he learned that Luthien was again fled, and that Caligorm and Curufin were driven from Nargothrond. Then his counsel was in doubt, for he had not the strength to assail the seven sons of Feanor. But he sent messengers to Himring to summon their aid in seeking for Luthien, since Caligorm had not sent her to the house of her father, nor had he kept her safely. But in the north of his realm his messengers met with a peril sudden and unlooked for, the onslaught of Kacharoth, the wolf of Angband. In his madness he had run ravening from the north, and passing at length over Tower Nufuin, Upon its eastern side, he came down from the sources of Esgalduin like a destroying fire. Nothing hindered him, and the might of Melian upon the borders of the land stayed him not. For fate drove him, and the power of the Silmaril that he bore to his torment. Thus he burst into the inviolate woods of Doriath, and all fled away in fear. Alone of the messengers, Mablung, chief captain of the king, escaped and he brought the dread tidings to Thingol. Even in that dark hour, Beren and Luthien returned, hastening from the west, and the news of their coming went before them like a sound of music borne by the wind into dark houses where men sit sorrowful. They came at last to the gates of Menigroth, and a great host followed them. Then Beren led Luthien before the throne of Thingol, her father, and he looked in wonder upon Beren, 
whom he had thought dead. But he loved him not because of the woes that he had brought upon Doriath. But Beren knelt before him and said, I return according to my word. I am come now to claim my own. And Thingol answered, What of your quest and of your vow? But Beren said, It is fulfilled. Even now a Silmaril is in my hand. Then Thingol said, Show it to me. And Beren put forth his left hand, slowly opening its fingers, but it was empty. Then he held up his right arm, and from that hour he named himself Camlost, the empty-handed. Then Thingol's mood was softened, and Beren sat before his throne upon the left, and Luthien upon the right, and they told all the tale of the quest, while all there listened and were filled with amazement. And it seemed to Thingol that this man was unlike all other mortal men, and among the great in Arda and the love of Luthien a thing new and strange. And he perceived that their doom might not be withstood by any power of the world. Therefore, at the last, he yielded his will and Beren took the hand of Luthien before the throne of her father. But now a shadow fell upon the joy of Doriath at the return of Luthien the fair. For learning of the cause of the madness of Kacharoth, the people grew the more afraid, perceiving that his danger was fraught with dreadful power because of the holy jewel, and hardly might be overthrown. And Beren... Hearing of the onslaught of the wolf, understood that the quest was not yet fulfilled. Therefore, since daily Kacharoth drew nearer to Menegroth, they prepared the hunting of the wolf. Of all pursuits of beasts whereof tales tell the most perilous. To that chase went Huan the hound of Valinor, and Mablung of the heavy hand, and Beleg Strongbow, and Beren Echamian, and Thingol, king of Doriath. They rode forth in the morning and passed over the river Esgalduin, but Luthien remained behind at the gates of Menegroth. A dark shadow fell upon her, and it seemed to her that the sun had sickened and turned black. The hunters turned east and north, and following the course of the river they came at last upon Kacharoth the wolf, in a dark valley down the northern side whereof, as Galduin fell in a torrent over steep falls. At the foot of the falls, Kacharoth drank to ease his consuming thirst, and he howled, and thus they were aware of him. But he, espying their approach, rushed not suddenly to attack them. It may be that the devil's cunning of his heart awoke, being for a moment eased of his pain by the sweet waters of Esgalduin. And even as they rode towards him, he slunk aside into a deep break, and there lay hid. But they set a guard about all that place, and waited, and the shadows grew long in the forest. Beren stood beside Thingol, and suddenly they were aware that Huan had left their side. Then a great baying awoke in the thicket, for Juan, becoming impatient and desiring to look upon this wolf, had gone in alone to dislodge him. 
but Karkaroth avoided him, and bursting from the thorns leapt suddenly upon Thingol. Swiftly Beren strode before him with a spear, but Karkaroth swept it aside and felled him, biting at his breast. In that moment, Huan leapt from the thicket upon the back of the wolf, and they fell together fighting bitterly. And no battle of wolf and hound has been like to it, for in the baying of Huan was heard the voice of the horns of Orme, and the wrath of the Valar. But in the howls of Karkaroth was the hate of Morgoth, and malice crueller than teeth of steel. And the rocks were rent by their clamour, and fell from on high, and choked the falls of Esgalduin. There they fought to the death. But Thingol gave no heed, for he knelt by Beren, seeing that he was sorely hurt. Huan in that hour slew Karkaroth. But there in the woven woods of Doriath his own doom long spoken was fulfilled, and he was wounded mortally, and the venom of Morgoth entered into him. Then he came, and falling beside Beren spoke for the third time with words and he bade Beren farewell before he died. Beren spoke not, but laid his hand upon the head of the hound, and so they parted. Mablung and Beleg came hastening to the king's aid, but when they looked upon what was done, they cast aside their spears and wept. Then Mablung took a knife and ripped up the belly of the wolf, and within he was well-nigh all consumed as with a fire. But the hand of Beren that held the jewel was yet incorrupt. But when Mablung reached forth to touch it, the hand was no more, and the Silmaril lay there unveiled, and the light of it filled the shadows of the forest all about them. Then quickly and in fear, Mablung took it and set it in Beren's living hand, and Beren was aroused by the touch of the Silmaril, and held it aloft, and bade Thingol receive it. Now is the quest achieved, he said, and my doom full wrought. And he spoke no more. They bore back Beren Camlost, son of Barahir, upon a bier of branches, with Huan the wolfhound at his side. And night fell ere they returned to Menegroth. At the feet of Hirilorn the great beach, Luthien met them walking slow, and some bore torches beside the bier. There she set her arms about Beren, and kissed him, bidding him await her beyond the western sea. And he looked upon her eyes ere the spirit left him. But the starlight was quenched, and darkness had fallen even upon Luthien to Nuviel. Thus ended the quest of the Silmaril. But the lay of Lathian, released from bondage, does not end. For the spirit of Beren, at her bidding, tarried in the halls of Mandos, unwilling to leave the world, until Luthien came to say her last farewell upon the dim shores of the outer sea, whence men that die set out never to return. But the spirit of Luthien fell down into darkness, and at the last it fled, and her body lay like a flower that is suddenly cut off and lies for a while unwithered on the grass. Then a winter, 
as it were the hoar age of mortal men, fell upon Thingol. But Luthien came to the halls of Mandos, where are the appointed places of the Eldalia, beyond the mansions of the West upon the confines of the world. There those that wait sit in the shadow of their thought. But her beauty was more than their beauty, and her sorrow deeper than their sorrows. And she knelt before Mandos and sang to him. The song of Luthien before Mandos was the song most fair that ever in words was woven, and the song most sorrowful that ever the world shall hear. Unchanged, imperishable, it is sung still in Valinor beyond the hearing of the world, and listening, the Valar are grieved. For Luthien wove two themes of words, of the sorrow of the Eldar, and the grief of men, of the two kindreds that were made by Iluvatar to dwell in Arda, the kingdom of earth, amid the innumerable stars. And as she knelt before him, her tears fell upon his feet like rain upon the stones, and Mandos was moved to pity, who never before was so moved, nor has been since. Therefore he summoned Berin, and even as Luthien had spoken in the hour of his death, they met again beyond the western sea. But Mandos had no power to withhold the spirits of men that were dead within the confines of the world after their time of waiting. Nor could he change the fates of the children of Iluvatar. He went therefore to Manwe, lord of the Valar, who governed the world under the hand of Iluvatar, and Manwe sought counsel in his inmost thought where the will of Iluvatar was revealed. These were the choices that he gave to Luthien. Because of her labors and her sorrow, she should be released from Mandos and go to Valimar, there to dwell until the world's end among the Valar, forgetting all griefs that her life had known. Thither Beren could not come, for it was not permitted to the Valar to withhold death from him which is the gift of Iluvatar to men. But the other choice was this, that she might return to Middle-earth and take with her Beren there to dwell again, but without certitude of life or joy. Then she would become mortal and subject to a second death, even as he. And ere long she would leave the world forever and her beauty become only a memory in song. This doom she chose, forsaking the blessed realm and putting aside all claim to kinship with those that dwell there, that thus whatever grief might lie in wait, the fates of Beren and Luthien might be joined, and their paths lead together beyond the confines of the world. So it was that alone of the Eldalia she has died indeed and left the world long ago. Yet in her choice, the two kindreds have been joined, and she is the forerunner of many in whom the Eldar see yet, though all the world is changed, the likeness of Luthien the Beloved, whom they have lost. Of the Fifth Battle, near Neath Arnoidiad it is said that Beren and Luthien returned to the northern lands of Middle-earth, 
and dwelt together for a time as living man and woman, and they took up again their mortal form in Doriath. Those that saw them were both glad and fearful, and Luthien went to Menegroth and healed the winter of Thingol with the touch of her hand. But Melian looked in her eyes and read the doom that was written there and turned away, for she knew that a parting beyond the end of the world had come between them, and no grief of loss has been heavier than the grief of Melian the Maya in that hour. Then Beren and Luthien went forth alone, fearing neither thirst nor hunger, and they passed beyond the river Gelion into Ossiriand, and dwelt there in Tolgalan, the green isle, in the midst of Adurant, until all tidings of them ceased. The elder afterwards called that country Dorfin Irguinar, the land of the dead that live. And there was born Dior Aranel the Beautiful, who was after known as Dior Eluchil, which is Thingol's heir. No mortal man spoke ever again with Beren, son of Barahir, and none saw Beren or Luthien leave the world, or marked where at last their bodies lay. In those days... Maedhros, son of Feanor, lifted up his heart, perceiving that Morgoth was not unassailable, for the deeds of Beren and Luthien were sung in many songs throughout Beleriand. Yet Morgoth would destroy them all, one by one, if they could not again unite and make new league and common council, and he began those councils for the raising of the fortunes of the Eldar that are called the Union of Maedhros. Yet the oath of Feanor and the evil deeds that it had wrought did injury to the design of Maedhros, and he had less aid than should have been. Orodreth would not march forth at the word of any son of Feanor because of the deeds of Kelagorm and Kurufin, and the elves of Nargothrond trusted still to defend their hidden stronghold by secrecy and stealth. Thence came only a small company, following Gwyndor, son of Gwilin, a very valiant prince, and against the will of Orodreth, he went to the northern war, because he grieved for the loss of Gelmir, his brother, in the Dagor Bragolach. They took the badge of the house of Fingolfin, and marched beneath the banners of Fingon, and they came never back save one. From Doriath came little help. For Maedhros and his brothers, being constrained by their oath, had before sent to Thingol and reminded him with haughty words of their claim, summoning him to yield the Silmaril or become their enemy. Melian counselled him to surrender it, but the words of the sons of Feanor were proud and threatening, and Thingol was filled with anger, thinking of the anguish of Luthien and the blood of Beren, whereby the jewel had been won, despite the malice of Kelagorm and Kurufin. And every day that he looked upon the Silmaril, the more he desired to keep it forever, for such was its power. Therefore he sent back the messengers with scornful words. Maedhros made no answer, for he had now begun to devise the league and union of the elves. But Kelagorm and Kurufin vowed openly to slay Thingol and destroy his people 
if they came victorious from war and the jewel were not surrendered of free will. Then Thingol fortified the marches of his realm, and went not to war nor any out of Doriath save Mablung and Beleg, who were unwilling to have no part in these great deeds. To them Thingol gave leave to go, so long as they served not the sons of Feanor. And they joined themselves to the host of Fingon. But Maedhros had the help of the Naugrim, both in armed force and in great store of weapons. And the smithies of Nogrod and Belagost were busy in those days. And he gathered together again all his brothers and all the people who would follow them. And the men of Bor and Ulfang were marshaled and trained for war. And they summoned yet more of their kinsfolk out of the east. Moreover, in the west, Fingon, ever the friend of Maedhros, took counsel with Himring, and in Hithlum the Noldor and the men of the house of Hador prepared for war. In the forest of Brethil, Halmir, lord of the people of Haleth, gathered his men, and they whetted their axes. But Halmir died ere the war came, and Haldir, his son, ruled that people, and to Gondolin also the tidings came, to Torgon, the hidden king. But Maedhros made trial of his strength too soon, ere his plans were full-wrought, and though the orcs were driven out of all the northward regions of Beleriand, and even Dorthonion was freed for a while, Morgoth was warned of the uprising of the Eldar and the elf-friends, and took counsel against them. Many spies and workers of treason he sent forth among them, as he was the better able now to do, for the faithless men of his secret allegiance were yet deep in the secrets of the sons of Feanor. At length, Maedhros, having gathered all the strength that he could of elves and men and dwarves, resolved to assault Angband from east and west, and he purposed to march with banners displayed in open force over Anfauglis. But when he had drawn forth, as he hoped, the armies of Morgoth in answer, then Fingon should issue forth from the passes of Hithlam, and thus they thought to take the might of Morgoth, as between anvil and hammer, and break it to pieces. And the signal for this was to be the firing of a great beacon in Dorthonion. On the appointed day, on the morning of midsummer, the trumpets of the Eldar greeted the rising of the sun, and in the east was raised the standard of the sons of Feanor, and in the west the standard of Fingon, high king of the Noldor. Then Fingon looked out from the walls of Aethel Sirion, and his host was arrayed in the valleys and the woods upon the east of Eredwethrin, well hid from the eyes of the enemy. But he knew that it was very great. For there all the Noldor of Hithlam were assembled, together with elves of the Phalas and Gwyndor's company from Norgothrond, and he had great strength of men. Upon the right were the host of Dorlomin, and all the valour of Hurin and Huor, his brother, and to them had come Haldir of Brethil with many men of the woods. Then Fingon looked towards Thangorodrim, and there was a dark cloud about it, and the black smoke went up, and he knew that the wrath of Morgoth was aroused, and that their challenge was accepted. A shadow of doubt fell upon Fingon's heart, and he looked eastwards, seeking if he might see with elven sight 
the dust of Anfauglith rising beneath the hosts of Maedhros. He knew not that Maedhros was hindered in his setting forth by the guile of Uldor the Accursed, who deceived him with false warnings of assault from Angband. But now a cry went up, passing up the wind from the south, from vale to vale, and elves and men lifted their voices in wonder and joy. For unsummoned and unlooked for, Torgon had opened the leaguer of Gondolin, and was come with an army ten thousand strong, with bright mail and long swords and spears like a forest. Then, when Fingon heard afar the great trumpet of Torgon, his brother, the shadow passed, and his heart was uplifted, and he shouted aloud, Utulian Aure, Aia Eldalia, Ar Atanatari Utulian Aure. The day has come. Behold, people of the Eldar and the fathers of men, the day has come. And all those who heard his great voice echo in the hills answered, crying, Auta Ilome. The night is passing. Now Morgoth, who knew much of what was done and designed by his enemies, chose his hour, and trusting in his treacherous servants to hold back Maedhros and prevent the union of his foes, he sent a force, seeming great, and yet but part of all that he had made ready, towards Hithlam. And they were clad all in dun raiment, and showed no naked steel and thus were already far over the sands of Anfauglith before their approach was seen. Then the hearts of the Noldor grew hot, and their captains wished to assail their foes upon the plain. But Hurin spoke against it, and bade them beware of the guile of Morgoth, whose strength was always greater than it seemed, and his purpose other than he revealed. And though the signal of the approach of Maedhras came not, and the host grew impatient, Hurin urged them still to await it, and to let the orcs break themselves in assault upon the hills. But the captain of Morgoth in the west had been commanded to draw out Fingon swiftly from his hills by whatever means he could. He marched on, therefore, until the front of his battle was drawn up before the stream of Sirion, from the walls of the fortress of Aethel Sirion to the inflowing of Rivil at the fen of Serech and the outposts of Fingon could see the eyes of their enemies. But there was no answer to his challenge, and the taunts of the orcs faltered as they looked upon the silent walls and the hidden threat of the hills. Then the captain of Morgoth sent out riders with tokens of parley, and they rode up before the outworks of the Barad Aethel. With them they brought Gelmir, son of Gwilin, that lord of Nargothrond whom they had captured in the Bragolach, and they had blinded him. Then the heralds of Angband showed him forth, crying, We have many more such at home, but you must make haste if you would find them, for we shall deal with them all when we return, even so. And they hewed off Gelmir's hands and feet, and his head last, within sight of the elves, and left him. By ill trance, at that place in the outworks, stood Gwyndor of Nargothrond, the brother of Gelmir. Now his wrath was kindled to madness, and he leapt forth on horseback, and many riders with him, and they pursued the heralds and slew them, 
and drove on deep into the main host. And seeing this, all the host of the Noldor was set on fire, and Fingon put on his white helm and sounded his trumpets, and all the host of Hithlum leapt forth from the hills in sudden onslaught. The light of the drawing of the swords of the Noldor was like a fire in a field of reeds, and so fell and swift was their onset that almost the designs of Morgoth went astray. Before the army that he had sent westward could be strengthened, it was swept away, and the banners of Fingon passed over Anfauglith and were raised before the walls of Angband. Ever in the forefront of that battle went Gwyndor and the elves of Nargothrond, and even now they could not be restrained. And they burst through the gate and slew the guards upon the very stairs of Angband, and Morgoth trembled upon his deep throne, hearing them beat upon his doors. But they were trapped there, and all were slain, save Gwyndor only, whom they took alive, for Fingon could not come to their aid. By many secret doors in Thangorodrim, Morgoth had let issue forth his main host that he held in waiting, and Fingon was beaten back with great loss from the walls. Then, in the plain of Anfauglith, on the fourth day of the war, there began, near Neith Anoidiad, unnumbered tears, for no song or tale can contain all its grief. The host of Fingon retreated over the sands, and Haldir, lord of the Haladin, was slain in the rearguard. With him fell most of the men of Brethil, and came never back to their woods. But on the fifth day, as night fell, and they were still far from Eredwethrin, the orcs surrounded the host of Hithlam, and they fought until day, pressed ever closer. In the morning came hope when the horns of Turgon were heard as he marched up with the main host of Gondolin. For they had been stationed southward guarding the pass of Sirion, and Turgon restrained most of his people from the rash onslaught. Now he hastened to the aid of his brother, and the Gondolindrim were strong and clad in mail, and their ranks shone like a river of steel in the sun. Now the phalanx of the guard of the king broke through the ranks of the orcs, and Turgon hewed his way to the side of his brother, and it is told that the meeting of Turgon with Hurin, who stood beside Fingon, was glad in the midst of battle. Then hope was renewed in the hearts of the elves, and in that very time, at the third hour of morning, the trumpets of Maedhros were heard at last coming up from the east, and the banners of the sons of Feanor assailed the enemy in the rear. Some have said that even then the Eldar might have won the day, had all their hosts proved faithful, for the orcs wavered, and their onslaught was stayed, and already some were turning to flight. But even as the vanguard of Maedhros came upon the orcs, Morgoth loosed his last strength, and Angband was emptied. There came wolves and wolf-riders, and there came balrogs and dragons, and Glaurung, father of dragons. The strength and terror of the great worm were now great indeed, and elves and men withered before him, and he came between the hosts of Maedhros and Fingon and swept them apart. Yet neither by wolf, nor by Balrog, nor by dragon would Morgoth have achieved his end, but for the treachery of men. In this hour, the plots of Ulfang were revealed, 
Many of the Easterlings turned and fled, their hearts being filled with lies and fear. But the sons of Ulfang went over suddenly to Morgoth, and drove in upon the rear of the sons of Feanor, and in the confusion that they wrought, they came near to the standard of Maedhros. They reaped not the reward that Morgoth promised them, for Maglor slew Uldor the Accursed, the leader in treason, and the sons of Bor slew Ulfast and Ulwath, ere they themselves were slain. But new strength of evil men came up that Uldor had summoned, and kept hidden in the eastern hills, and the host of Maedhros was assailed now on three sides, and it broke, and was scattered and fled this way and that. Yet fate saved the sons of Feanor, and though all were wounded, none were slain, for they drew together, and gathering a remnant of the Noldor and the Naugrim about them, they hewed away out of the battle, and escaped far away towards Mount Dolmed in the east. Last of all the eastern force to stand firm were the dwarves of Belegost, and thus they won renown. For the Naugrim withstood fire more hardily than either elves or men, and it was their custom, moreover, to wear great masks in battle, hideous to look upon, and those stood them in good stead against the dragons. And but for them, Glaurung and his brood would have withered all that was left of the Noldor. But the Naugrim made a circle about him when he assailed them, and even his mighty armor was not full-proof against the blows of their great axes. But when in his rage Glaurung turned and struck down Azaghal, lord of Belagost, and crawled over him, with his last stroke Azaghal drove a knife into his belly, and so wounded him that he fled the field, and the beasts of Angband in dismay followed after him. Then the dwarves raised up the body of Azaghal, and bore it away, and with slow steps they walked behind, singing a dirge in deep voices, as it were a funeral pump in their country, and gave no heed more to their foes, and none dared to stay them. But now in the western battle, Fingon and Torgon were assailed by a tide of foes thrice greater than all the force that was left to them. Gothmog, lord of Balrog's high captain of Angband, was come and he drove a dark wedge between the elven hosts, surrounding King Fingon, and thrusting Torgon and Hurin aside towards the fen of Serech. Then he turned upon Fingon. That was a grim meeting. At last Fingon stood alone with his guard dead about him, and he fought with Gothmog, until another Balrog came behind and cast a thong of fire about him. Then Gothmog hewed him with his black axe, and a white flame sprang up from the helm of Fingon as it was cloven. Thus fell the high king of the Noldor, and they beat him into the dust with their maces, and his banner, blue and silver, they trod into the mire of his blood. The field was lost. But still Hurin and Huor and the remnants of the house of Hador stood firm with Turgon of Gondolin, and the hosts of Morgoth could not yet win the pass of Sirion. Then Hurin spoke to Torgon, saying, Go now, Lord, while time is, for in you lives the last hope of the Eldar, and while Gondolin stands, Morgoth shall still know fear in his heart. But Torgon answered, 
Not long now can Gondolin be hidden, and being discovered it must fall. Then Huor spoke and said, Yet if it stands but a little while, then out of your house shall come the hope of elves and men. This I say to you, Lord, with the eyes of death, though we part here for ever, and I shall not look on your white walls again, from you and from me a new star shall arise. Farewell. And Maeglin, Turgon's sister's son, who stood by, heard these words, and did not forget them. But he said nothing. Then Torgon took the counsel of Hurin and Huor, and summoning all that remained of the host of Gondolin, and such of Fingon's people as could be gathered, he retreated towards the pass of Sirion. And his captains, Ecthelion and Glorfindel, guarded the flanks to right and left, so that none of the enemy should pass them by. But the men of Dor Lomin held the rear guard as Hurin and Huor desired for they did not wish in their hearts to leave the Northlands. And if they could not win back to their homes, there they would stand to the end. Thus was the treachery of Uldor redressed, and of all the deeds of war that the fathers of men wrought in behalf of the Eldar, the last stand of the men of Dor Lomin is most renowned. So it was that Torgon fought his way southward, until, coming behind the guard of Hurin and Huor, he passed down Sirion and escaped. And he vanished into the mountains and was hidden from the eyes of Morgoth. But the brothers drew the remnants of the men of the house of Hador about them, and foot by foot they withdrew, until they came behind the fen of Serech and had the stream of Rivil before them. There they stood and gave way no more. Then all the hosts of Angband swarmed against them, and they bridged the stream with their dead, and encircled the remnant of Hithlam as a gathering tide about a rock. There, as the sun westered on the sixth day, and the shadow of Ered Wethrin grew dark, Huor fell pierced with a venomed arrow in his eye, and all the valiant men of Hador were slain about him in a heap, and the orcs hewed their heads and piled them as a mound of gold in the sunset. Last of all, Hurin stood alone. Then he cast aside his shield and wielded an axe two-handed, and it is sung that the axe smoked in the black blood of the troll god of Gothmug until it withered. And each time that he slew, Hurin cried, Aure and Tulava! Day shall come again! Seventy times he uttered that cry but they took him at last alive by the command of Morgoth. For the orcs grappled him with their hands, which clung to him still, though he hewed off their arms. And ever their numbers were renewed, until at last he fell buried beneath them. Then Gothmog bound him and dragged him to Angband with mockery. Thus ended Nirneath Arnoidiad. As the sun went down beyond the sea, Night fell in Hithlam, and there came a great storm of wind out of the west. Great was the triumph of Morgoth, and his design was accomplished in a manner after his own heart, for men took the lives of men, and betrayed the Eldar, and fear and hatred were aroused among those that should have been united against him. From that day 
the hearts of the elves were estranged from men, save only those of the three houses of the Edain. The realm of Fingon was no more, and the sons of Feanor wandered as leaves before the wind. Their arms were scattered and their league broken, and they took to a wild and woodland life beneath the feet of Ered Lindon, mingling with the green elves of Ossiriand, bereft of their power and glory of old. In Brethil some few of the Haladin yet dwelt in the protection of their woods, and Handir, son of Haldir, was their lord. But to Hithlam came back never one of Fingon's host, nor any of the men of Hador's house, nor any tidings of the battle and the fate of their lords. But Morgoth sent thither the Easterlings that had served him, denying them the rich lands of Beleriand which they coveted, and he shut them in Hithlam and forbade them to leave it. Such was the reward he gave them for their treachery to Maedhros, to plunder and harass the old and the women and the children of Hador's people. The remnant of the Eldar of Hithlam were taken to the mines of the north and laboured there as thralls, save some that eluded him and escaped into the wilds and the mountains. The orcs and the wolves went freely through all the north, and came ever further southward into Beleriand, even as far as Nantathrin, the land of the willows, and the borders of Assyriand, and none were safe in field or wild. Doriath indeed remained, and the halls of Nargothrond were hidden. But Morgoth gave small heed to them, either because he knew little of them, or because their hour was not yet come in the deep purpose of his malice. Many now fled to the havens and took refuge behind Cerdan's walls, and the mariners passed up and down the coast and harried the enemy with swift landings. But in the next year, ere the winter was come, Morgoth sent great strength over Hithlam and Nevrast, and they came down the rivers Brithon and Nenning and ravaged all the Phallas and besieged the walls of Brithombar and Eglarest. Smiths and miners and makers of fire they brought with them, and they set up great engines, and valiantly, though they were resisted, they broke the walls at last. Then the havens were laid in ruin, and the tower of Barad Nimras cast down, and the most part of Círdan's people were slain or enslaved. But some went aboard ship and escaped by sea, and among them was Erenian Gilgalad, the son of Fingon, whom his father had sent to the havens after the Dagor Bragolach. This remnant sailed with Círdan south to the Isle of Balar, and they made a refuge for all that could come thither, for they kept a foothold also at the mouths of Sirion, and there many light and swift ships lay hid in the creeks and waters where the reeds were dense as a forest. And when Torgon heard of this, he sent again his messengers to Sirion's mouths, and besought the aid of Círdan the shipwright. At the bidding of Turgon, Círdan built seven swift ships, and they sailed out into the west. But no tidings of them came ever back to Balar, save of one and the last. The mariners of that ship toiled long in the sea, and returning at last in despair, they foundered in a great storm within sight of the coasts of Middle-earth. But one of them was saved by Ulmo from the wrath of Ossa, 
and the waves bore him up and cast him ashore in Nevrast. His name was Varonwe, and he was one of those that Turgon sent forth as messengers from Gondolin. Now the thought of Morgoth dwelt ever upon Turgon. For Turgon had escaped him. Of all his foes, that one whom he most desired to take or to destroy. And that thought troubled him and marred his victory. For Turgon of the mighty house of Fingolfin was now by right king of all the Noldor, and Morgoth feared and hated the house of Fingolfin, because they had the friendship of Ulmo, his foe, and because of the wounds that Fingolfin gave him with his sword. And most of all his kin, Morgoth feared Turgon. For of old in Valinor his eye had lighted upon him, and whenever he drew near a shadow had fallen on his spirit, foreboding that in some time that yet lay hidden from Torgon ruin should come to him. Therefore Hurin was brought before Morgoth, for Morgoth knew that he had the friendship of the king of Gondolin. But Hurin defied him and mocked him. Then Morgoth cursed Hurin and Morwen and their offspring and set a doom upon them of darkness and sorrow. And taking Hurin from prison, he set him in a chair of stone upon the high place of Thangorodrim. There he was bound by the power of Morgoth. And Morgoth, standing beside him, cursed him again. And he said, Sit now there, and look out upon the lands where evil and despair shall come upon those whom thou lovest. Thou hast dared to mock me, and to question the power of Melkor, master of the fates of Arda. Therefore, with my eyes thou shalt see, and with my ears thou shalt hear, and never shalt thou move from this place until all is fulfilled unto its bitter end. And even so it came to pass. But it is not said that Hurin asked ever of Morgoth either mercy or death, for himself or for any of his kin. By the command of Morgoth, the orcs with great labor gathered all the bodies of those who had fallen in the great battle, and all their harness and weapons, and piled them in a great mound in the midst of Anfaugith. And it was like a hill that could be seen from afar. Houthen Ndengin, the elves named it, the Hill of Slain, and Houthen Nirnaeth, the Hill of Tears. But grass came there, and grew again, long and green, upon that hill, alone in all the desert that Morgoth made. And no creature of Morgoth trod thereafter upon the earth beneath which the swords of the Eldar and the Edain crumbled into rust.
of Turin Turamba. Rian, daughter of Belagund, was the wife of Huar, son of Galdor. And she was wedded to him two months before he went with Hurin, his brother, to the Nirnaeth Arnoidiad. When no tidings came of her lord, she fled into the wild. But she was aided by the grey elves of Mithrim, and when her son Tuor was born, they fostered him. Then Rian departed from Hithlum, and going to the Houthen and Dengin, she laid herself down upon it and died. Morwen, daughter of Baragund, was the wife of Hurin, lord of Dor Lomin, and their son was Turin, who was born in the year that Beren Echamian came upon Luthien in the forest of Neldoreth. A daughter they had also, who was called Lalith, which is laughter, and she was beloved by Turin, her brother. But when she was three years old, there came a pestilence to Hithlam, born on an evil wind out of Angband, and she died. Now after the Nirnaeth Anoidiad, Morwen abode still in Dorlomin, for Turin was but eight years old, and she was again with child. Those days were evil, for the Easterlings that came into Hithlam despised the remnant of the people of Hador, and they oppressed them, and took their lands and their goods, and enslaved their children. But so great was the beauty and majesty of the Lady of Dorlomin, that the Easterlings were afraid, and dared not to lay hands upon her or her household. And they whispered among themselves, saying that she was perilous, and a witch skilled in magic, and in league with the elves. Yet she was now poor and without aid, save that she was succoured secretly by a kinswoman of Hurin named Eärin, whom Broda, an Easterling, had taken as his wife. And Morwen feared greatly that Turin would be taken from her and enslaved. Therefore it came into her heart to send him away in secret, and to beg King Thingol to harbour him, for Beren, son of Barahir, was her father's kinsman, and he had been, moreover, a friend of Hurin, ere evil befell. Therefore, in the autumn of the year of lamentation, Morwen sent Turin forth over the mountains, with two aged servants, bidding them find entry, if they could, into the kingdom of Doriath. Thus was the fate of Turin woven, which is full told in that lay that is called Narn Ihin Hurin, the tale of the children of Hurin, and is the longest of all the lays that speak of those days. Here that tale is told in brief, for it is woven with the fate of the Silmarils and of the elves, and it is called the Tale of Grief, for it is sorrowful, and in it are revealed most evil works of Morgoth Bauglir. In the first beginning of the year, Morwen gave birth to her child, the daughter of Hurin, and she named her Nianor, which is mourning. But Turin and his companions passing through great perils came at last to the borders of Doriath, and there they were found by Beleg Strongbow, chief of the march-wardens of King Thingol, who led them to Menegroth. Then Thingol received Turin, and took him even to his own fostering, in honour of Hurin the Steadfast. For Thingol's mood was changed towards the houses of the elf-friends, 
Thereafter, messengers went north to Hithlam, bidding Morwen leave Dorlomin and return with them to Doriath. But still she would not leave the house in which she had dwelt with Hurin. And when the elves departed, she sent with them the dragon helm of Dorlomin, greatest of the heirlooms of the house of Hador. Turin grew fair and strong in Doriath, but he was marked with sorrow. For nine years he dwelt in Thingol's halls, and during that time his grief grew less, for messengers went at times to Hithlam, and returning they brought better tidings of Morwen and Nienor. But there came a day when the messengers did not return out of the north, and Thingol would send no more. Then Turin was filled with fear for his mother and his sister, and in grimness of heart he went before the king and asked for mail and sword, and he put on the dragon helm of Dorlomin, and went out to battle on the marches of Doriath, and became the companion in arms of Beleg Cuthalion. And when three years had passed, Turin returned again to Menegroth, but he came from the wild and was unkempt, and his gear and garments were wayworn. Now one there was in Doriath, of the people of the Nandor, high in the councils of the king. Seoros was his name. He had long begrudged to Turin the honour he received as Thingol's foster-son, and seated opposite to him at the board, he taunted him, saying, if the men of Hithlam are so wild and fell, of what sort are the women of that land? Do they run like deer clad only in their hair? Then Turin, in great anger, took up a drinking vessel and cast it at Seros, and he was grievously hurt. On the next day, Seros waylaid Turin as he set out from Menegroth to return to the marches. But Turin overcame him, and set him to run naked as a hunted beast through the woods. Then Searos, fleeing in terror before him, fell into the chasm of a stream, and his body was broken on a great rock in the water. But others coming saw what was done, and Mablung was among them, and he bade Turin return with him to Menegroth, and abide the judgment of the king, seeking his pardon. But Turin deeming himself now an outlaw and fearing to be held captive, refused Mablung's bidding, and turned swiftly away. And passing through the girdle of Melian, he came into the woods west of Sirion. There he joined himself to a band of such houseless and desperate men as could be found in those evil days lurking in the wild. And their hands were turned against all who came in their path, elves and men and orcs. But when all that had befallen was told and searched out before Thingol, the king pardoned Turin, holding him wronged. In that time, Beleg Strongbow returned from the north marches and came to Menegroth, seeking him. And Thingol spoke to Beleg, saying, I grieve, Cuthalion, for I took Hurin's son as my son, and so he shall remain, unless Hurin himself should return out of the shadows to claim his own. I would not have any say that Turin was driven forth unjustly into the wild, and gladly would I welcome him back, for I loved him well. And Beleg answered, I will seek Turin until I find him, and I will bring him back to Menegroth if I can. 
for I love him also. Then Beleg departed from Menegroth, and far across Beleriand he sought in vain for tidings of Turin through many perils. But Turin abode long among the outlaws, and became their captain, and he named himself Nathan the Wronged. Very warily they dwelt in the wooded lands south of Teglin. But when a year had passed since Turin fled from Doriath, Beleg came upon their lair by night. It chanced that at that time Turin was gone from the camp, and the outlaws seized Beleg and bound him and treated him cruelly, for they feared him as a spy of the king of Doriath. But Turin returning and seeing what was done was stricken with remorse for all their evil and lawless deeds, and he released Beleg, and they renewed their friendship, and Turin forswore thenceforward war or plunder against all save the servants of Angband. Then Beleg told Turin of King Thingol's pardon, and he sought to persuade him by all means that he might to return with him to Doriath, saying that there was great need of his strength and valour on the north marches of the realm. Of late the orcs have found a way down out of Tower Nufuin, he said, and they have made a road through the pass of Anach. I do not remember it, said Turin. Never did we go so far from the borders, said Beleg, but you have seen the peaks of the Chrysagrim far off, and to the east the dark walls of the Gorgoroth. Anach lies between, above the high springs of Mindeb, a hard and dangerous road. Yet many come by it now, and Dimbar, which used to be in peace, is falling under the black hand, and the men of Brethil are troubled. We are needed there. But in the pride of his heart, Turin refused the pardon of the king, and the words of Beleg were of no avail to change his mood. And he, for his part, urged Beleg to remain with him in the lands west of Sirion, but that Beleg would not do. And he said, Hard you are, Turin, and stubborn. Now the turn is mine. If you wish indeed to have the strong bow beside you, look for me in Dimbar for thither I shall return. On the next day Beleg set out, and Turin went with him a bowshot from the camp, but he said nothing. Is it farewell then, son of Hurin? said Beleg. Then Turin looked out westward, and he saw far off the great height of Amon Ruth, and unwitting of what lay before him, he answered, You have said seek me in Dimbar, but I say, Seek for me on Amon Ruth, else this is our last farewell. Then they parted in friendship, yet in sadness. Now Beleg returned to the Thousand Caves, and coming before Thingol and Melian, he told them of all that had befallen, save only of his evil handling by Turin's companions. Then Thingol sighed, and he said, What more? Would Turin have me do? Give me leave, lord, said Beleg, and I will guard him and guide him as I may. Then no man shall say that elven words are lightly spoken, nor would I wish to see so great a good run to nothing in the wild. Then Thingol gave Beleg leave to do as he would, and he said, Beleg Kuthalian, 
For many deeds you have earned my thanks, but not the least is the finding of my foster son. At this parting, ask for any gift, and I will not deny it to you. I ask then for a sword of worth, said Beleg, for the orcs come now too thick and close for a bow only, and such blade as I have is no match for their armor. Choose from all that I have, said Thingol, save only Aranruth, my own. Then Beleg chose Anglachel, and that was a sword of great worth and it was so named because it was made of iron that fell from heaven as a blazing star, and would cleave all earth-delved iron. One other sword only in Middle-earth was like to it. That sword does not enter into this tale, though it was made of the same ore by the same smith. And that smith was Eol, the dark elf, who took Arathel, Togon's sister, to wife. He gave Anglachel to Thingol as fee, which he begrudged, for leave to dwell in Nan Elmoth, but its mate, Anguirel, he kept, until it was stolen from him by Maeglin, his son. But as Thingol turned the hilt of Anglachel towards Beleg, Melian looked at the blade, and she said, There is malice in this sword. The dark heart of the smith still dwells in it, it will not love the hand it serves, neither will it abide with you long. Nonetheless, I will wield it while I may, said Beleg. Another gift I will give to you, Kuthalian, said Melian. That shall be your help in the wild, and the help also of those whom you choose. And she gave him store of lembas, the waybread of the elves, Wrapped in leaves of silver, and the threads that bound it were sealed at the knots with the seal of the queen, a wafer of white wax shaped as a single flower of Telperion. For according to the customs of the Eldalia, the keeping and giving of Lembas belonged to the queen alone. In nothing did Melian show greater favor to Turin than in this gift, for the Eldar had never before allowed men to use this waybread and seldom did so again. Then Beleg departed with these gifts from Menigroth, and went back to the north marches where he had his lodges and many friends. Then in Dimba the orcs were driven back, and Anglachel rejoiced to be unsheathed. But when the winter came, and war was stilled, suddenly his companions missed Beleg, and he returned to them no more. Now when Beleg parted from the outlaws and returned into Doriath, Turin led them away westward out of Sirion's vale, for they grew weary of their life without rest, ever watchful and in fear of pursuit, and they sought for a safer lair. And it chanced at a time of evening that they came upon three dwarves who fled before them. But one that lagged behind was seized and thrown down, and a man of the company took his bow and let fly an arrow at the others as they vanished in the dusk. Now the dwarf that they had taken was named Meme, and he pleaded for his life before Turin, and offered as ransom to lead them to his hidden halls, which none might find without his aid. Then Turin pitied Meme, and spared him, and he said, Where is your house? 
and Meme answered, High above the lands lies the house of Meme upon the great hill. Amon Ruth is that hill called now, since the elves changed all the names. Then Turin was silent, and he looked long upon the dwarf, and at last he said, You shall bring us to that place. On the next day they set out thither, following Meme to Amon Ruth. Now that hill stood upon the edge of the moorlands that rose between the vales of Sirion and Narog, and high above the stony heath it reared its crown. But its steep grey head was bare, save for the red seragon that mantled the stone. And as the men of Turin's band drew near, the sun westering broke through the clouds and fell upon the crown, and the seragon was all in flower. Then one among them said, there is blood on the hilltop. But Meme led them by secret paths up the steep slopes of Amon Ruth. And at the mouth of his cave he bowed to Turin, saying, Enter into Bar en Danweth, the house of ransom, for so it shall be called. And now there came another dwarf bearing light to greet him, and they spoke together and passed swiftly down into the darkness of the cave. But Turin followed after, and came at length to a chamber far within, lit by dim lamps hanging upon chains. There he found Meme, kneeling at a stone couch beside the wall, and he tore his beard and wailed, crying one name unceasingly. And on the couch there lay a third. But Turin entering stood beside Meme, and offered him aid. Then Meme looked up at him and said, "'You can give no aid.' For this is Chim, my son, and he is dead, pierced by an arrow. He died at sunset. Ibun, my son, has told me. Then pity rose in Turin's heart, and he said to Mim, Alas, I would recall that shaft if I could. Now, Bar en Danweth, this house shall be called in truth. And if ever I come to any wealth, I will pay you a ransom of gold for your son in token of sorrow, though it gladden your heart no more. Then Meme rose and looked long at Turin. I hear you, he said. You speak like a dwarf lord of old, and at that I marvel. Now my heart is cooled, though it is not glad, and in this house you may dwell if you will, for I will pay my ransom. So began the abiding of Turin in the hidden house of Meme upon Amon Ruth. And he walked on the greensward before the mouth of the cave, and looked out east and west and north. Northward he looked, and descried the forest of Brethil climbing green about Amon Obel in its midst. And thither his eyes were drawn ever and again. He knew not why. For his heart was set rather to the northwest, where league upon league away, on the skirts of the sky, it seemed to him that he could glimpse the mountains of shadow, the walls of his home. But at evening Turin looked west into the sunset, as the sun rode down red into the hazes above the distant coasts, and the Vale of Narog lay deep in the shadows between. In the time that followed, Turin spoke much with Meme, and sitting with him alone, he listened to his lore and the tale of his life. For Meme came of dwarves that were banished in ancient days 
from the great dwarf cities of the east, and long before the return of Morgoth, they wandered westward into Beleriand. But they became diminished in stature and in smithcraft, and they took to lives of stealth, walking with bowed shoulders and furtive steps. Before the dwarves of Nogrod and Belagost came west over the mountains, the elves of Beleriand knew not what these others were, and they hunted them and slew them. But afterwards they let them alone, and they were called Noigith Nibin, the petty dwarves in the Sindarin tongue. They loved none but themselves, and if they feared and hated the orcs, they hated the Eldar no less, and the exiles most of all. For the Noldor, they said, had stolen their lands and their homes. Long ere King Finrod Felagund came over the sea, the caves of Nargothrond were discovered by them, and by them its delving was begun, and beneath the crown of Amonruth, the bald hill, the slow hands of the petty dwarves had bored and deepened the caves through the long years that they dwelt there, untroubled by the grey elves of the woods. But now at last they had dwindled and died out of Middle-earth, all save Meme and his two sons, and Meme was old even in the reckoning of dwarves, old and forgotten. And in his halls the smithies were idle, and the axes rusted, and their name was remembered only in ancient tales of Doriath and Nargothron. But when the year drew on to midwinter, snow came down from the north heavier than they had known it in the river vales, and Amonruth was covered deep. And they said that the winters worsened in Beleriand as the power of Angband grew. Then only the hardiest dared stir abroad, and some fell sick, and all were pinched with hunger. But in the dim dusk of a winter's day there appeared suddenly among them a man, as it seemed, of great bulk and girth, cloaked and hooded in white, and he walked up to the fire without a word. And when men sprang up in fear, he laughed and threw back his hood, and beneath his wide cloak he bore a great pack, and in the light of the fire Turin looked again on the face of Beleg Huthalion. Thus Beleg returned once more to Turin, and their meeting was glad. And with him he brought out of Dimbar the dragon helm of Dorlomint, thinking that it might lift Turin's thought again above his life in the wilderness as the leader of a petty company. But still Turin would not return to Doriath, and Beleg, yielding to his love against his wisdom, remained with him and did not depart, and in that time he laboured much for the good of Turin's company. Those that were hurt or sick he tended, and gave to them the lembas of Melian. And they were quickly healed, for though the grey elves were less in skill and knowledge than the exiles from Valinor, in the ways of the life of Middle-earth they had a wisdom beyond the reach of men. And because Beleg was strong and enduring, far-sighted in mind as in eye, he came to be held in honour among the outlaws. But the hatred of Meme for the elf that had come into Barin Danweth grew ever greater, and he sat with Ibun, his son, in the deepest shadows of his house, speaking to none. But Turin paid now little heed to the dwarf, and when winter passed and spring came, they had sterner work to do. Who knows now the counsels of Morgoth? Who can measure the reach of his thought, who had been Melkor, 
mighty among the Ainur of the Great Song, and sat now a dark lord upon a dark throne in the north, weighing in his malice all the tidings that came to him, and perceiving more of the deeds and purposes of his enemies than even the wisest of them feared, save only Melian the queen. To her often the thought of Morgoth reached out, and there was foiled. And now again the might of Angband was moved, and as the long fingers of a groping hand, the forerunners of his armies probed the ways into Beleriand. Through Anach they came, and Dimbar was taken, and all the north marches of Doriath. Down the ancient road they came, that led through the long defile of Sirion, past the isle where Minas Tirith of Finrod had stood, and so through the land between Malduin and Sirion, and on through the eaves of Brethil to the crossings of Taglin. Thence the road went on into the guarded plain. But the orcs did not go far upon it as yet, for there dwelt now in the wild a terror that was hidden, and upon the red hill were watchful eyes of which they had not been warned. For Turin put on again the helm of Hador, and far and wide in Beleriand the whisper went under wood and over stream and through the passes of the hills, saying that the helm and bow that had fallen in Dimbar had arisen again beyond hope. Then many who went leaderless, dispossessed but undaunted, took heart again, and came to seek the two captains. Dor Quarthol, the land of bow and helm, was in that time named all the region between Taglin and the west march of Doriath. And Turin named himself anew Gorthal, the dread helm, and his heart was high again. In Menegroth and in the deep halls of Nargothrond, and even in the hidden realm of Gondolin, the fame of the deeds of the two captains was heard, and in Angband also they were known. Then Morgoth laughed, for now by the dragon helm was Hurin's son revealed to him again, and ere long Amon Ruth was ringed with spies. In the waning of the year, Mim the dwarf and Ibun his son went out from Baren Dunwith to gather roots in the wild for their winter store, and they were taken captive by orcs. Then for a second time, Mim promised to guide his enemies by the secret paths to his home on Amon Ruth. But yet he sought to delay the fulfillment of his promise, and demanded that Gorthal should not be slain. Then the orc captain laughed, and he said to Mim, Assuredly, Turin, son of Hurin, shall not be slain. Thus was Barin Dunwith betrayed, for the orcs came upon it by night at unawares, guided by Mim. There many of Turin's company were slain as they slept, but some, fleeing by an inner stair, came out upon the hilltop, and there they fought until they fell, and their blood flowed out upon the Saragon that mantled the stone. But a net was cast over Turin as he fought, and he was enmeshed in it, and overcome and led away. And at length, when all was silent again, Meme crept out of the shadows of his house, and as the sun rose over the mists of Sirion, he stood beside the dead men on the hilltop, but he perceived that not all those that lay there were dead, for by one his gaze was returned, and he looked in the eyes of Beleg the elf. Then with hatred long stored, 
Mim stepped up to Beleg and drew forth the sword Anglachel that lay beneath the body of one that had fallen beside him. But Beleg, stumbling up, seized back the sword and thrust it at the dwarf, and Mim in terror fled wailing from the hilltop, and Beleg cried after him, The vengeance of the house of Hador will find you yet. Now Beleg was sorely wounded, but he was mighty among the elves of Middle-earth, and he was, moreover, a master of healing. Therefore he did not die, and slowly his strength returned, and he sought in vain among the dead for Turin to bury him. But he found him not, and then he knew that Hurin's son was yet alive and taken to Angband. With little hope, Beleg departed from Amonruz and set out northward towards the crossings of Teglin, following in the track of the orcs. And he crossed over the Brithiach and journeyed through Dimbar towards the pass of Anach. And now he was not far behind them, for he went without sleeping, whereas they had tarried on their road, hunting in the lands and fearing no pursuit as they came northward. And not even in the dreadful woods of Tower Nufuin did he swerve from the trail, for the skill of Beleg was greater than any that have been in Middle-earth. But as he passed by night through that evil land, he came upon one lying asleep at the foot of a great dead tree, and Beleg, staying his steps beside the sleeper, saw that it was an elf. Then he spoke to him and gave him Lembas, and asked him what fate had brought him to that terrible place, and he named himself Gwyndor, son of Gwilin. Grieving, Beleg looked upon him, for Gwyndor was now but a bent and fearful shadow of his former shape and mood, when in the Nearnaeth Arnoidiad that lord of Nargothrond rode with rash courage to the very doors of Angband, and there was taken. For few of the Noldor whom Morgoth captured were put to death, because of their skill in forging and in mining for metals and gems, and Gwyndor was not slain, but put to labor in the mines of the north. By secret tunnels known only to themselves the mining elves might sometimes escape, and thus it came to pass that Beleg found him, spent and bewildered, in the mazes of Tower Nufuin. And Gwyndor told him that as he lay and lurked among the trees, he saw a great company of orcs passing northwards, and wolves went with them, and among them was a man whose hands were chained, and they drove him onward with whips. Very tall he was, said Gwyndor, as tall as are the men from the misty hills of Hithlam. Then Beleg told him of his own errand in Tower Nufuin, and Gwyndor sought to dissuade him from his quest, saying that he would but join Turin in the anguish that awaited him. But Beleg would not abandon Turin, and despairing himself, he aroused hope again in Gwyndor's heart. And together they went on, following the orcs, until they came out of the forest on the high slopes that ran down to the barren dunes of Anfauglith. There, within sight of the peaks of Thangorodrim, the orcs made their encampment in a bare dell as the light of day was failing, and setting wolf sentinels all about, they fell to carousing. A great storm rode up out of the west, and lightning glittered on the shadowy mountains far away, as Beleg and Gwyndor crept towards the dell. When all in the camp were sleeping, 
Beleg took his bow, and in the darkness shot the wolf sentinels one by one and silently. Then in great peril they entered in, and they found Turin fettered hand and foot and tied to a withered tree. And all about him knives that had been cast at him were embedded in the trunk, and he was senseless in a sleep of great weariness. But Beleg and Gwyndor cut the bonds that held him, and lifting him they carried him out of the dell. Yet they could bear him no further than to a thicket of thorn-trees a little way above. There they laid him down, and now the storm drew very near. Beleg drew his sword, Anglachel, and with it he cut the fetters that bound Turin. But fate was that day more strong, for the blade slipped as he cut the shackles, and Turin's foot was pricked. Then he was aroused into a sudden wakefulness of rage and fear, and seeing one bending over him with naked blade, he leapt up with a great cry, believing that orcs were come again to torment him. And grappling with him in the darkness, he seized Anglachel and slew Beleg Cuthalion, thinking him a foe. But as he stood, finding himself free and ready to sell his life dearly against imagined foes, there came a great flash of lightning above them, and in its light he looked down on Beleg's face. Then Turin stood stone still and silent, staring on that dreadful death, knowing what he had done. And so terrible was his face, lit by the lightning that flickered all about them, that Gwyndor cowered down upon the ground and dared not raise his eyes. But now in the dell beneath the orcs were aroused, and all the camp was in tumult, for they feared the thunder that came out of the west, believing that it was sent against them by the great enemies beyond the sea. Then a wind arose, and great rains fell, and torrents swept down from the heights of Tower Nufuin, and though Gwyndor cried out to Turin, warning him of their utmost peril, he made no answer, but sat unmoving and unweeping in the tempest beside the body of Beleg Cuthalion. When morning came, the storm was passed away eastward over Lothlan, and the sun of autumn rose hot and bright. But believing that Turin would have fled far away from that place, and all trace of his flight be washed away, the orcs departed in haste without longer search, and far off Gwyndor saw them marching away over the steaming sands of Anfaugith. Thus it came to pass that they returned to Morgoth empty-handed, and left behind them the son of Hurin, who sat, crazed and unwitting, on the slopes of Tower Nufuin, bearing a burden heavier than their bonds. Then Gwyndor roused Turin to aid him in the burial of Beleg, and he rose as one that walked in sleep, and together they laid Beleg in a shallow grave, and placed beside him Belthronding his great bow that was made of black yew-wood. But the dread sword, Anglachel, Gwyndor took, saying that it were better that it should take vengeance on the servants of Morgoth than lie useless in the earth. And he took also the Lembas of Melian to strengthen them in the wild. Thus ended Beleg Strongbow, truest of friends, greatest in skill of all that harboured in the woods of Beleriand in the elder days, at the hand of him whom he most loved. And that grief was graven on the face of Turin, and never faded. But courage and strength 
were renewed in the elf of Nargothrond, and departing from Tower Nufuin, he led Turin far away. Never once, as they wandered together on long and grievous paths, did Turin speak, and he walked as one without wish or purpose, while the year waned and winter drew on over the northern lands. But Gwyndor was ever beside him to guard him and guide him. And thus they passed westward over Sirion, and came at length to Aethel Ivrin, the springs whence Narag rose beneath the mountains of shadow. There Gwyndor spoke to Turin, saying, Awake, Turin, son of Hurin Thalion. On Ivrin's lake is endless laughter. She is fed from crystal fountains unfailing, and guarded from defilement by Ulmo, lord of waters, who wrought her beauty in ancient days. Then Turin knelt and drank from that water, and suddenly he cast himself down, and his tears were unloosed at last, and he was healed of his madness. There he made a song for Beleg, and he named it Lea Ku Beleg, the Song of the Great Bow, singing it aloud, heedless of peril. And Gwyndor gave the sword Anglachel into his hands, and Turin knew that it was heavy and strong and had great power, but its blade was black and dull and its edges blunt. Then Gwyndor said, This is a strange blade, and unlike any that I have seen in Middle-earth. It mourns for Beleg even as you do. But be comforted, for I return to Nargothrond of the house of Finarfin, and you shall come with me and be healed and renewed. Who are you? said Turin. A wandering elf, a thrall escaped, whom Beleg met and comforted, said Gwyndor. Yet once I was Gwyndor, son of Gwilin, the lord of Nargothrond, until I went to the Nyanaeth Arnoidiad, and was enslaved in Angband. Then have you seen Hurin, son of Galdor, the warrior of Dorlomin? said Turin. I have not seen him, said Gwyndor. But rumour of him runs through Angband that he still defies Morgoth, and Morgoth has laid a curse upon him and all his kin. That I do believe, said Turin. And now they arose, and departing from Aethel Ivrin, they journeyed southward along the banks of Narog, until they were taken by scouts of the elves, and brought as prisoners to the hidden stronghold. Thus did Turin come to Nargothrond. At first his own people did not know Gwyndor, who went out young and strong, and returned now seeming as one of the aged among mortal men, because of his torments and his labours. But Findwilas, daughter of Orodreth the king, knew him and welcomed him, for she had loved him before the near Nath, and so greatly did Gwyndor love her beauty that he named her Feilivrin, which is the gleam of the sun on the pools of Ivrin. For Gwyndor's sake, Turin was admitted with him into Nargothrond, and he dwelt there in honour. But when Gwyndor would tell his name, Turin checked him, saying, I am Agarwain, the son of Umarth, which is the blood-stained son of ill-fate, a hunter in the woods. And the elves of Nargothrond questioned him no more. In the time that followed, Turin grew high in favour with Orodreth, and well-nigh all hearts were turned to him in Nargothrond, 
for he was young and only now reached his full manhood. And he was in truth the son of Morwen Elethwin to look upon, dark-haired and pale-skinned, with grey eyes, and his face more beautiful than any other among mortal men in the elder days. His speech and bearing were that of the ancient kingdom of Doriath, and even among the elves he might be taken for one from the great houses of the Noldor. Therefore, many called him Adanathel, the elf-man. The sword Anglachel was forged anew for him by cunning smiths of Nargothrond, and though ever black, its edges shone with pale fire, and he named it Gurthang, Iron of Death. So great was his prowess and skill in warfare on the confines of the guarded plain that he himself became known as Mormegil, the Black Sword. And the elves said, The Mormegil cannot be slain save by mischance or an evil arrow from afar. Therefore they gave him dwarf mail to guard him. And in a grim mood he found also in the armories a dwarf mask all gilded, and he put it on before battle and his enemies fled before his face. Then the heart of Findwilas was turned from Gwyndor, and against her will her love was given to Turin. But Turin did not perceive what had befallen, and being torn in heart, Findwilas became sorrowful, and she grew wan and silent. But Gwyndor sat in dark thought, and on a time he spoke to Findwilas, saying, Daughter of the house of Finarfin, let no grief lie between us. For though Morgoth has laid my life in ruin, you still I love. Go whither love leads you, yet beware. It is not fitting that the elder children of Ilovatar should wed with the younger, nor is it wise, for they are brief and soon pass to leave us in widowhood while the world lasts. Neither will fate suffer it, unless it be once or twice only, for some high cause of doom that we do not perceive, but this man is not barren. A doom indeed lies on him, as seeing eyes may well read in him, but a dark doom, enter not into it. And if you will, your love shall betray you to bitterness and death, for hearken to me, though he be indeed a Garwain, son of Ulmarth. His right name is Túrin, son of Húrin, whom Morgoth holds in Angband, and whose kin he has cursed. Doubt not the power of Morgoth Bauglir. Is it not written in me? Then Findwilas sat long in thought, but at the last she said only, Túrin, son of Húrin, loves me not, nor will. Now when Túrin learned from Findwilas of what had passed, he was wrathful, and he said to Gwyndor, In love I hold you for rescue and safekeeping, but now you have done ill to me, friend, to betray my right name and call my doom upon me, from which I would lie hid. But Gwyndor answered, The doom lies in yourself, not in your name. When it became known to Orodreth that the Mormegil was in truth the son of Hurin Thalion, he gave him great honour, and Turin became mighty among the people of Nargothrond. But he had no liking for their manner of warfare, of ambush and stealth and secret arrow, 
and he yearned for brave strokes and battle in the open, and his counsels weighed with the king ever the longer the more. In those days the elves of Nargothrond forsook their secrecy, and went openly to battle, and great store of weapons were made. And by the counsel of Turin, the Noldor built a mighty bridge over the Narog, from the doors of Felagund, for the swifter passage of their arms. Then the servants of Angband were driven out of all the land between Narog and Sirion eastward, and westward to the Nenning, and the desolate Phallas. And though Gwyndor spoke ever against Turin in the council of the king, holding it an ill policy, he fell into dishonour, and none heeded him, for his strength was small, and he was no longer forward in arms. Thus Nargothrond was revealed to the wrath and hatred of Morgoth, but still at Durin's prayer his true name was not spoken, and though the fame of his deeds came into Doriath and to the ears of Thingol, rumour spoke only of the black sword of Nargothrond. In that time of respite and hope, when, because of the deeds of the Mormegil, the power of Morgoth was stemmed west of Sirion, Morwen fled at last from Dor Lomin with Nianor her daughter, and adventured the long journey to Thingol's halls. There new grief awaited her, for she found Turin gone, and to Doriath there had come no tidings since the dragon helm had vanished from the lands west of Sirion. But Morwen remained in Doriath with Nianor as guests of Thingol and Melian, and were treated with honour. Now it came to pass, when four hundred and ninety-five years had passed since the rising of the moon in the spring of the year, there came to Nargothrond two elves named Gelmir and Arminas. They were of Angrod's people, but since the Dagor Bragolach, they dwelt in the south with Círdan the shipwright. From their far journeys they brought tidings of a great mustering of orcs and evil creatures, under the eaves of Eredwethrin and in the pass of Sirion, and they told also that Ulmo had come to Círdan, giving warning that great peril drew nigh to Nargothrond. Hear the words of the Lord of Waters, said they to the king. Thus he spoke to Círdan the shipwright. The evil of the north has defiled the springs of Sirion, and my power withdraws from the fingers of the flowing waters. But a worse thing is yet to come forth. Say therefore to the lord of Nargothrond, Shut the doors of the fortress and go not abroad. Cast the stones of your pride into the loud river, that the creeping evil may not find the gate. Orodreth was troubled by the dark words of the messengers, but Turin would by no means hearken to these counsels, and least of all would he suffer the great bridge to be cast down, for he was become proud and stern, and would order all things as he wished. Soon afterwards, Handir, lord of Brethil, was slain, for the orcs invaded his land, and Handir gave them battle. But the men of Brethil were worsted, and driven back into their woods, and in the autumn of the year, biding his hour, Morgoth loosed upon the people of Narog the great host that he had long prepared. And Glaurung the Uruloki passed over Anfauglith, and came thence into the north vales of Sirion, and there did great evil. Under the shadows of Eredwethrin 
he defiled the Aethel Ivrin. And thence he passed into the realm of Nargothrond, and burned the Talath Dirnan, the guarded plain between Narog and Taglin. Then the warriors of Nargothrond went forth, and tall and terrible on that day looked Turin, and the heart of the host was upheld as he rode on the right hand of Orodreth. But greater far was the host of Morgoth than any scouts had told, and none but Turin, defended by his dwarf mask, could withstand the approach of Glaurung. And the elves were driven back and pressed by the orcs into the field of Tumhalad, between Ginglith and Narog, and there they were penned. On that day all the pride and host of Nargothrond withered away. And Orodreth was slain in the forefront of the battle, and Gwyndor, son of Gwilin, was wounded to the death. But Turin came to his aid, and all fled before him, and he bore Gwyndor out of the rout, and escaping into a wood, there laid him on the grass. Then Gwyndor said to Turin, Let bearing pay for bearing, but ill-fated was mine, and vain is thine, for my body is marred beyond healing, and I must leave Middle-earth. And though I love thee, son of Hurin, yet I rue the day that I took thee from the orcs. But for thy prowess and thy pride still I should have love and life, and Nargothron should yet stand a while. Now if thou love me, leave me. Haste thee to Nargothrond, and save Findwilas, and this last I say to thee, she alone stands between thee and thy doom. If thou fail her, it shall not fail to find thee. Farewell. Then Turin sped back to Nargothrond, mustering such of the rout as he met with on the way, and the leaves fell from the trees in a great wind as they went for the autumn was passing to a dire winter. But the host of the orcs and Glaurung the dragon were there before him, and they came suddenly, ere those that were left on guard were aware of what had befallen on the field of Tumhalad. In that day the bridge over Narog proved an evil, for it was great and mightily made, and could not swiftly be destroyed, and the enemy came readily over the deep river, and Glaurung came in full fire against the doors of Felagund, and overthrew them, and passed within. And even as Turin came up, the dreadful sack of Nargothrond was well nigh achieved. The orcs had slain or driven off all that remained in arms, and were even then ransacking the great halls and chambers, plundering and destroying. But those of the women and maidens that were not burned or slain they had herded on the terraces before the doors as slaves to be taken into Morgoth's thraldom. Upon this ruin and woe Turin came, and none could withstand him, or would not, though he struck down all before him, and passed over the bridge and hewed his way towards the captives. And now he stood alone, for the few that followed him had fled. But in that moment Glaurung issued from the gaping doors, and lay behind between Turin and the bridge. Then suddenly he spoke by the evil spirit that was in him, saying, Hail, son of Hurin, well met. Then Turin sprang about and strode against him, 
and the edges of Gurthang shone as with flame. But Glaurung withheld his blast, and opened wide his serpent eyes and gazed upon Turim. Without fear, Turin looked into them, as he raised up the sword, and straightway he fell under the binding spell of the lidless eyes of the dragon, and was halted moveless. Then for a long time he stood as one graven of stone, and they too were alone, silent before the doors of Nargothrond. But Glaurung spoke again, taunting Turin, and he said, Evil! Have been all thy ways, son of Hurin. Thankless fosterling, outlaw, slayer of thy friend, thief of love, usurper of Nargothrond, captain foolhardy and deserter of thy kin. As thralls thy mother and thy sister live in Dorlomin, in misery and want. Thou art arrayed as a prince, but they go in rags, and for thee they yearn. But thou carest not for that. Glad may thy father be to learn that he hath such a son, as learn he shall. Turin, being under the spell of Glaurung, hearkened to his words, and he saw himself as in a mirror misshapen by malice and loathed that which he saw. And while he was yet held by the eyes of the dragon in torment of mind, and could not stir, the orcs drove away the herded captives, and they passed nigh to Turin, and crossed over the bridge. Among them was Findwilas, and she cried out to Turin as she went. But not until her cries and the wailing of the captives was lost upon the northward road, did Glaurung release Turin, and he might not stop his ears against that voice that haunted him after. Then suddenly Glaurung withdrew his glance and waited, and Turin stirred slowly as one waking from a hideous dream. Then coming to himself, he sprang upon the dragon with a cry. But Glaurung laughed, saying, If thou wilt be slain, I will slay thee gladly. But small help will that be to Morwen and Nianor. No heed didst thou give to the cries of the elf woman. Wilt thou deny also the bond of thy blood? But Turin, drawing back his sword, stabbed at the dragon's eyes, and Glaurung, coiling back swiftly, towered above him and said, Nay, at least thou art valiant beyond all whom I have met. And they lie who say that we, of our part, do not honour the valour of foes. See now, I offer thee freedom. Go to thy kin if thou canst. Get thee gone. And if elf or man be left to make tale of these days, then surely in scorn they will name thee, if thou spurnest this gift. Then Turin, being yet bemused by the eyes of the dragon, as were he treating with a foe that could know pity, believed the words of Glaurung, and turning away he sped over the bridge. But as he went, Glaurung spoke behind him, saying in a fell voice, Haste thee now, son of Hurin, to Dordlomen. 
or perhaps the orcs shall come before thee once again. And if thou tarry for Finduilas, then never shalt thou see Morwen again, and never at all shalt thou see Neonor thy sister, and they will curse thee. But Turin passed away on the northward road, and Glaurung laughed once more, for he had accomplished the errand of his master. Then he turned to his own pleasure, and sent forth his blast, and burned all about him. But all the orcs that were busy in the sack he routed forth, and drove them away, and denied them their plunder, even to the last thing of worth. The bridge then he broke down, and cast into the foam of Narog, and being thus secure, he gathered all the hoard and riches of Felagund, and heaped them, and lay upon them in the innermost hall, and rested a while. And Turin hastened along the ways to the north, through the lands now desolate, between Narog and Teglin, and the fell winter came down to meet him, for in that year snow fell ere autumn was past, and spring came late and cold. Ever it seemed to him as he went, that he heard the cries of Findwilas, calling his name by wood and hill, and great was his anguish. But his heart being hot with the lies of Glaurung, and seeing ever in his mind the orcs burning the house of Hurin, or putting Morwen and Neonor to torment, he held on his way, and turned never aside. At last, worn by haste and the long road, for forty leagues and more had he journeyed without rest, he came with the first ice of winter to the pools of Ivrin, where before he had been healed. But they were now but a frozen mire, and he could drink there no more. Thus he came hardly by the passes of Dorlomin, through bitter snows from the north, and found again the land of his childhood. Bare and bleak it was, and Morwen was gone. Her house stood empty, broken, and cold, and no living thing dwelt nigh. Therefore Turin departed, and came to the house of Broda the Easterling, he that had to wife Eärin, Hurin's kinswoman. And there he learned of an old servant that Morwen was long gone, for she had fled with Neonor out of Dorlomen, none but Eärin knew where. Then Turin strode to Broda's table, and seizing him, he drew his sword, and demanded that he be told whither Morwen had gone. And Eärin declared to him that she went to Doriath to seek her son. For the lands were freed then from evil, she said, by the black sword of the south, who now has fallen, they say. Then Turin's eyes were opened, and the last threads of Glaurung's spell were loosed, and for anguish and wrath at the lies that had deluded him, and hatred of the oppressors of Morwen, a black rage seized him, and he slew Broda in his hall, and other Easterlings that were his guests. Thereafter he fled out into the winter, a hunted man, but he was aided by some that remained of Hador's people, and knew the ways of the wild, and with them he escaped through the falling snow, and came to an outlaw's refuge in the southern mountains of Dorlomin. Thence Turin passed again from the land of his childhood, and returned to Sirion's vale. His heart was bitter, for to Dorlomin he had brought only greater woe upon the remnants of his people, and they were glad of his going. 
and this comfort alone he had, that by the prowess of the black sword the ways to Doriath had been laid open to Morwen. And he said in his thought, Then those deeds wrought not evil to all, and where else might I have better bestowed my kin, even had I come sooner? For if the girdle of Melian be broken, then last hope is ended. Nay, it is better indeed as things be, for a shadow I cast wheresoever I come. Let Melian keep them, and I will leave them in peace, unshadowed for a while. Now Turin, coming down from Ered Wethrin, sought for Findwilas in vain, roaming the woods beneath the mountains, wild and wary as a beast, and he waylaid all the roads that went north to the pass of Sirion. But he was too late for all the trails had grown old or were washed away by the winter. Yet thus it was that passing southwards down Teglin, Turin came upon some of the men of Brethil that were surrounded by orcs, and he delivered them, for the orcs fled from Gurthang. He named himself Wild Man of the Woods, and they besought him to come and dwell with them. But he said that he had an errand yet unachieved to seek Findwilas, Orodreth's daughter of Nargothrond. Then Dorlas, the leader of those woodmen, told the grievous tidings of her death. For the men of Brethil had waylaid at the crossings of Teglin the orc host that led the captives of Nargothrond, hoping to rescue them. But the orcs had at once cruelly slain their prisoners, and Findwilas they pinned to a tree with a spear. So she died, saying at the last, Tell the Mormagil that Findwilas is here. Therefore they had laid her on a mound near that place, and named it Howth in Eleth, the mound of the elf-maid. Turin bade them lead him thither, and there he fell down into a darkness of grief that was near death. Then Dorlas by his black sword, the fame whereof had come even into the deeps of Brethil, and by his quest of the king's daughter, knew that this wild man was indeed the Mormegil of Nargothrond, whom rumour said was the son of Hurin of Dorlomin. Therefore the woodmen lifted him up and bore him away to their homes. Now those were set in a stockade upon a high place in the forest Efel Brandir upon Amon Obel. For the people of Haleth were now dwindled by war, and Brandir, son of Handir, who ruled them, was a man of gentle mood, and lame also from childhood, and he trusted rather in secrecy than in deeds of war to save them from the power of the north. Therefore he feared the tidings that Dorlas brought, and when he beheld the face of Turin as he lay on the bier, a cloud of foreboding lay on his heart. Nonetheless, being moved by his woe, he took him into his own house and tended him, for he had skill in healing. And with the beginning of spring, Turin cast off his darkness and grew hale again. And he arose, and he thought that he would remain in Brethil hidden and put his shadow behind him, forsaking the past. He took, therefore, a new name, Turambar, which in the high elven speech signified Master of Doom. And he besought the woodmen to forget that he was a stranger among them, or ever bore any other name. Nonetheless, he would not wholly leave deeds of war, 
for he could not endure that the orcs should come to the crossings of Teglin, or draw nigh to Howth and Eleth. And he made that a place of dread for them, so that they shunned it. But he laid his black sword by, and wielded rather the bow and the spear. Now new tidings came to Doriath concerning Nargothrond, for some that had escaped from the defeat in the sack, and had survived the fell winter in the wild, came at last to Thingol seeking refuge, and the march wardens brought them to the king, and some said that all the enemy had withdrawn northwards, and others that Glaurung abode still in the halls of Felagund, and some said that the Mormigil was slain, and others that he was cast under a spell by the dragon, and dwelt there yet as one changed to stone. But all declared that it was known to many in Nargothrond ere the end that the Mormigil was none other than Turin, son of Hurin, of Dor Lomin. Then Morwen was distraught, and refusing the counsel of Melian, she rode forth alone into the wild to seek her son, or some true tidings of him. Thingol therefore sent Mablong after her with many hardy march wards to find her and guard her, and to learn what news they might. But Neonor was bidden to remain behind. Yet the fearlessness of her house was hers, and in an evil hour, in hope that Morwen would return when she saw that her daughter would go with her into peril, Neonor disguised herself as one of Thingol's people, and went with that ill-fated riding. They came upon Morwen by the banks of Sirion, and Mablung besought her to return to Menegroth. But she was fay, and would not be persuaded. Then also the coming of Neonor was revealed, and despite Morwen's command she would not go back, and Mablung perforce brought them to the hidden ferries at the mirrors of twilight, and they passed over Sirion. And after three days' journeying they came to Amon Ethir, the hill of spies, that long ago Felagund had caused to be raised with great labour a league before the doors of Nargothrond. There Mablung set a guard of riders about Morwen and her daughter, and forbade them to go further. But he, seeing from the hill no sign of any enemy, went down with his scouts to the Narog as stealthily as they could go. But Glaurung was aware of all that they did, and he came forth in heat of wrath, and lay into the river, and a vast vapour and a foul reek went up, in which Mablung and his company were blinded and lost. Then Glaurung passed east over Narog. Seeing the onset of the dragon, the guards upon Amon Ethir sought to lead Morwen and Nianor away, and fly with them with all speed back eastwards. But the wind bore the blank mists upon them, and their horses were maddened by the dragon stench, and were ungovernable, and ran this way and that, so that some were dashed against trees and were slain, and others were borne far away. Thus the ladies were lost, and of Morwen indeed no sure tidings came ever to Doriath after. But Neonor, being thrown by her steed yet unhurt, made her way back to Amon Ethir, there to await Mablung, and came thus above the reek into the sunlight, and looking westward, she stared straight into the eyes of Glaurung, whose head lay upon the hilltop. Her will strove with him for a while, 
but he put forth his power. And having learned who she was, he constrained her to gaze into his eyes, and he laid a spell of utter darkness and forgetfulness upon her, so that she could remember nothing that had ever befallen her, nor her own name, nor the name of any other thing. And for many days she could neither hear nor see, nor stir by her own will. Then Glaurung left her standing alone upon Amon Ethir, and went back to Nargothrond. Now Mablong, who greatly daring had explored the halls of Felagund when Glaurung left them, fled from them at the approach of the dragon, and returned to Amon Ethir. The sun sank and night fell as he climbed the hill, and he found none there save Neonor, standing alone under the stars as an image of stone. No word she spoke or heard, but would follow if he took up her hand. Therefore, in great grief, he led her away, though it seemed to him vain, for they were both like to perish succorless in the wild. But they were found by three of Mablung's companions, and slowly they journeyed northward and eastward towards the fences of the land of Doriath beyond Sirion, and the guarded bridge nigh to the inflowing of Esgalduin. Slowly the strength of Neonor returned as they drew nearer to Doriath, but still she could not speak or hear, and walked blindly as she was led. But even as they drew near the fences, at last she closed her staring eyes and would sleep. And they laid her down and rested also unheedfully, for they were utterly outworn. There they were assailed by an orc band, such as now roamed often as nigh the fences of Doriath as they dared. But Neonor in that hour recovered hearing and sight, and being awakened by the cries of the orcs, she sprang up in terror and fled ere they could come to her. Then the orcs gave chase, and the elves after, and they overtook the orcs and slew them ere they could harm her. But Neonor escaped them, for she fled as in a madness of fear, swifter than a deer, and tore off all her clothing as she ran, until she was naked, and she passed out of their sight, running northward, and though they sought her long, they found her not, nor any trace of her. And at last Mablong, in despair, returned to Menegroth and told the tidings. Then Thingol and Melian were filled with grief. But Mablung went forth, and sought long in vain for tidings of Morwen and Neonor. But Neonor ran on into the woods until she was spent, and then fell and slept and awoke. And it was a sunlit morning, and she rejoiced in light as it were a new thing, and all things else that she saw seemed new and strange, for she had no names for them. Nothing did she remember save a darkness that lay behind her and a shadow of fear. Therefore she went warily as a hunted beast and became famished, for she had no food and knew not how to seek it. But coming at last to the crossings of Taglin, she passed over, seeking the shelter of the great trees of Brethil, for she was afraid, and it seemed to her that the darkness was overtaking her again from which she had fled. But it was a great storm of thunder that came up from the south, and in terror she cast herself down upon the mound of Howth and Eleth, stopping her ears from the thunder. But the rain smote her and drenched her, and she lay like a wild beast that is dying. There Turambar found her, 
as he came to the crossings of Taglin, having heard rumour of orcs that roamed near, and seeing in a flare of lightning the body, as it seemed, of a slain maiden lying upon the mound of Findwilas, he was stricken to the heart. But the woodmen lifted her up, and Turambar cast his cloak about her, and they took her to a lodge nearby, and warmed her and gave her food. And as soon as she looked upon Turambar, she was comforted, for it seemed to her that she had found at last something that she had sought in her darkness, and she would not be parted from him. But when he asked her concerning her name and her kin and her misadventure, then she became troubled as a child that perceives that something is demanded but cannot understand what it may be, and she wept. Therefore Turambar said, Do not be troubled, the tale shall wait. But I will give you a name, and I will call you Niniel, Tear Maiden. And at that name she shook her head and said, Niniel. That was the first word she spoke after her darkness, and it remained her name among the woodmen ever after. On the next day they bore her towards Efel Brandir. But when they came to Dimrost, the rainy stair, where the tumbling stream of Celebros fell towards Teglin, a great shuddering came upon her, wherefore afterwards that place was called Nen-Girith, the shuddering water. Ere she came to the home of the woodmen upon Amon-Obel, she was sick of a fever, and long she lay thus tended by the women of Brethil, and they taught her language as to an infant. But ere the autumn came, by the skill of Brandia, she was healed of her sickness, and she could speak, but nothing did she remember of the time before she was found by Turambar on the mound of Howth and Eleth. And Brandir loved her, but all her heart was given to Turambar. In that time the woodmen were not troubled by the orcs, and Turambar went not to war, and there was peace in Brethil. His heart turned to Niniel, and he asked her in marriage, but for that time she delayed in spite of her love. For Brandir foreboded he knew not what, and sought to restrain her, rather for her sake than his own, or rivalry with Turambar. And he revealed to her that Turambar was Turin, son of Hurin, and though she knew not the name, a shadow fell upon her mind. But when three years were passed since the sack of Nargothrond, Turambar asked Niniel again, and vowed that now he would wed her, or else go back to war in the wild. And Niniel took him with joy, and they were wedded at the midsummer, and the woodmen of Brethil made a great feast. But ere the end of the year Glaurung sent orcs of his dominion against Brethil, and Turambar sat at home deedless, for he had promised to Niniel that he would go to battle only if their homes were assailed but the woodmen were worsted, and Dorlas upbraided him that he would not aid the people that he had taken for his own. Then Turambar arose and brought forth again his black sword, and he gathered a great company of the men of Brethil, and they defeated the orcs utterly. But Glaurung heard tidings that the black sword was in Brethil, and he pondered what he heard, devising new evil. In the spring of the year after, Niniel conceived, and she became one and sad. 
and at the same time there came to Efel Brandir the first rumours that Glaurung had issued from Nargothrond. Then Turambar sent out scouts far afield, for now he ordered things as he would, and few gave heed to Brandir. As it drew near to summer, Glaurung came to the borders of Brethil, and lay near the west shores of Teglin. And then there was great fear among the woodfolk, for it was now plain that the great worm would assail them and ravage their land, and not pass by, returning to Angband as they had hoped. They sought, therefore, the counsel of Turambar, and he counseled them that it was vain to go against Glaurung with all their force, for only by cunning and good fortune could they defeat him. He offered, therefore, himself to seek the dragon on the borders of the land, and bade the rest of the people to remain at Eiffel Brandir, but to prepare for flight. For if Glaurung had the victory, he would come first to the woodmen's homes to destroy them, and they could not hope to withstand him. But if they then scattered far and wide, then many might escape, for Glaurung would not take up his dwelling in Brethil, and would return soon to Nargothrond. Then Turambar asked for companions willing to aid him in his peril, and Dorla stood forth, but no others. Therefore Dorlas upbraided the people and spoke scorn of Brandir, who could not play the part of the heir of the house of Harleth. And Brandir was shamed before his people and was bitter at heart. But Hunthor, kinsman of Brandir, asked his leave to go in his stead. Then Turambar said farewell to Niniel, and she was filled with fear and foreboding, and their parting was sorrowful. But Turambar set out with his two companions, and went to Nengirith. Then Niniel, being unable to endure her fear, and unwilling to wait in the Ebfell tidings of Turambar's fortune, set forth after him, and a great company went with her. At this, Brandir was filled all the more with dread, and he sought to dissuade her and the people that would go with her from this rashness, but they heeded him not. Therefore he renounced his lordship and all love for the people that had scorned him, and having naught left but his love for Niniel, he girt himself with a sword and went after her, but being lame he fell far behind. Now Turumbar came to Nengirith at sundown, and there he learned that Glaurung lay on the brink of the high shores of Teglin, and was like to move when night fell. Then he called those tidings good, for the dragon lay at Cabed in Arras, where the river ran in a deep and narrow gorge that a hunted deer might overleap, and Turambar thought that he would seek no further but would attempt to pass over the gorge. Therefore he purposed to creep down at dusk and descend into the ravine under night and cross over the wild water, and then to climb up the further cliff and so come to the dragon beneath his guard. This counsel he took, but the heart of Dorlas failed when they came to the races of Teglin in the dark, and he dared not attempt the perilous crossing, but drew back and lurked in the woods, burdened with shame. Turambar and Hunthor nonetheless crossed over in safety, for the loud roaring of the water drowned all other sounds, and Glaurung slept. But ere the middle night the dragon roused, and with a great noise and blast, 
cast his forward part across the chasm and began to draw his bulk after. Turambar and Hunthor were well-nigh overcome by the heat and the stench as they sought in haste for a way up to come at Glaurung, and Hunthor was slain by a great stone that was dislodged from on high by the passage of the dragon and smote him on the head and cast him into the river. So he ended, of the house of Haleth, not the least valiant. Then Turambar summoned all his will and courage, and climbed the cliff alone, and came beneath the dragon. Then he drew Gurthang, and with all the might of his arm, and of his hate, he thrust it into the soft belly of the worm, even up to the hilts. But when Glaurung felt his death-pang, he screamed, and in his dreadful throw he heaved up his bulk and hurled himself across the chasm, and there lay lashing and coiling in his agony. And he set all in a blaze about him, and beat all to ruin, until at last his fires died, and he lay still. Now Gurthang had been wrested from Turambar's hand in the throw of Glaurung, and it clave to the belly of the dragon. Turambar therefore crossed the water once more, desiring to recover his sword and to look upon his foe. And he found him stretched at his length, and rolled upon one side, and the hilts of Gurthang stood in his belly. Then Turambar seized the hilts and set his foot upon the belly, and cried in mockery of the dragon and his words at Nargothrond, Hail, worm of Morgoth, well met again! Die now, and the darkness have thee. Thus is Turin, son of Hurin, avenged. Then he wrenched out the sword. But a spout of black blood followed it, and fell on his hand, and the venom burned it. And thereupon Glaurung opened his eyes and looked upon Turambar with such malice that it smote him as a blow. And by that stroke, and the anguish of the venom, he fell into a dark swoon and lay as one dead, and his sword was beneath him. The screams of Glaurung rang in the woods and came to the people that waited at Nengirith. And when those that looked forth heard them and saw afar the ruin and burning that the dragon made, they deemed that he had triumphed and was destroying those that assailed him. And Niniel sat and shuddered beside the falling water, and at the voice of Glaurung, her darkness crept upon her again, so that she could not stir from that place of her own will. Even so Brandir found her, for he came to Nengirith at last, limping wearily. And when he heard that the dragon had crossed the river and had beaten down his foes, his heart yearned towards Niniel in pity. Yet he thought also, Turambar is dead, but Niniel lives. Now it may be that she will come with me, and I will lead her away, and so we shall escape from the dragon together. After a while, therefore, he stood by Niniel, and he said, Come, it is time to go. If you will, I will lead you. Then he took her hand, and she arose silently, and followed him, and in the darkness none saw them go. But as they went down the path to the crossings, the moon rose and cast a grey light on the land, and Niniel said, Is this the way? 
and Brandir answered that he knew no way save to flee, as they might from Glaurum, and escape into the wild. But Ninil said, The black sword was my beloved and my husband. To seek him only do I go. What else could you think? And she sped on before him. Thus she came towards the crossings of Taglin, and beheld Howth en Eleth in the white moonlight, and great dread came on her. Then, with a cry, she turned away, casting off her cloak, and fled southward along the river, and her white raiment shone in the moon. Thus Brandir saw her from the hillside, and turned to cross her path. But he was still behind her when she came to the ruin of Glaurung, nigh the brink of Cabed in Arras. There she saw the dragon lying, but she heeded him not, for a man lay beside him, and she ran to Turamba and called his name in vain. Then, finding that his hand was burned, she washed it with tears and bound it about with a strip of her raiment, and she kissed him and cried on him again to awake. Thereat Glaurung stirred for the last time ere he died, and he spoke with his last breath, saying, Hail, Nianor, daughter of Hurin. We meet again ere the end. I give thee joy that thou hast found thy brother at last, and now thou shalt know him. A stabber in the dark, treacherous to foes, faithless to friends, and a curse unto his kin, Turin, son of Hurin. But the worst of all his deeds thou shalt feel in thyself. Then Glaurung died, and the veil of his malice was taken from her, and she remembered all the days of her life. Looking down upon Turin, she cried, Farewell, O twice-beloved. A Turin Turamba, Turan Ambartanan. Master of doom by doom mastered, O happy to be dead. Then Brandir, who had heard all, standing stricken upon the edge of ruin, hastened towards her. But she ran from him, distraught with horror and anguish, and coming to the brink of Gabed and Arras, she cast herself over and was lost in the wild water. Then Brandir came and looked down and turned away in horror, and though he no longer desired life, he could not seek death in that roaring water, and thereafter no man looked again upon Cabed in Arras, nor would any beast or bird come there, nor any tree grow. And it was named Cabed Neiramath, the Leap of Dreadful Doom. But Brandir made his way back to Nengirith to bring tidings to the people, and he met Dorlas in the woods and slew him, the first blood that ever he had spilled, and the last. And he came to Nengirith, and men cried to him, Have you seen her? For Niniel is gone. And he answered, Niniel is gone forever. The dragon is dead, and Turamba is dead, and those tidings are good. The people murmured at these words, saying that he was crazed, but Brandir said, Hear me to the end. 
Niniel the Beloved, is also dead. She cast herself into Teglin, desiring life no more, for she learned that she was none other than Nianor, daughter of Hurin of Dorlomin, ere her forgetfulness came upon her, and that Turambar was her brother, Turin, son of Hurin. But even as he ceased and the people wept, Turin himself came before them. For when the dragon died, his swoon left him, and he fell into a deep sleep of weariness. But the cold of the night troubled him, and the hilts of Gurthang drove into his side, and he awoke. Then he saw that one had tended his hand, and he wondered much that he was left nonetheless to lie upon the cold ground. And he called, and hearing no answer, he went in search of aid, for he was weary and sick. But when the people saw him, they drew back in fear, thinking that it was his unquiet spirit, and he said, Nay, be glad, for the dragon is dead, and I live. But wherefore have you scorned my counsel and come into peril? And where is Niniel? For her I would see, and surely you did not bring her from her home. Then Brandir told him that it was so, and Niniel was dead. But the wife of Dorlas cried out, Nay, Lord, he is crazed, for he came here saying that you were dead, and he called it good tidings. But you live. Then Turambar was wrathful, and believed that all Brandir said or did was done in malice towards himself and Niniel, begrudging their love. And he spoke evilly to Brandir, calling him Clubfoot. Then Brandir reported all that he had heard, and named Niniel Nianor, daughter of Hurin. And he cried out upon Turambar with the last words of Glaurung, that he was a curse unto his kin and to all that harboured him. Then Turambar fell into a fury, for in those words he heard the feet of his doom overtaking him, and he charged Brandir with leading Niniel to her death, and publishing with delight the lies of Glaurung, if indeed he devised them not himself. Then he cursed Brandir and slew him, and he fled from the people into the woods. But after a while his madness left him, and he came to Howth and Eleth, and there he sat and pondered all his deeds. And he cried upon Findwilas to bring him counsel, for he knew not whether he would do now more ill to go to Doriath to seek his kin, or to forsake them forever and seek death in battle. And even as he sat there, Mablung with a company of grey elves came over the crossings of Teglin, and he knew Turin, and hailed him, and was glad indeed to find him yet living, for he had learned of the coming forth of Glaurung, and that his path led to Brethil, and also he had heard report that the black sword of Nargothrond now dwelt there. Therefore he came to give warning to Turin, and help if need be. But Turin said, you come too late. The dragon is dead. Then they marveled and gave him great praise, but he cared nothing for it and said, This only I ask. Give me news of my kin, for in Dorlomin I learned that they had gone to the hidden kingdom. Then Mablung was dismayed, but needs must tell to Turin how Morwen was lost, and Nianor 
cast into a spell of dumb forgetfulness, and how she escaped them upon the borders of Doriath and fled northwards. Then at last Turin knew that doom had overtaken him, and that he had slain Brandir unjustly, so that the words of Glaurung were fulfilled in him, and he laughed as one fay, crying, This is a better jest indeed. But he bade Mablung go and return to Doriath with curses upon it. And a curse too upon your errand, he cried. This only was wanting. Now comes the night. Then he fled from them like the wind, and they were amazed, wondering what madness had seized him. And they followed after him. But Turin far outran them. And he came to Cabed in Arras, and heard the roaring of the water, and saw that all the leaves fell sear from the trees, as though winter had come. There he drew forth his sword, that now alone remained to him of all his possessions, and he said, Hail, Gurthang! No lord or loyalty dost thou know, save the hand that wieldeth thee. From no blood wilt thou shrink. Wilt thou therefore take Turin Turambar? Wilt thou slay me swiftly? And from the blade rang a cold voice in answer, Yea, I will drink thy blood gladly, that so I may forget the blood of Beleg, my master, and the blood of Brandir slain unjustly. I will slay thee swiftly. Then Turin set the hilts upon the ground and cast himself upon the point of Gurthang, and the black blade took his life. But Mablung and the elves came and looked on the shape of Glaurung lying dead and upon the body of Turin, and they grieved. And when men of Brethil came thither and they learned the reasons of Turin's madness and death, they were aghast, and Mablung said bitterly, I also have been meshed in the doom of the children of Hurin, and thus with my tidings have slain one that I loved. Then they lifted up Turin, and found that Gorthang had broken asunder. But elves and men gathered there great store of wood, and they made a mighty burning, and the dragon was consumed to ashes. Turin they laid in a high mound where he had fallen, and the shards of Gorthang were laid beside him. And when all was done, the elves sang a lament for the children of Hurin and a great grey stone was set upon the mound, and thereon was carved in runes of Doriath, Turin Turambar, Dagnir Glaurunga. And beneath they wrote also, Nianor Niniel. But she was not there, nor was it ever known whither the cold waters of Taglin had taken her. Of the Ruin of Doriath. So ended the tale of Turin Turamba. But Morgoth did not sleep nor rest from evil, and his dealings with the house of Hador were not yet ended. Against them his malice was unsated, though Hurin was under his eye, and Morwen wandered distraught in the wild. Unhappy was the lot of Hurin. 
For all that Morgoth knew of the working of his malice, Hurin knew also. But lies were mingled with the truth, and aught that was good was hidden or distorted. In all ways Morgoth sought most to cast an evil light on those things that Thingol and Melian had done, for he hated them and feared them. When, therefore, he judged the time to be ripe, he released Hurin from his bondage, bidding him go whither he would. And he feigned that in this he was moved by pity as for an enemy utterly defeated. But he lied. For his purpose was that Hurin should still further his hatred for elves and men ere he died. Then, little though he trusted the words of Morgoth, Knowing indeed that he was without pity, Hurin took his freedom, and went forth in grief, embittered by the words of the Dark Lord. And a year was now gone since the death of Turin, his son. For twenty-eight years he had been captive in Angband, and he was grown grim to look upon. His hair and beard were white and long, but he walked unbowed, bearing a great black staff, and he was girt with a sword. Thus he passed into Hithlam, and tidings came to the chieftains of the Easterlings that there was a great riding of captains and black soldiers of Angband over the sands of Anfauglith, and with them came an old man as one that was held in high honour. Therefore they did not lay hands on Hurin, but let him walk at will in those lands, in which they were wise for the remnant of his own people shunned him because of his coming from Angband as one in league and honour with Morgoth. Thus his freedom did but increase the bitterness of Hurin's heart, and he departed from the land of Hithlam and went up into the mountains. Thence he descried far off amid the clouds the peaks of the Chrysagrim, and he remembered Turgon, and he desired to come again to the hidden realm of Gondolin. He went down, therefore, from Eredwethrin, and he knew not that the creatures of Morgoth watched all his steps. And crossing over the Brithiach, he passed into Dimbar and came to the dark feet of the Echoriath. All the land was cold and desolate, and he looked about him with little hope, standing at the foot of a great fall of stones beneath a sheer rock wall, and he knew not that this was all that was now left to see of the old way of escape. The dry river was blocked, and the arched gate was buried. Then Hurin looked up to the grey sky, thinking that he might once more descry the eagles, as he had done long ago in his youth. But he saw only the shadows blown from the east, and clouds swirling about the inaccessible peaks, and he heard only the wind hissing over the stones. But the watch of the great eagles was now redoubled, and they marked Hurin well, far below, forlorn in the fading light, and straightway Thorondor himself, since the tidings seemed great, brought word to Turgon. But Turgon said, Does Morgoth sleep? You were mistaken. Not so, said Thorondor. If the eagles of Manwer were wont to err thus, then long ago, Lord, your hiding would have been in vain. Then your words bode ill, said Turgon, for they can bear but one meaning, 
Even Hurin Thalion has surrendered to the will of Morgoth. My heart is shut. But when Thorondor was gone, Turgon sat long in thought, and he was troubled, remembering the deeds of Hurin of Dor Lomin, and he opened his heart, and sent to the eagles to seek for Hurin, and to bring him, if they might, to Gondolin. But it was too late, and they never saw him again in light or in shadow. For Hurin stood in despair before the silent cliffs of the Echoriath, and the westering sun, piercing the clouds, stained his white hair with red. Then he cried aloud in the wilderness, heedless of any ears, and he cursed the pitiless land, and standing at last upon a high rock, he looked towards Gondolin and called in a great voice, Turgan! Turgan! Remember the fen of Serech! Oh, Turgan! Will you not hear in your hidden halls? And there was no sound save the wind and the dry grasses. Even so, they hissed in Serech at the sunset, he said. And as he spoke, the sun went behind the mountains of shadow, and a darkness fell about him, and the wind ceased, and there was silence in the waste. Yet there were ears that heard the words that Hurin spoke, and report of all came soon to the dark throne in the north, and Morgoth smiled, for he knew now clearly in what region Turgon dwelt. Though because of the eagles no spy of his could yet come within sight of the land behind the encircling mountains. This was the first evil that the freedom of Hurin achieved. As darkness fell, Hurin stumbled from the rock and fell into a heavy sleep of grief. But in his sleep he heard the voice of Morwen lamenting, and often she spoke his name, and it seemed to him that her voice came out of Brethil. Therefore, when he awoke with the coming of day, he arose and went back to the Brithiach, and passing along the eaves of Brethil, he came at a time of night to the crossings of Teglin. The night sentinels saw him, but they were filled with dread, for they thought that they saw a ghost out of some ancient battle mound that walked with darkness about it. And therefore Hurin was not stayed, and he came at last to the place of the burning of Dlaurum, and saw the tall stone standing near the brink of Kabed Neramath. But Hurin did not look at the stone, for he knew what was written there, and his eyes had seen that he was not alone. Sitting in the shadow of the stone there was a woman, bent over her knees, and as Hurin stood there silent, she cast back her tattered hood and lifted her face, grey she was and old. But suddenly her eyes looked into his, and he knew her. For though they were wild and full of fear, that light still gleamed in them, that long ago had earned for her the name Elethwin, proudest and most beautiful of mortal women in the days of old. "'You come at last,' she said. I have waited too long. It was a dark road. I have come as I could, he answered. But you are too late, said Morwen. They are lost. I know it, 
he said, but you are not. But Morwen said, Almost, I am spent. I shall go with the sun. Now little time is left. If you know, tell me. How did she find him? But Hurin did not answer, and they sat beside the stone and did not speak again. And when the sun went down, Morwen sighed and clasped his hand and was still. And Hurin knew that she had died. He looked down at her in the twilight, and it seemed to him that the lines of grief and cruel hardship were smoothed away. She was not conquered, he said, and he closed her eyes and sat unmoving beside her as the night drew down. The waters of Kabed Neramath roared on, but he heard no sound, and he saw nothing and felt nothing, for his heart was stone within him. But there came a chill wind that drove sharp rain into his face, and he was roused, and anger rose in him like smoke, mastering reason, so that all his desire was to seek vengeance for his wrongs, and for the wrongs of his kin, accusing in his anguish all those who ever had dealings with them. Then he rose up, and he made a grave for Morwen above Kabed Neramath on the west side of the stone, and upon it he cut these words, Here lies also Morwen Elethwen. It is told that a seer and harp player of Brethil named Glirhuin made a song, saying that the stone of the hapless should not be defiled by Morvoth, nor ever thrown down, not though the sea should drown all the land, as after indeed befell. And still, Tol Morwen stands alone in the water beyond the new coasts that were made in the days of the wrath of the Valar. But Hurin does not lie there, for his doom drove him on, and the shadow still followed him. Now Hurin crossed over Taglin, and passed southwards down the ancient road that led to Nargothrand, and he saw far off to the eastward the lonely height of Amonruth, and knew what had befallen there. At length he came to the banks of Narog, and ventured the passage of the wild river upon the fallen stones of the bridge, as Mablung of Doriath had ventured it before him and he stood before the broken doors of Felagund, leaning upon his staff. Here it must be told that after the departure of Glaurung, Mim, the petty dwarf, had found his way to Nargothrond, and crept within the ruined halls, and he took possession of them, and sat there fingering the gold and the gems, letting them run ever through his hands, for none came nigh to despoil him, from dread of the spirit of Glaurung and his very memory. But now one had come, and stood upon the threshold, and Mim came forth, and demanded to know his purpose. But Hurin said, Who are you that would hinder me from entering the house of Finrod Felagund? Then the dwarf answered, I am Mim, and before the proud ones came from over the sea, Dwarves delved the halls of Nulu Kizdin. I have but returned to take what is mine, for I am the last of my people. Then you shall enjoy your inheritance no longer, said Hurin, 
for I am Hurin, son of Galdor, returned from Angband, and my son was Turin Turamba, whom you have not forgotten, and he it was that slew Glaurung the dragon, who wasted these halls where now you sit, and not unknown is it to me by whom the dragon helm of Dorlomin was betrayed. Then Meme, in great fear, besought Hurin to take what he would, but to spare his life. But Hurin gave no heed to his prayer, and slew him there before the doors of Nargothrond. Then he entered in, and stayed a while in that dreadful place, where the treasures of Valinor lay strewn upon the floors in darkness and decay. But it is told that when Hurin came forth from the wreck of Nargothrond, and stood again beneath the sky, he bore with him out of all that great hoard but one thing only. Now Hurin journeyed eastward, and he came to the mirrors of twilight above the falls of Sirion, and there he was taken by the elves that guarded the western marches of Doriath, and brought before King Thingol in the Thousand Caves. Then Thingol was filled with wonder and grief when he looked on him, and knew that grim and aged man for Hurin Thalion, the captive of Morgoth. But he greeted him fairly and showed him honour. Hurin made no answer to the king, but drew forth from beneath his cloak that one thing which he had taken with him out of Nargothrond. That was no less a treasure than the Nauglamir, the necklace of the dwarves that was made for Finrod Felagund long years before by the craftsmen of Nogrod and Belagost, most famed of all their works in the elder days, and prized by Finrod while he lived, above all the treasures of Nargothrond. And Hurin cast it at the feet of Thingol with wild and bitter words. Receive thou thy fee, he cried, for thy fair keeping of my children and my wife. For this is the Nauglamir, whose name is known to many among elves and men, and I bring it to thee out of the darkness of Nargothrond, where Finrod thy kinsman left it behind him, when he set forth with Beren, son of Barahir, to fulfill the errand of Thingol of Doriath. Then Thingol looked upon the great treasure, and knew it for the Nauglamir, and well did he understand Hurin's intent. But being filled with pity, he restrained his wrath, and endured Hurin's scorn. And at the last Melian spoke, and said, Hurin Thalion, Morgoth hath bewitched thee. For he that seeth through Morgoth's eyes, willing or unwilling, seeth all things crooked. Long was Turin thy son fostered in the halls of Menigroth, and shown love and honour as the son of the king. And it was not by the king's will, nor by mine, that he came never back to Doriath. And afterwards thy wife and thy daughter were harboured here with honour and good will, and we sought by all means that we might to dissuade Morwen from the road to Nargothrond. With the voice of Morgoth thou dost now upbraid thy friends. And hearing the words of Melian, Hurin stood moveless, and he gazed long into the eyes of the queen. And there, in Menegroth, defended still by the girdle of Melian from the darkness of the enemy, 
he read the truth of all that was done, and tasted at last the fullness of woe that was measured for him by Morgoth Bauglir. And he spoke no more of what was past, but stooping, lifted up the Nauglamir from where it lay before Thingol's chair, and he gave it to him, saying, Receive now, Lord, the necklace of the dwarves, as a gift from one who has nothing, and as a memorial of Hurin of Dorlomen, for now my fate is fulfilled, and the purpose of Morgoth achieved, but I am his thrall no longer. Then he turned away, and passed out from the thousand caves, and all that saw him fell back before his face, and none sought to withstand his going, nor did any know whither he went. But it is said that Hurin would not live thereafter, being bereft of all purpose and desire, and cast himself at last into the western sea, and so ended the mightiest of the warriors of mortal men. But when Hurin was gone from Menegroth, Thingol sat long in silence, gazing upon the great treasure that lay upon his knees. And it came into his mind that it should be remade, and in it should be set the Silmaril. For as the years passed, Thingol's thoughts turned unceasingly to the jewel of Feanor, and became bound to it, and he liked not to let it rest even behind the doors of his innermost treasury and he was minded now to bear it with him always, waking and sleeping. In those days the dwarves still came on their journeys into Beleriand from their mansions in Eredlindon, and passing over Gelion at Sarn Athrad, the Ford of Stones, they travelled the ancient road to Doriath. For their skill in the working of metal and stone was very great, and there was much need of their craft in the halls of Menigroth. But they came now no longer in small parties as aforetime, but in great companies well armed for their protection in the perilous lands between Aros and Gelion, and they dwelt in Menegroth at such times in chambers and smithies set apart for them. At that very time great craftsmen of Nogrod were lately come into Doriath, and the king therefore summoning them declared his desire that if their skill were great enough they should remake the Nauglamir, and in it set the Silmaril. Then the dwarves looked upon the work of their fathers, and they beheld with wonder the shining jewel of Feanor, and they were filled with a great lust to possess them, and carry them off to their far homes in the mountains. But they dissembled their mind, and consented to the task. Long was their labour, and Thingol went down alone to their deep smithies, and sat ever among them as they worked. In time his desire was achieved, and the greatest of the works of elves and dwarves were brought together and made one, and its beauty was very great, for now the countless jewels of the Nauglamir did reflect and cast abroad in marvellous hues the light of the Silmaril amidmost. Then Thingol, being alone among them, made to take it up and clasp it about his neck, that the dwarves in that moment withheld it from him, and demanded that he yielded up to them, saying, By what right does the elven king lay claim to the Nauglamir that was made by our fathers for Finrod Felagund, who is dead? It has come to him but by the hand of Hurin the man of Dorlomin, 
who took it as a thief out of the darkness of Nargothrond. But Thingol perceived their hearts, and saw well that desiring the Silmaril, they sought but a pretext and fair cloak for their true intent. And in his wrath and pride he gave no heed to his peril, but spoke to them in scorn, saying, How do ye, of uncouth race, dare to demand aught of me, Elu Thingol, Lord of Beleriand, whose life began by the waters of Qui Vienen, years uncounted ere the fathers of the stunted people awoke. And standing tall and proud among them, he bade them with shameful words be gone, unrequited, out of Doriath. Then the lust of the dwarves was kindled to rage by the words of the king, and they rose up about him and laid hands on him, and slew him as he stood. So died, in the deep places of Menegroth, Elwe Singolo, king of Doriath, who alone of all the children of Iluvatar was joined with one of the Ainur. And he who, alone of the forsaken elves, had seen the light of the trees of Valinor, with his last sight, gazed upon the Silmaril. Then the dwarves, taking the Nauglamir, passed out of Menegroth, and fled eastwards through Region. The tidings went swiftly through the forest, and few of that company came over Aros, for they were pursued to the death as they sought the eastward road, and the Nauglamir was retaken, and brought back in bitter grief to Melian the Queen. Yet two there were of the slayers of Thingol, who escaped from the pursuit on the eastern marches, and returned at last to their city far off in the Blue Mountains. And there in Nogrod they told somewhat of all that had befallen, saying that the dwarves were slain in Doriath by command of the elven king, who thus would cheat them of their reward. Then great was the wrath and lamentation of the dwarves of Nogrod for the death of their kin and their great craftsmen, and they tore their beards and wailed and long they sat taking thought for vengeance. It is told that they asked aid from Belegost, but it was denied them, and the dwarves of Belegost sought to dissuade them from their purpose, but their counsel was unavailing, and ere long a great host came forth from Nogrod, and crossing over Gelion, marched westward through Beleriand. Upon Doriath a heavy change had fallen, Melian sat long in silence beside Thingol the king, and her thought passed back into the starlit years, and to their first meeting among the nightingales of Nan Elmoth in ages past. And she knew that her parting from Thingol was the forerunner of a greater parting, and that the doom of Doriath was drawing nigh. For Melian was of the divine race of the Valar, and she was a Maya, of great power and wisdom. But for love of Elwe Singolo, she took upon herself the form of the elder children of Iluvatar, and in that union she became bound by the chain and trammels of the flesh of Arda. In that form she bore to him Luthien Tunuviel, and in that form she gained a power over the substance of Arda, and by the girdle of Melian was Doriath defended through long ages from the evils without. 
But now Thingol lay dead, and his spirit had passed to the halls of Mandos, and with his death a change came also upon Melian. Thus it came to pass that her power was withdrawn in that time from the forests of Neldoreth and Regian, and as Galduin, the enchanted river, spoke with a different voice, and Doriath lay open to its enemies. Thereafter Melian spoke to none save to Mablung only, bidding him take heed to the Silmaril, and to send word speedily to Beren and Luthien in Ossirian. And she vanished out of Middle-earth, and passed to the land of the Valar, beyond the western sea, to muse upon her sorrows in the gardens of Lorien, whence she came, and this tale speaks of her no more. Thus it was that the host of the Naugrim, crossing over Aros, passed unhindered into the woods of Doriath, and none withstood them, for there were many and fierce, and the captains of the grey elves were cast into doubt and despair, and went hither and thither purposeless. But the dwarves held on their way, and passed over the great bridge, and entered into Menegroth, and there befell a thing most grievous among the sorrowful deeds of the elder days. For there was battle in the thousand caves, and many elves and dwarves were slain, and it has not been forgotten. But the dwarves were victorious, and the halls of Thingol were ransacked and plundered. There fell Mablong of the Heavy Hand, before the doors of the treasury, wherein lay the Nauglamir, and the Silmaril was taken. At that time Beren and Luthien yet dwelt in Talgalan, the Green Isle, in the river Adurant, southernmost of the streams, that falling from Eredlindon flowed down to join with Gelion. And their son, Dior Eluhil, had to wife Nimloth, kinswoman of Celeborn, prince of Doriath, who was wedded to the lady Galadriel. The sons of Dior and Nimloth were Elured and Elurin, and a daughter also was born to them, and she was named Elwing, which is Star Spray, for she was born on a night of stars, whose light glittered in the spray of the waterfall of Lanthir Lamath beside her father's house. Now word went swiftly among the elves of Ossiriand that a great host of dwarves bearing gear of war had come down out of the mountains and passed over Gelion at the Ford of Stones. These tidings came soon to Beren and Luthien, and in that time also a messenger came to them out of Doriath, telling of what had befallen there. Then Beren arose and left Tolgarlan, and summoning to him Dior his son, they went north to the river Askar, and with them went many of the green elves of Ossirian. Thus it came to pass that when the dwarves of Nogrod, returning from Menegroth with diminished host, came again to San Athrad, they were assailed by unseen enemies, for as they climbed up Gelion's banks burdened with the spoils of Doriath, suddenly all the woods were filled with the sound of elven horns, and shafts sped upon them from every side. There very many of the dwarves were slain in the first onset, but some, escaping from the ambush, held together and fled eastwards towards the mountains. 
and as they climbed the long slopes beneath Mount Dolmed, they came forth the shepherds of the trees, and they drove the dwarves into the shadowy woods of Ered Lindon, whence, it is said, came never one to climb the high passes that led to their homes. In that battle by San Athrad, Beren fought his last fight, and himself slew the lord of Nogrod, and wrested from him the necklace of the dwarves. But he dying laid his curse upon all the treasure. Then Beren gazed in wonder on the selfsame jewel of Feanor that he had cut from Morgoth's iron crown, now shining set amid gold and gems by the cunning of the dwarves, and he washed it clean of blood in the waters of the river. And when all was finished, the treasure of Doriath was drowned in the river Askar, and from that time the river was named anew Rathloriel, the Golden Bed. But Beren took the Nauglamir and returned to Tulgalan. Little did it ease the grief of Luthien to learn that the lord of Nogrod was slain, and many dwarves beside. But it is said and sung that Luthien, wearing that necklace and that immortal jewel, was the vision of greatest beauty and glory that has ever been outside the realm of Valinor, and for a little while the land of the dead that live became like a vision of the land of the Valar, and no place has been since so fair, so fruitful, or so filled with light. Now Dior, Thingol's heir, bade farewell to Beren and Luthien, and departing from Lanthir Lamath with Nimloth his wife, he came to Menegroth and abode there. And with them went their young sons, Elured and Elurin, and Elwing their daughter. Then the Sindar received them with joy, and they arose from the darkness of their grief for fallen kin and king, and for the departure of Melian. And Dior Elohil set himself to raise anew the glory of the kingdom of Doriath. There came a night of autumn, and when it grew late, one came and smote upon the doors of Menegroth, demanding admittance to the king. He was a lord of the green elves, hastening from Osiriand, and the door-wards brought him to where Dior sat alone in his chamber. And there in silence he gave to the king a coffer, and took his leave. But in that coffer lay the necklace of the dwarves, wherein was set the Silmaril. And Dior, looking upon it, knew it for a sign that Beren Nechamian, and Luthien Tinuviel had died indeed, and gone where go the race of men to a fate beyond the world. Long did Dior gaze upon the Silmaril, which his father and mother had brought beyond hope out of the terror of Morgoth, and his grief was great that death had come upon them so soon. But the wise have said that the Silmaril hastened their end, for the flame of the beauty of Luthien as she wore it was too bright for mortal lands. Then Dior arose, and about his neck he clasped the Nauglamir, and now he appeared as the fairest of all the children of the world, of threefold race, of the Edain, and of the Eldar, and of the Maiar, of the Blessed Realm. But now the rumour ran among the scattered elves of Beleriand that Dior 
Thingol's heir wore the Nauglamir, and they said, A Silmaril of Feanor burns again in the woods of Doriath. And the oath of the sons of Feanor was waked again from sleep, for while Luthien wore the necklace of the dwarves, no elf would dare to assail her. But now, hearing of the renewal of Doriath and of Dior's pride, the seven gathered again from wandering, and they sent to him to claim their own. But Dior returned no answer to the sons of Feanor, and Kelagorm stirred up his brothers to prepare an assault upon Doriath. They came at unawares in the middle of winter, and fought with Dior in the thousand caves. And so befell the second slaying of Elf by Elf. There fell Kelagorm by Dior's hand, and there fell Kurufin and Dark Caranthir. But Dior was slain also, and Nimloth his wife, and the cruel servants of Kelagorm seized his young sons and left them to starve in the forest. Of this Maedhras indeed repented and sought for them long in the woods of Doriath. But his search was unavailing, and of the fate of Elored and Elorin no tale tells. Thus Doriath was destroyed and never rose again. But the sons of Feanor gained not what they sought, for a remnant of the people fled before them, and with them was Elwing, Dior's daughter. And they escaped and bearing with them the Silmaril, they came in time to the mouths of the river Sirion by the sea. Of Tuor and the Fall of Gondolin It has been told that Huor, the brother of Hurin, was slain in the battle of unnumbered tears. And in the winter of that year, Rian his wife bore a child in the wilds of Mithrim, and he was named Tuor, and was taken to foster by Anael of the Grey Elves, who yet lived in those hills. Now when Tuor was sixteen years old, the elves were minded to leave the caves of Androth where they dwelt, and to make their way secretly to the havens of Sirion in the distant south. But they were assailed by orcs and easterlings before they made good their escape, and Tuor was taken captive and enslaved by Lorgan, chief of the Easterlings of Hithlam. For three years he endured that thraldom, but at the end of that time he escaped, and returning to the caves of Androth, he dwelt there alone, and did such great hurt to the Easterlings that Lorgan set a price upon his head. But when Tuor had lived thus in solitude as an outlaw for four years, Ulmo set it in his heart to depart from the land of his fathers, for he had chosen Tuor as the instrument of his designs. And leaving once more the caves of Androth, he went westwards across Dorlomin, and found Anon in Gelith, the gate of the Noldor, which the people of Turgon built when they dwelt in Nevrast long years before. Thence a dark tunnel led beneath the mountains, and issued into Kirith Niniach, the rainbow cleft, through which a turbulent water ran towards the western sea. Thus it was that Tuor's flight from Hithlam was marked by neither man nor orc, and no knowledge of it came to the ears of Morgoth. And Tuor came into Nevrast, 
and looking upon Belagea the great sea, he was enamoured of it, and the sound of it and the longing for it were ever in his heart and ear, and an unquiet was on him that took him at last into the depths of the realms of Ulmo. Then he dwelt in Nevrast alone, and the summer of that year passed, and the doom of Nargothrond drew near. But when the autumn came, he saw seven great swans flying south, and he knew them for a sign that he had tarried over long, and he followed their flight along the shores of the sea. Thus he came at length to the deserted halls of Vinyamar beneath Mount Taras, and he entered in, and found there the shield and hauberk and the sword and helm that Torgon had left there by the command of Ulmo long before. And he arrayed himself in those arms, and went down to the shore. But there came a great storm out of the west, and out of that storm Ulmo, the lord of waters, arose in majesty and spoke to Tuor as he stood beside the sea. And Ulmo bade him depart from that place and seek out the hidden kingdom of Gondolin. And he gave Tuor a great cloak to mantle him in shadow from the eyes of his enemies. But in the morning when the storm was past, Tuor came upon an elf standing beside the walls of Vinyamar, and he was Varanwe, son of Aranwe of Gondolin, who sailed in the last ship that Torgon sent into the west. But when that ship returning at last out of the deep ocean foundered in the great storm within sight of the coasts of Middle-earth, Ulmo took him up, alone of all its mariners, and cast him unto the land near Vinyamar. And learning of the command laid upon Tuor by the Lord of Waters, Varanwe was filled with wonder, and did not refuse him his guidance to the hidden door of Gondolin. Therefore they set out together from that place, and as the fell winter of that year came down upon them out of the north, they went warily eastward under the eaves of the mountains of shadow. At length they came in their journeying to the pools of Ivrin, and looked with grief on the defilement wrought there by the passage of Glaurung the dragon. But even as they gazed upon it, they saw one going northward in haste, and he was a tall man, clad in black and bearing a black sword. But they knew not who he was, nor anything of what had befallen in the south. Then he passed them by, and they said no word. And at the last, by the power that Ulmo set upon them, they came to the hidden door of Gondolin. And passing down the tunnel, they reached the inner gate, and were taken by the guard as prisoners. Then they were led up the mighty ravine of Orfalch Echor, barred by seven gates, and brought before Ecthelion of the Fountain, the warden of the great gate at the end of the climbing road. And there Tuor cast aside his cloak, and from the arms that he bore from Vinyamar it was seen that he was in truth one sent by Ulmo. Then Tuor looked down upon the fair vale of Tumladen, set as a green jewel amid the encircling hills. And he saw far off upon the rocky height of Amangwareth, Gondolin the Great, city of seven names, whose fame and glory is mightiest in song of all dwellings of the elves in the hither lands. At the bidding of Ecthelion, 
Trumpets were blown on the towers of the great gate, and they echoed in the hills, and far off but clear there came a sound of answering trumpets blown upon the white walls of the city, flushed with the rose of dawn upon the plain. Thus it was that the son of Huor rode across Tumladen, and came to the gate of Gondolin. And passing up the wide stairways of the city, he was brought at last to the tower of the king, and looked upon the images of the trees of Valinor. Then Tuor stood before Turgon, son of Fingolfin, high king of the Noldor, and upon the king's right hand there stood Maeglin his sister's son. But upon his left hand sat Idril Celebrindel, his daughter. And all that heard the voice of Tuor marveled, doubting that this were in truth a man of mortal race. For his words were the words of the Lord of Waters that came to him in that hour. And he gave warning to Turgon that the curse of Mandos now hastened to its fulfillment when all the works of the Noldor should perish. And he bade him depart and abandon the fair and mighty city that he had built and go down Sirion to the sea. Then Turgon pondered long the counsel of Ulmo, and there came into his mind the words that were spoken to him in Vinyamar. Love not too well the work of thy hands and the devices of thy heart, and remember that the true hope of the Noldor lieth in the west and cometh from the sea. But Turgon was become proud, and Gondolin as beautiful as a memory of Elven Tyrion, and he trusted still in its secret and impregnable strength, though even a Valar should gainsay it. And after the Nirnaeth Arnoidiad, the people of that city desired never again to mingle in the woes of elves and men without, nor to return through dread and danger into the west. Shut behind their pathless and enchanted hills, they suffered none to enter, though he fled from Morgoth hate pursued. And tidings of the lands beyond came to them faint and far, and they heeded them little. The spies of Angband sought for them in vain, and their dwelling was as a rumour and a secret that none could find. Maeglin spoke ever against Tuor in the councils of the king, and his words seemed the more weighty in that they went with Turgon's heart. And at the last he rejected the bidding of Ulmo and refused his counsel. But in the warning of the Valar he heard again the words that were spoken before the departing Noldor on the coast of Araman long ago, and the fear of treason was wakened in Turgon's heart. Therefore in that time the very entrance to the hidden door in the encircling mountains was caused to be blocked up, and thereafter none went ever forth from Gondolin on any errand of peace or war while that city stood. Tidings were brought by Thorondor, lord of eagles, of the fall of Nargothrond, and after the slaying of Thingol and of Dior, his heir, and of the ruin of Doriath. But Turgon shut his ear to word of the woes without, and vowed to march never at the side of any son of Feanor, and his people he forbade ever to pass the leaguer of the hills. And Tuor remained in Gondolin, for its bliss and its beauty and the wisdom of its people held him enthralled, and he became mighty in stature and in mind, and learned deeply of the lore of the exiled elves. 
Then the heart of Idriel was turned to him, and his to her. And Maglin's secret hatred grew ever greater, for he desired above all things to possess her, the only heir of the king of Gondolin. But so high did Tuor stand in the favor of the king, that when he had dwelt there for seven years, Turgon did not refuse him even the hand of his daughter. For though he would not heed the bidding of Ulmo, he perceived that the fate of the Noldor was wound with the one whom Ulmo had sent and he did not forget the words that Huor spoke to him before the host of Gondolin departed from the battle of unnumbered peers. Then there was made a great and joyful feast, for Tuor had won the hearts of all that people, save only of Maeglin and his secret following, and thus there came to pass the second union of elves and men. In the spring of the year after was born in Gondolin, Earendil Half-Elven, the son of Tuor, and Idril Celebrindal. And that was five hundred years and three since the coming of the Noldor to Middle-earth. Of surpassing beauty was Earendil, for a light was in his face as the light of heaven, and he had the beauty and the wisdom of the Eldar, and the strength and hardihood of the men of old. And the sea spoke ever in his ear and heart, even as with Tuor his father. Then the days of Gondolin were yet full of joy and peace, and none knew that the region wherein the hidden kingdom lay had been at last revealed to Morgoth by the cries of Hurin, when, standing in the wilderness beyond the encircling mountains and finding no entrance, he called on Turgon in despair. Thereafter, the thought of Morgoth was bent unceasing on the mountainous land between Anach and the upper waters of Sirion, whither his servants had never passed. Yet still no spy or creature out of Angband could come there because of the vigilance of the eagles, and Morgoth was thwarted in the fulfilment of his designs. But Idril Celebrindel was wise and far-seeing, and her heart misgave her, and foreboding crept upon her spirit as a cloud. Therefore in that time she let prepare a secret way that should lead down from the city, and passing out beneath the surface of the plain issue far beyond the walls, northward of Aman Guareth. And she contrived it that the work was known but to few, and no whisper of it came to Maeglin's ears. Now on a time when Earendil was yet young, Maeglin was lost, for he, as has been told, loved mining and quarrying after metals above all other craft, and he was master and leader of the elves who worked in the mountains distant from the city, seeking after metals for their smithying of things both of peace and war. But often Maeglin went with few of his folk beyond the leaguer of the hills, and the king knew not that his bidding was defied, and thus it came to pass, as fate willed, that Maeglin was taken prisoner by orcs and brought to Angband. Maeglin was no weakling or craven, but the torment wherewith he was threatened cowed his spirit, and he purchased his life and freedom by revealing to Morgoth the very place of Gondolin and the ways whereby it might be found and assailed. Great indeed was the joy of Morgoth, and to Maeglin he promised the lordship of Gondolin as his vassal, 
and the possession of Idril Celebrindel when the city should be taken. And indeed, desire for Idril and hatred for Tuor led Maeglin the easier to his treachery, most infamous in all the histories of the Elder Days. But Morgoth sent him back to Gondolin, lest any should suspect the betrayal, and so that Maeglin should aid the assault from within when the hour came. And he abode in the halls of the king with smiling face and evil in his heart, while the darkness gathered ever deeper upon Idril. At last, in the year when Eärendil was seven years old, Morgoth was ready, and he loosed upon Gondolin his balrogs and his orcs and his wolves. And with them came dragons of the brood of Glaurung, and they were become now many and terrible. The host of Morgoth came over the northern hills, where the height was greatest and the watch least vigilant. And it came at night upon a time of festival, when all the people of Gondolin were upon the walls to await the rising sun and sing their songs at its uplifting. For the morrow was the great feast that they named the Gates of Summer. But the red light mounted the hills in the north and not in the east and there was no stay in the advance of the foe until they were beneath the very walls of Gondolin, and the city was beleaguered without hope. Of the deeds of desperate valour there done by the chieftains of the noble houses and their warriors, and not least by Tuor, much is told in The Fall of Gondolin. Of the battle of Ecthelion of the Fountain with Gothmog, lord of Balrogs, in the very square of the king, where each slew the other, and of the defence of the tower of Turgon by the people of his household until the tower was overthrown. And mighty was its fall, and the fall of Turgon in its ruin. Tuor sought to rescue Idril from the sack of the city, but Maeglin had laid hands on her and on Eärendil, and Tuor fought with Maeglin on the walls and cast him far out, and his body as it fell smote the rocky slopes of Amon Guareth thrice, ere it pitched into the flames below. Then Tuor and Idril led such remnants of the people of Gondolin as they could gather in the confusion of the burning, down the secret way which Idril had prepared. And of that passage the captains of Angband knew nothing, and thought not that any fugitives would take a path towards the north and the highest parts of the mountains, and the nighest to Angband. The fume of the burning, and the steam of the fair fountains of Gondolin, withering in the flame of the dragons of the north, fell upon the vale of Tumladen in mournful mists. And thus was the escape of Tuor and his company aided, for there was still a long and open road to follow from the tunnel's mouth to the foothills of the mountains. Nonetheless they came thither, and beyond hope they climbed in woe and misery, for the high places were cold and terrible, and they had among them many that were wounded, and women and children. There was a dreadful pass, Kirith Thoronath it was named, the Eagle's Cleft, where beneath the shadow of the highest peaks a narrow path wound its way. On the right hand it was walled by a precipice, and on the left a dreadful fall leapt into emptiness. Along that narrow way their march was strung when they were ambushed by orcs, for Morgoth had set watchers all about the encircling hills, 
and a balrog was with them. Then dreadful was their plight, and hardly would they have been saved by the valour of yellow-haired Glorfindel, chief of the house of the golden flower of Gondolin, had not Thorondor come timely to their aid. Many are the songs that have been sung of the duel of Glorfindel with the Balrog upon a pinnacle of rock in that high place, and both fell to ruin in the abyss. But the eagles coming stooped upon the orcs and drove them shrieking back, and all were slain or cast into the deeps, so that rumour of the escape from Gondolin came not until long after to Morgoth's ears. Then Thorondor bore up Glorfindel's body out of the abyss, and they buried him in a mound of stones beside the pass. And a green turf came there, and yellow flowers bloomed upon it amid the barrenness of stone, until the world was changed. Thus, led by Tuor, son of Huor, the remnant of Gondolin passed over the mountains, and came down into the Vale of Sirion, and fleeing southward by weary and dangerous marches, they came at length to Nan Tathrin, the land of willows, for the power of Ulmo yet ran in the great river, and it was about them. There they rested a while, and were healed of their hurts and weariness, but their sorrow could not be healed. And they made a feast in memory of Gondolin, and of the elves that had perished there, the maidens, and the wives, and the warriors of the king. And for Glorfindel, the beloved, many were the songs they sang, under the willows of Nantathrin, in the waning of the year. There Tuor made a song for Earendil his son, concerning the coming of Ulmo, the lord of waters, to the shores of Nevrast aforetime. And the sea-longing woke in his heart, and in his son's also. Therefore, Idril and Tuor departed from Nantathrin, and went southwards down the river to the sea, and they dwelt there by the mouths of Sirion, and joined their people to the company of Elwing, Dior's daughter, that had fled thither but a little while before. And when the tidings came to Balar of the fall of Gondolin and the death of Turgon, Iranian Gil-galad, son of Fingon, was named High King of the Noldor in Middle-earth. But Morgoth thought that his triumph was fulfilled, recking little of the sons of Feanor and of their oath, which had harmed him never, and turned always to his mightiest aid. And in his black thought he laughed, regretting not the one Silmaril that he had lost. For by it, as he deemed, the last shred of the people of the Eldar should vanish from Middle-earth and trouble it no more. If he knew of the dwelling by the waters of Sirion, he gave no sign, biding his time and waiting upon the working of oath and lie. Yet by Sirion and the sea there grew up an elven folk, the gleamings of Doriath and Gondolin. And from Bala the mariners of Círdan came among them, and they took to the waves and the building of ships, dwelling ever nigh to the coasts of Arvanian, under the shadow of Ulmo's hand. And it is said that in that time Ulmo came to Valinor out of the deep waters, and spoke there to the Valar of the need of the elves, and he called on them to forgive them, and rescue them from the overmastering might of Morgoth, and win back the Silmarils, wherein alone now bloomed the light of the days of bliss, 
when the two trees still shone in Valinor. But Manwe moved not, and of the counsels of his heart, what tale shall tell? The wise have said that the hour was not yet come, and that only one speaking in person for the cause of both elves and men, pleading for pardon on their misdeeds and pity on their woes, might move the counsels of the powers. And the oath of Feanor, perhaps even Manwe, could not loose, until it found its end, and the sons of Feanor relinquished the Silmarils, upon which they had laid their ruthless claim. For the light which lit the Silmarils, the Valar themselves had made. In those days, Tuor felt old age creep upon him, and ever a longing for the deeps of the sea grew stronger in his heart. Therefore he built a great ship, and he named it Earamme, which is sea-wing. And with Idril Celebrindal he set sail into the sunset in the west, and came no more into any tale or song. But in after days it was sung that Tuor alone of mortal men was numbered among the elder race, and was joined with the Noldor whom he loved, and his fate is sundered from the fate of men. Of the Voyage of Earendil and the War of Wrath Bright Earendil was then lord of the people that dwelt nigh to Sirion's mouths, and he took to wife Elwing the Fair, and she bore to him Elrond and Elros, who are called the Half-Elvin. Yet Earendil could not rest, and his voyages about the shores of the hitherlands eased not his unquiet. Two purposes grew in his heart, blended as one in longing for the wide sea. He sought to sail thereon, seeking after Tuor and Idril, who returned not. And he thought to find, perhaps, the last shore, and bring, ere he died, the message of elves and men to the Valar in the west, that should move their hearts to pity for the sorrows of Middle-earth. Now Earendil became fast in friendship with Círdan the shipwright, who dwelt on the Isle of Balar with those of his people who escaped from the sack of the havens of Brithambar and Eglarest. With the aid of Círdan, Earendil built Vingilot the foam-flower, fairest of the ships of song, Golden were its oars and white its timbers, hewn in the birchwoods of Nimbrethil, and its sails were as the argent moon. In the lay of Earendil is many a thing sung of his adventures in the deep and in lands untrodden, and in many seas and in many isles. But Elwing was not with him, and she sat in sorrow by the mouths of Sirion. Earendil found not Tuor nor Idril, nor came he ever on that journey to the shores of Valinor, defeated by shadows and enchantment, driven by repelling winds, until in longing for Elwing he turned homeward towards the coast of Beleriand. And his heart bade him haste, for a sudden fear had fallen on him out of dreams, and the winds that before he had striven with might not now bear him back as swift as his desire. Now when first the tidings came to Maethros that Elwing yet lived, and dwelt in possession of the Silmaril by the mouths of Sirion, he, repenting of the deeds in Doriath, withheld his hand. 
But in time, the knowledge of their oath unfulfilled returned to torment him and his brothers. And gathering from their wandering hunting paths, they sent messages to the havens of friendship and yet of stern demand. Then Elwing and the people of Sirion would not yield the jewel which Beren had won and Luthien had worn, and for which Dior the Fair was slain. And least of all, while Earendil their lord was on the sea, for it seemed to them that in the Silmaril lay the healing and the blessing that had come upon their houses and their ships. And so there came to pass the last and cruelest of the slayings of elf by elf, and that was the third of the great wrongs achieved by the accursed oath. For the sons of Feanor that yet lived came down suddenly upon the exiles of Gondolin and the remnant of Doriath and destroyed them. In that battle some of their people stood aside, and some few rebelled and were slain upon the other part aiding Elwing against their own lords, for such was the sorrow and confusion in the hearts of the Eldar in those days. But Maedhros and Maglor won the day, though they alone remained thereafter of the sons of Feanor, for both Amrod and Amras were slain. Too late the ships of Círdan and Gil-galad the High King came hasting to the aid of the elves of Sirion, and Elwing was gone, and her sons. Then such few of that people as did not perish in the assault joined themselves to Gil-galad and went with him to Balar. And they told that Elros and Elrond were taken captive, but Elwing with the Silmaril upon her breast had cast herself into the sea. Thus Maedhros and Maglor gained not the jewel, but it was not lost. For Ulmo bore up Elwing out of the waves, and he gave her the likeness of a great white bird, and upon her breast there shone as a star the Silmaril, as she flew over the water to seek Earendil her beloved. On a time of night, Earendil at the helm of his ship saw her come towards him as a white cloud exceeding swift beneath the moon, as a star over the sea moving in strange course, a pale flame on wings of storm. And it is sung that she fell from the air upon the timbers of Vingilot in a swoon, nigh unto death for the urgency of her speed, and Earendil took her to his bosom. But in the morning, with marvelling eyes, he beheld his wife in her own form beside him, with her hair upon his face, and she slept. Great was the sorrow of Earendil and Elwing for the ruin of the havens of Sirion, and the captivity of their sons, and they feared that they would be slain. But it was not so. For Maglor took pity upon Elros and Elrond, and he cherished them, and love grew after between them, as little might be thought. But Maglor's heart was sick and weary with the burden of the dreadful oath. Yet Earendil saw now no hope left in the lands of Middle-earth, and he turned again in despair, and came not home, but sought back once more to Valinor with Elwing at his side. He stood now most often at the prow of Vingilot, and the Silmaril was bound upon his brow, and ever its light grew greater as they drew into the west. 
and the wise have said that it was by reason of the power of that holy jewel that they came in time to waters that no vessels save those of the Teleri had known. And they came to the enchanted isles, and escaped their enchantment. And they came into the shadowy seas, and passed their shadows. And they looked upon Tol Eresia, the lonely isle, but tarried not. And at the last they cast anchor in the bay of Eldamar, and the Teleri saw the coming of that ship out of the east, and they were amazed, gazing from afar upon the light of the Silmaril, and it was very great. Then Earendil, first of living men, landed on the immortal shores, and he spoke there to Elwing and to those that were with him, and they were three mariners who had sailed all the seas beside him, Falatha, Erelont, and Erandir were their names. And Erandil said to them, Here none but myself shall set foot, lest you fall under the wrath of the Valar. But that peril I will take on myself alone, for the sake of the two kindreds. But Elwing answered, Then would our paths be sundered for ever. But all thy perils I will take on myself also. And she leapt into the white foam and ran towards him, but Earendil was sorrowful, for he feared the anger of the lords of the west upon any of Middle-earth that should dare to pass the leaguer of Ammon. And there they bade farewell to the companions of their voyage, and were taken from them forever. Then Earendil said to Elwing, Await me here, for one only may bring the message that it is my fate to bear. And he went up alone into the land, and came into the Kalakiria and it seemed to him empty and silent. For even as Morgoth and Ungoliant came in ages past, so now Earendil had come at a time of festival, and well-nigh all the elven folk were gone to Valimar, or were gathered in the halls of Manwe upon Tani Quetil, and few were left to keep watch upon the walls of Tyrion. But some there were who saw him from afar, and the great light that he bore, and they went in haste to Valimar. But Earendil climbed the green hill of Tuna, and found it bare, and he entered into the streets of Tyrion, and they were empty, and his heart was heavy, for he feared that some evil had come even to the blessed realm. He walked in the deserted ways of Tyrion, and the dust upon his raiment and his shoes was a dust of diamonds, and he shone and glistened as he climbed the long white stairs and he called aloud in many tongues, both of elves and men, but there were none to answer him. Therefore he turned back at last towards the sea. But even as he took the shoreward road, one stood upon the hill and called to him in a great voice, crying, Hail, Earendil, of mariners most renowned, the looked-for that cometh at unawares, the longed-for that cometh beyond hope. Hail, Earendil, bearer of light before the sun and moon, splendor of the children of earth, star in the darkness, jewel in the sunset, radiant in the morning. That voice was the voice of Eonwe, herald of Manwe, and he came from Valimar and summoned Earendil to come before the powers of Arda. And Earendil went into Valinor, and to the halls of Valimar, and never again set foot upon the lands of men. 
Then the Valar took counsel together, and they summoned Ulmo from the deeps of the sea. And Eärendil stood before their faces, and delivered the errand of the two kindreds. Pardon, he asked, for the Noldor, and pity for their great sorrows, and mercy upon men and elves, and succor in their need. And his prayer was granted. It is told among the elves that after Eärendil had departed, seeking Elwing his wife, Mandos spoke concerning his fate, and he said, Shall mortal man step living upon the undying lands and yet live? But Ulmo said, For this he was born into the world, and say unto me, Whether is he Eärendil Tuor, son of the line of Hador, or the son of Idril? Torgon's daughter of the elven house of Finwë. And Mandos answered, Equally the Noldor who went willfully into exile may not return hither. But when all was spoken, Manwë gave judgment, and he said, In this matter the power of doom is given to me. The peril that he ventured for love of the two kindreds shall not fall upon Eärendil. Nor shall it fall upon Elwing, his wife, who entered into peril for love of him. But they shall not walk again ever among elves or men in the outer lands. And this is my decree concerning them. To Eärendil and to Elwing and to their sons shall be given leave each to choose freely to which kindred their fates shall be joined, and under which kindred they shall be judged. Now when Eärendil was long time gone, Elwing became lonely and afraid, and wandering by the margin of the sea she came near to Alqualande, where lay the Teleri fleets. There the Teleri befriended her, and they listened to her tales of Doriath and Gondolin and the griefs of Beleriand, and they were filled with pity and wonder. And there Eärendil returning found her at the haven of the swans. But ere long they were summoned to Valimar, and there the decree of the elder king was declared to them. Then Eärendil said to Elwing, Choose thou, for now I am weary of the world. And Elwing chose to be judged among the first-born children of Iluvatar, because of Luthien, and for her sake Eärendil chose alike, though his heart was rather with the kindred of men and the people of his father. Then at the bidding of the Valar, Eonwe went to the shore of Ammon, where the companions of Eärendil still remained awaiting tidings. And he took a boat, and the three mariners were set therein, and the Valar drove them away into the east with a great wind. But they took Vingilot and hallowed it, and bore it away through Valinor to the uttermost rim of the world, and there it passed through the door of night, and was lifted up even into the oceans of heaven. Now fair and marvellous was that vessel made, and it was filled with a wavering flame, pure and bright. And Eärendil the mariner sat at the helm, glistening with dust of elven gems, and the silmaril was bound upon his brow. Far he journeyed in that ship, even into the starless voids. But most often was he seen at morning or at evening, glimmering in sunrise or sunset, as he came back to Valinor from voyages beyond the confines of the world. 
On these journeys Elwing did not go, for she might not endure the cold and the pathless voids, and she loved rather the earth than the sweet winds that blow on sea and hill. Therefore there was built for her a white tower northward upon the borders of the thundering seas, and thither at times all the seabirds of the earth repaired. And it is said that Elwing learned the tongues of birds, who herself had once worn their shape, and they taught her the craft of flight, and her wings were of white and silver-gray. And at times, when Eärendil returning drew near again to Arda, she would fly to meet him, even as she had flown long ago, when she was rescued from the sea. Then the far-sighted among the elves that dwelt in the lonely isle would see her like a white bird, shining, rose-stained in the sunset, as she soared in joy to greet the coming of Vingilot to Haven. Now when first Vingilot was set to sail in the seas of heaven, it rose unlooked for, glittering and bright, and the people of Middle-earth beheld it from afar and wondered, and they took it for a sign and called it Gil-Estel, the Star of High Hope. And when this new star was seen at evening, Maedhros spoke to Maglor, his brother, and he said, Surely that is a Silmaril that shines now in the west. And Maglor answered, If it be truly the Silmaril which we saw cast into the sea that rises again by the power of the Valar, then let us be glad, for its glory is seen now by many, and is yet secure from all evil. Then the elves looked up and despaired no longer, but Morgoth was filled with doubt. Yet it is said that Morgoth looked not for the assault that came upon him from the west, for so great was his pride become that he deemed that none would ever again come with open war against him. Moreover, he thought that he had forever estranged the Noldor from the lords of the west, and that content in their blissful realm the Valar would heed no more his kingdom in the world without. For to him that is pitiless, the deeds of pity are ever strange and beyond reckoning. But the host of the Valar prepared for battle, and beneath their white banners marched the Vanyar, the people of Ingwe, and those also of the Noldor who never departed from Valinor, whose leader was Finarfin, the son of Finwe. Few of the Teleri were willing to go forth to war, for they remembered the slaying at the Swan Haven and the rape of their ships. But they hearkened to Elwing, who was the daughter of Dior Eluhil, and come of their own kindred, and they sent mariners enough to sail the ships that bore the host of Valinor east over the sea. Yet they stayed aboard their vessels, and none of them set foot upon the hither lands. Of the march of the host of the Valar to the north of Middle-earth, little is said in any tale, for among them went none of those elves who had dwelt and suffered in the hither lands, and who made the histories of those days that still are known and tidings of these things they only learned long afterwards from their kinsfolk in Ammon. But at the last the might of Valinor came up out of the west, and the challenge of the trumpets of Aonwe filled the sky, and Beleriand was ablaze with the glory of their arms. For the host of the Valar were arrayed in forms young and fair and terrible, 
and the mountains rang beneath their feet. The meeting of the hosts of the West and of the North is named the Great Battle and the War of Wrath. There was marshaled the whole power of the throne of Morgoth, and it had become great beyond count, so that Anfauglith could not contain it, and all the North was aflame with war. But it availed him not. The Balrogs were destroyed, save some few that fled and hid themselves in caverns inaccessible at the roots of the earth, and the uncounted legions of the orcs perished like straw in a great fire, or were swept like shriveled leaves before a burning wind. Few remained to trouble the world for long years after, and such few as were left of the three houses of the elf-friends, fathers of men, fought upon the part of the Valar, and they were avenged in those days for Baragund and Barahir, Galdor and Gondor, Huor and Hurin, and many others of their lords. But a great part of the sons of men, whether of the people of Uldor or others new come out of the east, marched with the enemy, and the elves do not forget it. Then, seeing that his hosts were overthrown and his power dispersed, Morgoth quailed, and he dared not come forth himself. But he loosed upon his foes the last desperate assault that he had prepared, and out of the pits of Angband there issued the winged dragons that had not before been seen. And so sudden and ruinous was the onset of that dreadful fleet that the hosts of the Valar were driven back for the coming of the dragons was with great thunder and lightning and a tempest of fire. But Eärendil came, shining with white flame, and about Vingilot were gathered all the great birds of heaven, and Thorondor was their captain, and there was battle in the air all the day and through a dark night of doubt. Before the rising of the sun, Eärendil slew Ancalagan the Black, the mightiest of the dragon host, and cast him from the sky. And he fell upon the towers of Thangorodrim, and they were broken in his ruin. Then the sun rose, and the hosts of the Valar prevailed, and well-nigh all the dragons were destroyed, and all the pits of Morgoth were broken and unroofed, and the might of the Valar descended into the deeps of the earth. There Morgoth stood at last at bay, and yet... Unvaliant. He fled into the deepest of his mines and sued for peace and pardon, but his feet were hewn from under him, and he was hurled upon his face. Then he was bound with the chain and Gynor, which he had worn aforetime, and his iron crown they beat into a collar for his neck, and his head was bowed upon his knees, and the two Silmarils which remained to Morgoth were taken from his crown and they shone unsullied beneath the sky, and Aonwe took them and guarded them. Thus an end was made of the power of Angband in the north, and the evil realm was brought to naught. And out of the deep prisons a multitude of slaves came forth beyond all hope into the light of day, and they looked upon a world that was changed. For so great was the fury of those adversaries that the northern regions of the western world were rent asunder, and the sea roared in through many chasms, and there was confusion and great noise. 
and rivers perished or found new paths, and the valleys were upheaved, and the hills trod down, and Sirion was no more. Then Aeonwe, as herald of the elder king, summoned the elves of Beleriand to depart from Middle-earth. But Maedhros and Maglor would not hearken, and they prepared, though now with weariness and loathing, to attempt in despair the fulfilment of their oath, for they would have given battle for the Silmarils where they withheld, even against the victorious host of Valinor, even though they stood alone against all the world. And they sent a message, therefore, to Aonwe, bidding him yield up now those jewels which of old Feanor their father made, and Morgoth stole from him. But Aonwe answered that the right to the work of their father, which the sons of Feanor formerly possessed, had now perished, because of their many and merciless deeds being blinded by their oath, and most of all, because of their slaying of Dior and the assault upon the havens. The light of the Silmarils should go now into the west, whence it came in the beginning, and to Valinor must Maedhros and Maglor return, and there abide the judgment of the Valar, by whose decree alone would Aonwe yield the jewels from his charge. Then Maglor desired indeed to submit, for his heart was sorrowful, and he said, The oath says not that we may not bide our time, and it may be that in Valinor all shall be forgiven and forgot, and we shall come into our own in peace. But Maedhras answered that if they returned to Ammon, but the favour of the Valar were withheld from them, then their oath would still remain, but its fulfilment be beyond all hope. And he said, Who can tell to what dreadful doom we shall come if we disobey the powers in their own land, or purpose ever to bring war again into their holy realm? Yet Maglor still held back, saying, if Manwe and Varda themselves deny the fulfilment of an oath to which we name them in witness, is it not made void? And Maedhras answered, But how shall our voices reach to Ilovatar beyond the circles of the world? And by Ilovatar we swore in our madness, and called the everlasting darkness upon us if we kept not our word. Who shall release us? If none can release us said Maglor. Then indeed the everlasting darkness shall be our lot, whether we keep our oath or break it. But less evil shall we do in the breaking. Yet he yielded at last to the will of Maedhros, and they took counsel together how they should lay hands on the Silmarils. And they disguised themselves and came in the night to the camp of Aonwe, and crept into the place where the Silmarils were guarded, and they slew the guards and laid hands on the jewels. Then all the camp was raised against them, and they prepared to die, defending themselves until the last. But Aonwe would not permit the slaying of the sons of Feanor, and departing unfought, they fled far away. Each of them took to himself a Silmaril, for they said, Since one is lost to us, and but two remain, and we two alone of our brothers— so is it plain that fate would have us share the heirlooms of our father. But the jewel burned the hand of Maedhros in pain unbearable, and he perceived that it was as Aonwe had said, 
and that his right thereto had become void, and that the oath was vain. And being in anguish and despair, he cast himself into a gaping chasm filled with fire, and so ended. And the silmaril that he bore was taken into the bosom of the earth. And it is told of Maglor that he could not endure the pain with which the silmaril tormented him, and he cast it at last into the sea, and thereafter he wandered ever upon the shores, singing in pain and regret beside the waves. For Maglor was mighty among the singers of old, named only after Daron of Doriath. But he came never back among the people of the elves. And thus it came to pass that the Silmarils found their long homes, one in the airs of heaven, and one in the fires of the heart of the world, and one in the deep waters. In those days there was a great building of ships upon the shores of the western sea, and thence in many a fleet the Eldar set sail into the west, and came never back to the lands of weeping and of war. And the Vanyar returned beneath their white banners, and were borne in triumph to Valinor. But their joy in victory was diminished, for they returned without the Silmarils from Morgoth's crown, and they knew that those jewels could not be found or brought together again, unless the world be broken and remade. And when they came into the west, the elves of Beleriand dwelt upon Tol Aresia, the lonely isle, that looks both west and east, whence they might come even to Valinor. They were admitted again to the love of Manwe, and the pardon of the Valar, and the Teleri forgave their ancient grief, and the curse was laid to rest. Yet not all the Eldalia were willing to forsake the hither lands where they had long suffered and long dwelt, and some lingered many an age in Middle-earth, among those were Círdan the shipwright, and Celeborn of Doriath, with Galadriel his wife, who alone remained of those who led the Noldor to exile in Beleriand. In Middle-earth dwelt also Gilgalad the High King, and with him was Elrond half-elven, who chose, as was granted to him, to be numbered among the Eldar. But Elros, his brother, chose to abide with men, and from these brethren alone has come among men the blood of the firstborn and the strain of the spirits divine that were before Arda, for they were the sons of Elwing, Dior's daughter, Luthien's son, child of Thingol and Melian. And Earendil, their father, was the son of Idril Celebrindal, Torgon's daughter of Gondolin. But Morgoth himself, the Valar, thrust through the door of night beyond the walls of the world into the timeless void. And a guard is set forever on those walls, and Earendil keeps watch upon the ramparts of the sky. Yet the lies that Melkor, the mighty and the cursed, Morgoth Bauglir, the power of terror and of hate, sowed in the hearts of elves and men, are a seed that does not die and cannot be destroyed. And ever and anon it sprouts anew, and will bear dark fruit even unto the latest days. <laughs> he
here ends the Silmarillion. If it has passed from the high and the beautiful to darkness and ruin, it was of old the fate of Arda Mard, and if any change shall come and the marring be amended, Manwe and Varda may know, but they have not revealed it, and it is not declared in the dunes of Mandos. Akalabeth, the downfall of Númenor. It is said by the Eldar that men came into the world in the time of the shadow of Morgoth, and they fell swiftly under his dominion. For he sent his emissaries among them, and they listened to his evil and cunning words, and they worshipped the darkness, and yet feared it. But there were some that turned from evil, and left the lands of their kindred, and wandered ever westward. For they had heard a rumour that in the west there was a light which the shadow could not dim. The servants of Morgoth pursued them with hatred, and their ways were long and hard. Yet they came at last to the lands that look upon the sea, and they entered Beleriand in the days of the War of the Jewels. The Adain, these were named in the Sindarin tongue, and they became friends and allies of the Eldar, and did deeds of great valour in the war against Morgoth. Of them was sprung, upon the side of his fathers, bright Earendil, and in the lay of Earendil it is told how at the last, when the victory of Morgoth was almost complete, he built his ship Vingilot, that men called Rothinzil, and voyaged upon the unsailed seas, seeking ever for Valinor, for he desired to speak before the powers on behalf of the two kindreds, that the Valar might have pity on them, and send them help in their uttermost need. Therefore, by elves and men, he is called Earendil the Blessed, for he achieved his quest after long labours and many perils, and from Valinor there came the host of the lords of the west. But Earendil came never back to the lands that he had loved. In the great battle, when at last Morgoth was overthrown and Thangorodrim was broken, the Edain alone of the kindreds of men fought for the Valar, whereas many others fought for Morgoth. And after the victory of the lords of the west, those of the evil men, who were not destroyed, fled back into the east, where many of their race were still wandering in the unharvested lands, wild and lawless, refusing alike the summons of the Valar and of Morgoth. And the evil men came among them, and cast over them a shadow of fear, and they took them for kings. Then the Valar forsook for a time the men of Middle-earth, who had refused their summons and had taken the friends of Morgoth to be their masters. And men dwelt in darkness and were troubled by many evil things that Morgoth had devised in the days of his dominion. Demons and dragons and misshapen beasts and the unclean orcs, that are mockeries of the children of Iluvatar, and the lot of men was unhappy. But Manwe put forth Morgoth and shut him beyond the world in the void that is without, and he cannot himself return again into the world, present and visible, 
while the lords of the West are still enthroned. Yet the seeds that he had planted still grew and sprouted, bearing evil fruit, if any would tend them. For his will remained, and guided his servants, moving them ever to thwart the will of the Valar, and to destroy those that obeyed them. This the lords of the West knew full well. When therefore Morgoth had been thrust forth, they held counsel concerning the ages that should come after. The Eldar they summoned to return into the West, and those that hearkened to the summons dwelt in the isle of Eresea. And there is in that land a haven that is named Avalone, for it is of all cities the nearest to Valinor, and the tower of Avalone is the first sight that the mariner beholds when at last he draws nigh to the undying lands over the leagues of the sea. To the fathers of men, of the three faithful houses, rich reward also was given. Aonwe came among them and taught them, and they were given wisdom and power and life more enduring than any others of mortal race have possessed. A land was made for the Edain to dwell in, neither part of Middle-earth nor of Valinor, for it was sundered from either by a wide sea, yet it was nearer to Valinor. It was raised by Asse out of the depths of the great water, and it was established by Aula and enriched by Yavanna. And the Eldar brought thither flowers and fountains out of Tol Eresea. That land the Valar called Andor, the land of gift. And the star of Eärendil shone bright in the west as a token that all was made ready, and as a guide over the sea, and men marvelled to see that silver flame in the paths of the sun. Then the Edain set sail upon the deep waters, following the star. And the Valar laid a peace upon the sea for many days, and sent sunlight and a sailing wind, so that the waters glittered before the eyes of the Edain like rippling glass, and the foam flew like snow before the stems of their ships. But so bright was Rothinzil, that even at morning men could see it glimmering in the west, and in the cloudless night it shone alone, for no other star could stand beside it. And setting their course towards it, the Edain came at last over leagues of sea and saw afar the land that was prepared for them, Andor, the land of gift, shimmering in a golden haze. Then they went up out of the sea, and found a country fair and fruitful, and they were glad. And they called that land Elena, which is Starwoods, but also Anadun, which is Westerness. Numenore, in the high Eldarin tongue. This was the beginning of that people that in the grey elven speech are called the Dunadine, the Numenorians, kings among men. But they did not thus escape from the doom of death that Iluvata had set upon all mankind, and they were mortal still, though their years were long and they knew no sickness ere the shadow fell upon them. Therefore they grew wise and glorious, and in all things more like to the firstborn than any other of the kindreds of men. And they were tall, taller than the tallest of the sons of Middle-earth, and the light of their eyes was like the bright stars. But their numbers increased only slowly in the land, for though daughters and sons were born to them, 
fairer than their fathers, yet their children were few. Of old, the chief city and haven of Númenor was in the midst of its western coasts, and it was called Andúnia, because it faced the sunset. But in the midst of the land was a mountain tall and steep, and it was named the Meneltarma, the Pillar of Heaven, and upon it was a high place that was hallowed to Eru Iluvatar, and it was open and unroofed, and no other temple or fane was there in the land of the Numenorians. At the feet of the mountain were built the tombs of the kings, and hard by upon a hill was Armenelos, fairest of cities, and there stood the tower and the citadel that was raised by Elros, son of Eorendil, whom the Valar appointed to be the first king of the Dunedain. Now Elros and Elrond his brother were descended from the three houses of the Edain, but in part also both from the Eldar and the Maya. For Idril of Gondolin and Luthien, daughter of Melian, were their foremothers. The Valar indeed may not withdraw the gift of death which comes to men from Iluvatar, but in the matter of the half-elven, Iluvatar gave to them the judgment, and they judged that to the sons of Earendil should be given choice of their own destiny. And Elrond chose to remain with the firstborn, and to him the life of the firstborn was granted. But to Elros, who chose to be a king of men, still a great span of years was allotted, many times that of the men of Middle-earth. And all his line, the kings and lords of the royal house, had long life even according to the measure of the Numenorians. But Elros lived five hundred years, and ruled the Numenorians four hundred years and ten. Thus the years passed, and while Middle-earth went backward and light and wisdom faded, the Dúnedain dwelt under the protection of the Valar, and in the friendship of the Eldar, and they increased in stature both of mind and body. For though this people used still their own speech, their kings and lords knew and spoke also the elven tongue, which they had learned in the days of their alliance, and thus they held converse still with the Eldar, whether of Erisea or of the Westlands of Middle-earth. And the lore-masters among them learned also the high Eldarin tongue of the Blessed Realm, in which much story and song was preserved from the beginning of the world. And they made letters and scrolls and books, and wrote in them many things of wisdom and wonder in the high tide of their realm, of which all is now forgot. So it came to pass that, beside their own names, all the lords of the Numenorians had also Eldarin names, and the like with the cities and fair places that they founded in Numenor, and on the shores of the hither lands. For the Dunedain became mighty in crafts, so that if they had had the mind, they could easily have surpassed the evil kings of Middle-earth in the making of war and the forging of weapons. But they were become men of peace. Above all arts they nourished shipbuilding and sea-craft, and they became mariners whose like shall never be again since the world was diminished and voyaging upon the wide seas was the chief feat and adventure of their hardy men in the gallant days of their youth. But the lords of Valinor forbade them to sail so far westward that the coasts of Númenor could no longer be seen, 
and for long the Dunedain were content, though they did not fully understand the purpose of this ban. But the design of Manwe was that the Numenorians should not be tempted to seek for the blessed realm, nor desire to overpass the limits set to their bliss, becoming enamoured of the immortality of the Valar, and the Eldar, and the lands where all things endure. For in those days Valinor still remained in the world visible, and there Iluvatar permitted the Valar to maintain upon earth an abiding place, a memorial of that which might have been if Morgoth had not cast his shadow on the world. This the Numenorians knew full well, and at times, when all the air was clear and the sun was in the east, they would look out and descry far off in the west a city white shining on a distant shore and a great harbour and a tower. For in those days the Numenorians were far-sighted, Yet even so, it was only the keenest eyes among them that could see this vision from the Meneltarma, maybe, or from some tall ship that lay off their western coast as far as it was lawful for them to go. For they did not dare to break the ban of the lords of the west. But the wise among them knew that this distant land was not indeed the blessed realm of Valinor, but was Avalone, the haven of the Eldar, upon Erosea, easternmost of the undying lands. And thence at times the firstborn still would come sailing to Numenor in oarless boats as white birds flying from the sunset. And they brought to Numenor many gifts, birds of song and fragrant flowers and herbs of great virtue. And the seedling they brought of Celeborn, the white tree that grew in the midst of Erosea, and that was in its turn a seedling of Galathilion, the tree of Tuna, the image of Telperion that Yavanna gave to the Eldar in the Blessed Realm. And the tree grew and blossomed in the courts of the king in Armenelos, Nimloth, it was named, and flowered in the evening, and the shadows of night had filled with its fragrance. Thus it was that because of the ban of the Valar, the voyages of the Dunedain in those days went ever eastward and not westward, from the darkness of the north to the heats of the south, and beyond the south to the nether darkness. And they came even into the inner seas, and sailed about Middle-earth, and glimpsed from their high prows the gates of morning in the east. And the Dunedain came at times to the shores of the great lands, and they took pity on the forsaken world of Middle-earth, and the lords of Numenor set foot again upon the western shores in the dark years of men, and none yet dared to withstand them. For most of the men of that age that sat under the shadow were now grown weak and fearful. And coming among them, the Numenorians taught them many things. Corn and wine they brought, and they instructed men in the sowing of seed and the grinding of grain, in the hewing of wood and the shaping of stone, and in the ordering of their life, such as it might be in the lands of swift death and little bliss. Then the men of Middle-earth were comforted, and here and there upon the western shores the houseless woods drew back, and men shook off the yoke of the offspring of Morgoth, and unlearned their terror of the dark and they revered the memory of the tall sea-kings, and when they had departed they called them gods, 
hoping for their return, for at that time the Numenorians dwelt never long in Middle-earth, nor made there as yet any habitation of their own. Eastward they must sail, but ever west their hearts returned. Now this yearning grew ever greater with the years, and the Numenorians began to hunger for the undying city that they saw from afar, and the desire of everlasting life to escape from death, and the ending of delight grew strong upon them. And ever as their power and glory grew greater, their unquiet increased. For though the Valar had rewarded the Dunedain with long life, they could not take from them the weariness of the world that comes at last, and they died, even their kings of the seed of Earendil, and the span of their lives was brief in the eyes of the Eldar. Thus it was that a shadow fell upon them, in which maybe the will of Morgoth was at work that still moved in the world. And the Numenorians began to murmur, at first in their hearts and then in open words, against the doom of men, and most of all against the Ban, which forbade them to sail into the West. And they said among themselves, Why do the lords of the West sit there in peace unending, while we must die and go we know not whither, leaving our home and all that we have made? And the Eldar die not, even those that rebelled against the lords. And since we have mastered all seas, and no water is so wild or so wide that our ships cannot overcome it, why should we not go to Avalone, and greet there our friends? And some there were who said, Why should we not go even to Amman, and taste there, were it but for a day, the bliss of the powers? Have we not become mighty among the people of Arda? The elder reported these words to the Valar, and Manwe was grieved, seeing a cloud gather on the noontide of Numenor. And he sent messengers to the Dunedain, who spoke earnestly to the king and to all who would listen, concerning the fate and fashion of the world. The doom of the world, they said, one alone can change who made it. And were you so to voyage that, escaping all deceits and snares, you came indeed to Ammon, the blessed realm, little would it profit you. For it is not the land of Manwe that makes its people deathless, but the deathless that dwell therein have hallowed the land. And there you would but wither and grow weary the sooner, as moths in a light too strong and steadfast. But the king said, Does not Eärendil, my forefather, live? Or is he not in the land of Ammon? To which they answered, You know that he has a fate apart, and was a judge to the firstborn who die not. Yet this also is his doom, that he can never return again to mortal lands, whereas you and your people are not of the firstborn, but are mortal men, as Ilovata made you. Yet it seems that you desire now to have the good of both kindreds, to sail to Valinor when you will, and to return when you please to your homes. That cannot be. Nor can the Valar take away the gifts of Iluvatar. The Eldar, you say, are unpunished, and even those who rebelled do not die. Yet that is to them neither reward nor punishment, but the fulfillment of their being. They cannot escape and are bound to this world, never to leave it so long as it lasts, for its life is theirs. 
and you are punished for the rebellion of men, you say, in which you had small part, and so it is that you die. But that was not at first appointed for a punishment. Thus you escape and leave the world, and are not bound to it in hope or in weariness. Which of us, therefore, should envy the others? And the Numenorians answered, Why should we not envy the Valar, or even the least of the deathless? For of us is required a blind trust and a hope without assurance, knowing not what lies before us in a little while. And yet we also love the earth, and would not lose it. Then the messengers said, Indeed, the mind of Iluvatar concerning you is not known to the Valar, and he has not revealed all things that are to come. But this we hold to be true, that your home is not here, neither in the land of Ammon nor anywhere within the circles of the world. And the doom of men, that they should depart, was at first a gift of Iluvatar. It became a grief to them only because, coming under the shadow of Morgoth, it seemed to them that they were surrounded by a great darkness of which they were afraid, and some grew willful and proud and would not yield until life was reft from them. We who bear the ever-mounting burden of the years do not clearly understand this. But if that grief has returned to trouble you, as you say, then we fear that the shadow arises once more and grows again in your hearts. Therefore, though you be the Dunadine, fairest of men, who escaped from the shadow of old and fought valiantly against it, we say to you, Beware! The will of Eru may not be gainsaid, and the Valar bid you earnestly not to withhold the trust to which you are called, lest soon it become again a bond by which you are constrained. Hope rather that in the end even the least of your desires shall have fruit. The love of Arda was set in your hearts by Iluvatar, and he does not plant to no purpose. Nonetheless, many ages of men unborn may pass ere that purpose is made known, and to you it will be revealed, and not to the Valar. These things took place in the days of Tar Kiriatan, the shipbuilder, and of Tar Atanamir, his son. And they were proud men, eager for wealth, and they laid the men of Middle-earth under tribute, taking now rather than giving. It was to Tar Atanamir that the messengers came, and he was the thirteenth king, and in his day the realm of Numenor had endured for more than two thousand years, and was come to the zenith of its bliss, if not yet of its power. But Atanamir was ill-pleased with the counsel of the messengers, and gave little heed to it, and the greater part of his people followed him. For they wished still to escape death in their own day, not waiting upon hope. And Atanamir lived to a great age, clinging to his life beyond the end of all joy. And he was the first of the Numenorians to do this, refusing to depart until he was witless and unmanned, and denying to his son the kingship at the height of his days. For the lords of Numenor had been wont to wed late in their long lives, and to depart and leave the mastery to their sons when these were come to full stature of body and mind. Then Tar and Kalimon, son of Atanamir, 
became king, and he was of like mind, and in his day the people of Numenor became divided. On the one hand was the greater party, and they were called the king's men, and they grew proud and were estranged from the Eldar and the Valar. And on the other hand was the lesser party, and they were called the Elendili, the elf friends. For though they remained loyal indeed to the king and the house of Elros, they wished to keep the friendship of the Eldar, and they hearkened to the counsel of the lords of the West. Nonetheless, even they, who named themselves the faithful, did not wholly escape from the affliction of their people, and they were troubled by the thought of death. Thus the bliss of Westerness became diminished. But still its might and splendor increased, for the kings and their people had not yet abandoned wisdom, and if they loved the Valar no longer, at least they still feared them. They did not dare openly to break the ban, or to sail beyond the limits that had been appointed. Eastward still they steered their tall ships. But the fear of death grew ever darker upon them, and they delayed it by all means that they could, and they began to build great houses for their dead, while their wise men laboured unceasingly to discover, if they might, the secret of recalling life, or, at the least, of the prolonging of men's days. Yet they achieved only the art of preserving in corrupt the dead flesh of men, and they filled all the land with silent tombs, in which the thought of death was enshrined in the darkness. But those that lived turned the more eagerly to pleasure and revelry, desiring ever more goods and more riches. And after the days of Tar and Kalimon, the offering of the first fruits to Eru was neglected, and men went seldom any more to the hallow upon the heights of Meneltarma in the midst of the land. Thus it came to pass in that time that the Numenorians first made great settlements upon the west shores of the ancient lands, for their own lands seemed to them shrunken, and they had no rest or content therein, and they desired now wealth and dominion in Middle-earth, since the West was denied. Great harbours and strong towers they made, and there many of them took up their abode. But they appeared now rather as lords and masters and gatherers of tribute than as helpers and teachers, and the great ships of the Numenorians were borne east on the winds and returned ever laden, and the power and majesty of their kings were increased, and they drank, and they feasted, and they clad themselves in silver and gold. In all this the elf-friends had small part. They alone came now ever to the north and the land of Gilgalad, keeping their friendship with the elves, and lending them aid against Sauron. And their haven was Pelagir, above the mouths of Anduin the Great. But the king's men sailed far away to the south, and the lordships and strongholds that they made have left many rumours in the legends of men. In this age, as is elsewhere told, Sauron arose again in Middle-earth and grew and turned back to the evil in which he was nurtured by Morgoth, becoming mighty in his service. Already in the days of Tar Minastir, the eleventh king of Númenor, he had fortified the land of Mordor, and had built there the tower of Barad-dûr, 
and thereafter he strove ever for the dominion of Middle-earth, to become a king over all kings, and as a god unto men. And Sauron hated the Numenorians, because of the deeds of their fathers and their ancient alliance with the elves, and allegiance to the Valar. Nor did he forget the aid that Tar-Minastir had rendered to Gilgalad of old, in that time when the One Ring was forged, and there was war between Sauron and the elves in Eriador. Now he learned that the kings of Numenor had increased in power and splendor, and he hated them the more, and he feared them lest they should invade his lands and wrest from him the dominion of the east. But for a long time he did not dare to challenge the lords of the sea, and he withdrew from the coasts. Yet Sauron was ever guileful, and it is said that among those whom he ensnared with the Nine Rings, three were great lords of Numenorian race. And when the Olyri arose that were the ring-wraiths, his servants, and the strength of his terror and mastery over men had grown exceedingly great, he began to assail the strong places of the Numenorians upon the shores of the sea. In those days the shadow grew deeper upon Numenor, and the lives of the kings of the house of Elros waned because of their rebellion, but they hardened their hearts the more against the Valar. And the nineteenth king took the scepter of his fathers, and he ascended the throne in the name of Adun Akhor, Lord of the West, forsaking the elven tongues and forbidding their use in his hearing. Yet in the scroll of kings, the name Herunumen was inscribed in the high elven speech because of ancient custom, which the kings feared to break utterly, lest evil befall. Now this title seemed to the faithful overproud, being the title of the Valar, and their hearts were sorely tried between their loyalty to the house of Elros and their reverence of the appointed powers. But worse was yet to come. For Ar Gimilzor, the twenty-second king, was the greatest enemy of the faithful. In his day the white tree was untended and began to decline, and he forbade utterly the use of the elven tongues, and punished those that welcomed the ships of Eresea, that still came secretly to the west shores of the land. Now the Elendili dwelt mostly in the western regions of Numenor, but Ar Gimilzor commanded all that he could discover to be of this party to remove from the west and dwell in the east of the land, and there they were watched. And the chief dwelling of the faithful in the later days was thus nigh to the harbour of Romena. Thence many set sail to Middle-earth, seeking the northern coasts where they might speak still with the Eldar in the kingdom of Gilgalad. This was known to the kings, but they hindered it not, so long as the Elendili departed from their land and did not return, for they desired to end all friendship between their people and the Eldar of Eresea, whom they named the Spies of the Valar, hoping to keep their deeds and their counsels hidden from the lords of the west. But all that they did was known to Manwe, and the Valar were wroth with the kings of Numenor, and gave them counsel and protection no more. And the ships of Eresea came never again out of the sunset, and the havens of Andunia were forlorn.
highest in honour after the house of the kings, were the lords of Andunia, for they were of the line of Elros, being descended from Silmarion, daughter of Tar Elendil, the fourth king of Numenor. And these lords were loyal to the kings, and revered them. And the lord of Andunia was ever among the chief counsellors of the scepter. Yet also from the beginning they bore especial love to the Eldar and reverence for the Valar. And as the shadow grew, they aided the faithful as they could. But for long they did not declare themselves openly, and sought rather to amend the hearts of the lords of the scepter with wiser counsels. There was a lady, Inzilbeth, renowned for her beauty, and her mother was Lindoria, sister of Eärendur, the lord of Andunia, in the days of Ar Sakalthor, father of Ar Gimilzor. Gimilzor took her to wife, though this was little to her liking, for she was in heart one of the faithful, being taught by her mother. But the kings and their sons were grown proud, and not to be gainsaid in their wishes. No love was there between Ar Gimilzor and his queen, or between their sons. In Ziladun the elder was like his mother in mind as in body. But Gimilchad the younger went with his father, unless he were yet prouder and more willful. To him Ar Gimilzor would have yielded the scepter rather than to the elder son, if the laws had allowed. But when Inziladun acceded to the scepter, he took again a title in the elven tongue as of old, calling himself Tar Palantir, for he was far-sighted both in eye and in mind, and even those that hated him feared his words as those of a true seer. He gave peace for a while to the faithful, and he went once more at due seasons to the hallow of Eru upon the Meneltarma, which Ar Gimilzor had forsaken. The white tree he tended again with honour, and he prophesied, saying that when the tree perished, then also would the line of the kings come to its end. But his repentance was too late to appease the anger of the Valar with the insolence of his fathers, of which the greater part of his people did not repent. And Gimilchad was strong and ungentle, and he took the leadership of those that had been called the king's men, and opposed the will of his brother as openly as he dared, and yet more in secret. Thus the days of Tar Palantir became darkened with grief, and he would spend much of his time in the west, and there ascended often the ancient tower of King Minastir upon the hill of Oremet, nigh to Andunia, whence he gazed westward in yearning, hoping to see, maybe, some sail upon the sea. But no ship came ever again from the west to Numenor, and Avalone was veiled in cloud. Now Gimilchad died two years before his two hundredth year, which was accounted an early death for one of Elros' line, even in its waning. But this brought no peace to the king. For Pharazon, son of Gimilchad, had become a man yet more restless and eager for wealth and power than his father. He had fared often abroad as a leader in the wars that the Numenorians made then in the coastlands of Middle-earth, seeking to extend their dominion over men, 
and thus he had won great renown as a captain both by land and by sea. Therefore, when he came back to Numenor, hearing of his father's death, the hearts of the people were turned to him, for he brought with him great wealth and was for the time free in his giving. And it came to pass that Tar Palantir grew weary of grief and died. He had no son but a daughter only, whom he named Miriel in the elven tongue. And to her now by right and the laws of the Numenorians came the scepter. But Pharazon took her to wife against her will, doing evil in this and evil also, in that the laws of Numenor did not permit the marriage, even in the royal house, of those more nearly akin than cousins in the second degree. And when they were wedded, he seized the scepter into his own hand, taking the title of Ar Pharazon, Tarkalion in the elven tongue. And the name of his queen he changed to Ar Zimraphel. The mightiest and proudest was Ar Pharazon the Golden, of all those that had wielded the scepter of the sea kings since the foundation of Numenor. And three and twenty kings and queens had ruled the Numenorians before, and slept now in their deep tombs under the mount of Meneltarma, lying upon beds of gold. And sitting upon his carven throne in the city of Armenelos, in the glory of his power, he brooded darkly, thinking of war. For he had learned in Middle-earth of the strength of the realm of Sauron, and of his hatred of Westerness. And now there came to him the masters of ships and captains returning out of the east, and they reported that Sauron was putting forth his might, since our Pharazon had gone back from Middle-earth, and he was pressing down upon the cities by the coasts. And he had taken now the title of King of Men, and declared his purpose to drive the Numenorians into the sea, and destroy even Numenor, if that might be. Great was the anger of Ar Pharazon at these tidings, and as he pondered long in secret, his heart was filled with the desire of power unbounded and the sole dominion of his will, and he determined without counsel of the Valar or the aid of any wisdom but his own that the title King of Men he would himself claim, and would compel Sauron to become his vassal and his servant. For in his pride he deemed that no king should ever arise so mighty as to vie with the heir of Earendil. Therefore he began in that time to smithy great hoard of weapons, and many ships of war he built, and stored them with his arms, and when all was made ready, he himself set sail with his host into the east. And men saw his sails coming up out of the sunset, dyed as with scarlet and gleaming with red and gold, and fear fell upon the dwellers by the coasts, and they fled far away. But the fleet came at last to that place that was called Umbar, where was the mighty haven of the Numenorians that no hand had wrought. Empty and silent were all the lands about when the king of the sea marched upon Middle-earth. For seven days he journeyed, with banner and trumpet, and he came to a hill, and he went up, and he set there his pavilion and his throne, and he sat him down in the midst of the land, 
and the tents of his host were ranged all about him, blue, golden, and white, as a field of tall flowers. Then he sent forth heralds, and he commanded Sauron to come before him and swear to him fealty. And Sauron came. Even from his mighty tower of Barad-dûr he came, and made no offer of battle. For he perceived that the power and majesty of the kings of the sea surpassed all rumour of them, so that he could not trust even the greatest of his servants to withstand them, and he saw not his time yet to work his will with the Dunedain. And he was crafty, well skilled to gain what he would by subtlety, when force might not avail. Therefore he humbled himself before Arpharazon, and smoothed his tongue, and men wondered, for all that he said seemed fair and wise. But Arpharazon was not yet deceived, and it came into his mind that, for the better keeping of Sauron, and of his oaths of fealty, he should be brought to Numenor, there to dwell as a hostage for himself and all his servants in Middle-earth. To this Sauron assented as one constrained, yet in his secret thought he received it gladly, for it chimed indeed with his desire. And Sauron passed over the sea, and looked upon the land of Numenor, and on the city of Armenolos in the days of its glory, and he was astounded. But his heart within was filled the more with envy and hate. Yet such was the cunning of his mind and mouth, and the strength of his hidden will, that ere three years had passed he had become closest to the secret counsels of the king. For flattery, sweet as honey, was ever on his tongue, and knowledge he had of many things yet unrevealed to men. And seeing the favour that he had of their lord, all the counsellors began to fawn upon him, save one alone, Amandil, lord of Andunia. Then slowly a change came over the land, and the hearts of the elf friends were sorely troubled, and many fell away out of fear. And although those that remained still called themselves the faithful, their enemies named them rebels. For now, having the ears of men, Sauron with many arguments gainsaid all that the Valar had taught and he bade men think that in the world, in the east and even in the west, there lay yet many seas and many lands for their winning, wherein was wealth uncounted. And still, if they should at the last come to the end of those lands and seas, beyond all lay the ancient darkness. And out of it the world was made, for darkness alone is worshipful and the Lord thereof may yet make other worlds to be gifts to those that serve him, so that the increase of their power shall find no end. And Arpharazon said, Who is the Lord of the darkness? Then behind locked doors Sauron spoke to the king, and he lied, saying, It is he whose name is not now spoken. For the Valar have deceived you concerning him, putting forward the name of Eru. A phantom, devised in the folly of their hearts, seeking to enchain men in servitude to themselves, 
for they are the oracle of this Eru, which speaks only what they will. But he that is their master shall yet prevail, and he will deliver you from this phantom, and his name is Melkor, lord of all, giver of freedom, and he shall make you stronger than they. Then Arpharazon the king turned back to the worship of the dark, and of Melkor, the lord thereof, at first in secret, but ere long openly and in the face of his people. And they for the most part followed him. Yet there dwelt still a remnant of the faithful, as has been told, at Romena, and in the country near, and other few there were here and there in the land. The chief among them, to whom they looked for leading and courage in evil days, was Amandil, counsellor of the king, and his son Elendil, whose sons were Isildur and Anarion, then young men by the reckoning of Numenor. Amandil and Elendil were great ship captains, and they were of the line of Elros Tarminiatur though not of the ruling house, to whom belonged the crown and the throne in the city of Armenelos. In the days of their youth together, Amandil had been dear to Pharazon, and though he was of the elf friends, he remained in his council until the coming of Sauron. Now he was dismissed, for Sauron hated him above all others in Numenor. But he was so noble, and had been so mighty a captain of the sea, that he was still held in honour by many of the people, and neither the king nor Sauron dared to lay hands on him, as yet. Therefore Amandil withdrew to Romena, and all that he trusted still to be faithful, he summoned to come thither in secret, for he feared that evil would now grow apace, and all the elf friends were in peril. And so it soon came to pass for the Meneltarma was utterly deserted in those days, and though not even Sauron dared to defile the high place, yet the king would let no man upon pain of death ascend to it, not even those of the faithful who kept Iluvatar in their hearts. And Sauron urged the king to cut down the white tree, Nimloth the fair, that grew in his courts, for it was a memorial of the Eldar and of the light of Valinor. At the first the king would not assent to this, since he believed that the fortunes of his house were bound up with the tree, as was forespoken by Tar Palantir. Thus in his folly, he who now hated the Eldar and the Valar vainly clung to the shadow of the old allegiance of Numenor. But when Amandil heard rumour of the evil purpose of Sauron, he was grieved to the heart, knowing that in the end Sauron would surely have his will. Then he spoke to Elendil and the sons of Elendil, recalling the tale of the trees of Valinor. And Isildur said no word, but went out by night, and did a deed for which he was afterwards renowned. For he passed alone in disguise to Armenolos and into the courts of the king, which were now forbidden to the faithful. And he came to the place of the tree, which was forbidden to all by the orders of Sauron. And the tree was watched by day and night by guards in his service. 
At that time, Nimloth was dark and bore no bloom, for it was late in the autumn, and its winter was nigh. And Isildur passed through the guards, and took from the tree a fruit that hung upon it, and turned to go. But the guard was aroused, and he was assailed, and fought his way out, receiving many wounds, and he escaped. And because he was disguised, it was not discovered who had laid hands on the tree. But Isildur came at last hardly back to Romena, and delivered the fruit to the hands of Amandil, ere his strength failed him. Then the fruit was planted in secret, and it was blessed by Amandil, and a shoot arose from it and sprouted in the spring. But when its first leaf opened, then Isildur, who had lain long and come near to death, arose and was troubled no more by his wounds. None too soon was this done, for after the assault the king yielded to Sauron and felled the white tree, and turned then wholly away from the allegiance of his fathers. But Sauron caused to be built upon the hill, in the midst of the city of the Numenorians, Armenolos the Golden, a mighty temple. And it was in the form of a circle at the base, and there the walls were fifty feet in thickness, and the width of the base was five hundred feet across the centre. And the walls rose from the ground five hundred feet, and they were crowned with a mighty dome, and that dome was roofed all with silver, and rose glittering in the sun, so that the light of it could be seen afar off. But soon the light was darkened, and the silver became black. For there was an altar of fire in the midst of the temple, and in the topmost of the dome there was a louver, whence there issued a great smoke. And the first fire upon the altar Sauron kindled with the hewn wood of Nimloth. And it crackled and was consumed. But men marveled at the reek that went up from it, so that the land lay under a cloud for seven days, until slowly it passed into the west. Thereafter the fire and smoke went up without ceasing, for the power of Sauron daily increased, and in that temple with spilling of blood and torment and great wickedness men made sacrifice to Melkor, that he should release them from death. And most often from among the faithful they chose their victims. Yet never openly on the charge that they would not worship Melkor, the giver of freedom, Rather was cause sought against them that they hated the king and were his rebels, or that they plotted against their kin, devising lies and poisons. These charges were for the most part false. Yet those were bitter days, and hate brings forth hate. But for all this, death did not depart from the land. Rather it came sooner and more often, and in many dreadful guises. For whereas aforetime men had grown slowly old, and had laid them down in the end to sleep when they were weary at last of the world, now madness and sickness assailed them. And yet they were afraid to die and go out into the dark, the realm of the Lord that they had taken, and they cursed themselves in their agony. And men took weapons in those days and slew one another for little cause, for they were become quick to anger. And Sauron, or those whom he had bound to himself, went about the land setting man against man, so that the people murmured against the king and the lords 
or against any that had aught that they had not, and the men of power took cruel revenge. Nonetheless, for long it seemed to the Numenorians that they prospered, and if they were not increased in happiness, yet they grew more strong, and their rich men ever richer. For with the aid and counsel of Sauron, they multiplied their possessions, and they devised engines, and they built ever greater ships. And they sailed now with power and armory to Middle-earth, and they came no longer as bringers of gifts, nor even as rulers, but as fierce men of war. And they hunted the men of Middle-earth, and took their goods and enslaved them, and many they slew cruelly upon their altars. For they built in their fortresses temples and great tombs in those days, and men feared them, and the memory of the kindly kings of the ancient days faded from the world and was darkened by many a tale of dread. Thus Arpharazon, king of the land of the star, grew to the mightiest tyrant that had yet been in the world since the reign of Morgoth, though in truth Sauron ruled all from behind the throne. But the years passed, and the king felt the shadow of death approach, as his days lengthened, and he was filled with fear and wrath. Now came the hour that Sauron had prepared and long had awaited, and Sauron spoke to the king, saying that his strength was now so great that he might think to have his will in all things and be subject to no command or ban, and he said, The Valar have possessed themselves of the land where there is no death, and they lie to you concerning it, hiding it as best they may because of their avarice and their fear, lest the kings of men should wrest from them the deathless realm and rule the world in their stead. And though doubtless the gift of life unending is not for all, but only for such as are worthy, being men of might and pride and great lineage, Yet against all justice is it done, that this gift which is his due should be withheld from the king of kings. Arpharazon, mightiest of the sons of earth, to whom Manwe alone can be compared, if even he. But great kings do not brook denials, and take what is their due. Then Arpharazon, being besotted, and walking under the shadow of death, for his span was drawing towards its end, hearkened to Sauron, and he began to ponder in his heart how he might make war upon the Valar. He was long preparing this design, and he spoke not openly of it, yet it could not be hidden from all. And Amandil, becoming aware of the purposes of the king, was dismayed and filled with a great dread, for he knew that men could not vanquish the Valar in war and that ruin must come upon the world if this war were not stayed. Therefore he called his son Elendil, and he said to him, The days are dark, and there is no hope for men, for the faithful are few. Therefore I am minded to try that counsel which our forefather Earendil took of old, to sail into the west, be there ban or no, and to speak to the Valar, even to Manwe himself, if may be and beseech his aid ere all is lost. "'Would you then betray the king?' said Elendil. "'For you know well the charge that they make against us, that we are traitors and spies, and that until this day it has been false.' 
If I thought that Manwe needed such a messenger, said Amandil, I would betray the king. For there is but one loyalty from which no man can be absolved in heart for any cause. But it is for mercy upon men, and their deliverance from Sauron the deceiver that I would plead, since some at least have remained faithful, and as for the ban, I will suffer in myself the penalty, lest all my people should become guilty. But what think you, my father, is like to befall those of your house whom you leave behind when your deed becomes known? It must not become known, said Amandil. I will prepare my going in secret, and I will set sail into the east whither daily the ships depart from our havens. And thereafter, as wind and chance may allow, I will go about, through south or north, back into the west, and seek what I may find. But for you and your folk, my son, I counsel that you should prepare yourselves other ships, and put aboard all such things as your hearts cannot bear to part with. And when the ships are ready, you should lie in the haven of Romena, and give out among men that you purpose, when you see your time, to follow me into the east. Amandil is no longer so dear to our kinsmen upon the throne that he will grieve overmuch if we seek to depart for a season or for good. But let it not be seen that you intend to take many men, or he will be troubled because of the war that he now plots for which he will need all the force that he may gather. Seek out the faithful that are known still to be true, and let them join you in secret if they are willing to go with you and share in your design. And what shall that design be? said Elendil. To meddle not in the war and to watch, answered Amandil. Until I return I can say no more. But it is most like that you shall fly from the land of the star with no star to guide you, for that land is defiled. Then you shall lose all that you have loved, foretasting death in life, seeking a land of exile elsewhere. But east or west, the Valar alone can say. Then Amandil said farewell to all his household as one that is about to die. For, said he, it may well prove that you shall see me never again, and that I shall show you no such sign as Erendil showed long ago. But hold you ever in readiness, for the end of the world that we have known is now at hand. It is said that Amandil set sail in a small ship at night and steered first eastward, and then went about and passed into the west. And he took with him three servants dear to his heart, and never again were they heard of by word or sign in this world, nor is there any tale or guess of their fate. Men could not a second time be saved by any such embassy, and for the treason of Numenor there was no easy absolving. But Elendil did all that his father had bidden, and his ships lay off the east coast of the land, and the faithful put aboard their wives and their children and their heirlooms and great store of goods. Many things there were of beauty and power, such as the Numenorians had contrived in the days of their wisdom, vessels and jewels, and scrolls of law written in scarlet and black, and seven stones they had, the gift of the Eldar. But in the ship of Isildur, was guarded the young tree, the scion of Nimloth the Fair. 
Thus Elendil held himself in readiness, and did not meddle in the evil deeds of those days, and ever he looked for a sign that did not come. Then he journeyed in secret to the western shores, and gazed out over the sea, for sorrow and yearning were upon him, and he greatly loved his father. But naught could he descry save the fleets of Ar-Pharazon gathering in the havens of the west. Now aforetime in the isle of Numenor the weather was ever apt to the needs and liking of men, rain in due season and ever in measure, and sunshine now warmer, now cooler, and winds from the sea. And when the wind was in the west, it seemed to many that it was filled with a fragrance, fleeting but sweet, heart-stirring, as of flowers that bloom forever in undying meads, and have no names on mortal shores. But all this was now changed, for the sky itself was darkened, and there were storms of rain and hail in those days, and violent winds, and ever and anon a great ship of the Numenorians would founder and return not to Haven though such a grief had not till then befallen them since the rising of the star. And out of the west there would come at times a great cloud in the evening, shaped as it were an eagle, with pinions spread to the north and the south, and slowly it would loom up, blotting out the sunset, and then uttermost night would fall upon Numenor. And some of the eagles bore lightning beneath their wings, and thunder echoed between sea and cloud. Then men grew afraid. Behold, the eagles of the lords of the west, they cried. The eagles of Manwe are come upon Numenor. And they fell upon their faces. Then some few would repent, for a season. But others hardened their hearts, and they shook their fists at heaven, saying, The lords of the west have plotted against us. They strike first. The next blow shall be ours. These words the king himself spoke, but they were devised by Sauron. Now the lightnings increased and slew men upon the hills, and in the fields, and in the streets of the city, and a fiery bolt smote the dome of the temple and shore it asunder, and it was wreathed in flame. But the temple itself was unshaken, and Sauron stood there upon the pinnacle, and defied the lightning, and was unharmed. And in that hour men called him a god, and did all that he would. When therefore the last portent came, they heeded it little. For the land shook under them, and a groaning as of thunder underground was mingled with the roaring of the sea, and smoke issued from the peak of the Meneltarma. But all the more did Ard Farazon press on with his armament. In that time the fleets of the Numenorians darkened the sea upon the west of the land, and they were like an archipelago of a thousand isles. Their masts were as a forest upon the mountains, and their sails like a brooding cloud, and their banners were golden and black, and all things waited upon the word of Ard Farazon. And Sauron withdrew into the inmost circle of the temple, and men brought him victims to be burned. Then the eagles of the lords of the west came up out of the dayfall, and they were arrayed as for battle, advancing in a line the end of which diminished beyond sight. And as they came, their wings spread ever wider, grasping the sky. But the west burned red behind them, and they glowed beneath, 
as though they were lit with a flame of great anger, so that all Numenor was illumined as with a smouldering fire. And men looked upon the faces of their fellows, and it seemed to them that they were red with wrath. Then Arpharazon hardened his heart, and he went aboard his mighty ship, Al-Karondas, Castle of the Sea. Many oared it was, and many mastered, golden and sable, and upon it the throne of Arpharazon was set. Then he did on his panoply and his crown, and let raise his standard, and he gave the signal for the raising of the anchors, and in that hour the trumpets of Numenor outrang the thunder. Thus the fleets of the Numenorians moved against the menace of the west, and there was little wind, but they had many oars and many strong slaves to row beneath the lash. The sun went down, and there came a great silence. Darkness fell upon the land, and the sea was still, while the world waited for what should betide. Slowly the fleets passed out of the sight of the watchers in the havens, and their lights faded, and night took them, and in the morning they were gone. For a wind arose in the east, and it wafted them away, and they broke the ban of the Valar, and sailed into forbidden seas, going up with war against the deathless, to wrest from them everlasting life within the circles of the world. But the fleets of Arpharazon came up out of the deeps of the sea, and encompassed Avalone and all the isles of Eresea, and the Eldar mourned, for the light of the setting sun was cut off by the cloud of the Numenorians. And at last Arpharazon came even to Aman, the blessed realm, and the coasts of Valinor, and still all was silent, and doom hung by a thread. For Arpharazon wavered at the end, and almost he turned back. His heart misgave him when he looked upon the soundless shores, and saw Taniquetil shining whiter than snow, colder than death, silent, immutable, terrible as the shadow of the light of Iluvatar. But pride was now his master, and at last he left his ship and strode upon the shore, claiming the land for his own, if none should do battle for it. And a host of the Numenorians encamped in might about Tunar, whence all the Eldar had fled. Then Manwe, upon the mountain, called upon Iluvatar, and for that time the Valar laid down their government of Arda. But Iluvatar showed forth his power, and he changed the fashion of the world, and a great chasm opened in the sea between Numenor and the deathless lands, and the waters flowed down into it, and the noise and smoke of the cataracts went up to heaven, and the world was shaken. And all the fleets of the Numenorians were drawn down into the abyss, and they were drowned and swallowed up forever. But Arpharazon the king and the mortal warriors that had set foot upon the land of Ammon were buried under falling hills. There it is said that they lie imprisoned in the caves of the Forgotten until the last battle and the day of doom. But the land of Ammon and Eresea of the Elder were taken away and removed beyond the reach of men forever. And Andor, the land of gift, Numenor of the kings, Elenor of the star of Earendil, was utterly destroyed.
for it was nigh to the east of the great rift, and its foundations were overturned, and it fell and went down into darkness, and is no more. And there is not now upon earth any place abiding where the memory of a time without evil is preserved. For Iluvatar cast back the great seas west of Middle-earth, and the empty lands east of it, and new lands and new seas were made, and the world was diminished, for Valinor and Eresea were taken from it into the realm of hidden things. In an hour unlooked for by men, this doom befell on the nine-and-thirtieth day since the passing of the fleets. Then suddenly fire burst from the Meneltarma, and there came a mighty wind and a tumult of the earth, and the sky reeled and the hills slid, and Numenor went down into the sea with all its children and its wives and its maidens and its ladies proud, and all its gardens and its halls and its towers, its tombs and its riches and its jewels and its webs and its things painted and carven, and its laughter and its mirth and its music, its wisdom and its law, they vanished forever. And last of all, the mounting wave, green and cold and plumed with foam, climbing over the land, took to its bosom Tarmiriel the Queen, fairer than silver or ivory or pearls. Too late she strove to ascend the steep ways of the Menel Tarma to the holy place, for the waters overtook her, and her cry was lost in the roaring of the wind. But whether or no it were that Amandil came indeed to Valinor, and Manwe hearkened to his prayer, by grace of the Valar, Elendil and his sons and their people were spared from the ruin of that day. For Elendil had remained in Romena, refusing the summons of the king when he set forth to war, and avoiding the soldiers of Sauron that came to seize him and drag him to the fires of the temple, he went aboard his ship and stood off from the shore, waiting on the time. There he was protected by the land from the great draught of the sea that drew all towards the abyss, and afterwards he was sheltered from the first fury of the storm. But when the devouring wave rolled over the land, and Numenor toppled to its fall, then he would have been overwhelmed, and would have deemed it the lesser grief to perish, for no wrench of death could be more bitter than the loss and agony of that day. But the great wind took him, wilder than any wind that men had known, roaring from the west, and it swept his ships far away, and it rent their sails and snapped their masts, hunting the unhappy men like straws upon the water. Nine ships there were, four for Elendil, and for Isildur, three, and for Anarion, two. And they fled before the black gale out of the twilight of doom into the darkness of the world. And the deeps rose beneath them in towering anger, and waves like unto mountains moving with great caps of riven snow bore them up amid the wreckage of the clouds, and after many days cast them away upon the shores of Middle-earth. And all the coasts and seaward regions of the western world suffered great change and ruin in that time, for the seas invaded the lands, and shores foundered, and ancient isles were drowned and new isles were uplifted, and hills crumbled, and rivers were turned into strange courses. 
Elendil and his sons after founded kingdoms in Middle-earth, and though their lore and craft was but an echo of that which had been ere Sauron came to Numenor, yet very great it seemed to the wild men of the world. And much is said in other lore of the deeds of the heirs of Elendil in the age that came after, and of their strife with Sauron that not yet was ended. For Sauron himself was filled with great fear that the wrath of the Valar and the doom that Eru laid upon sea and land. It was greater far than aught he had looked for, hoping only for the death of the Numenorians and the defeat of their proud king. And Sauron, sitting in his black seat in the midst of the temple, had laughed when he heard the trumpets of Arpharazon sounding for battle. And again he had laughed when he heard the thunder of the storm. And a third time, even as he laughed at his own thought, thinking what he would do now in the world, being rid of the Edain forever, he was taken in the midst of his mirth, and his seat and his temple fell into the abyss. But Sauron was not of mortal flesh, and though he was robbed now of that shape in which he had wrought so great an evil, so that he could never again appear fair to the eyes of men, yet his spirit arose out of the deep, and passed as a shadow and a black wind over the sea, and came back to Middle-earth, and to Mordor, that was his home. There he took up again his great ring in Barad-dûr, and dwelt there, dark and silent, until he wrought himself a new guise, an image of malice and hatred made visible, and the eye of Sauron the Terrible few could endure. But these things come not into the tale of the drowning of Numenor, of which now all is told. And even the name of that land perished, and men spoke thereafter not of Elena, nor of Andor the gift that was taken away, nor of Numenora on the confines of the world. But the exiles on the shores of the sea, if they turned towards the west in the desire of their hearts, spoke of Mar Nufalmar that was whelmed in the waves, Akalabeth the downfallen, Atalanta, in the Eldarin tongue. Among the exiles many believed that the summit of the Meneltarma, the pillar of heaven, was not drowned for ever, but rose again above the waves, a lonely island lost in the great waters. For it had been a hallowed place, and even in the days of Sauron none had defiled it. And some there were of the seed of Earendil that afterwards sought for it, because it was said among lawmasters that the far-sighted men of old could see from the Meneltarma a glimmer of the deathless land. For even after the ruin, the hearts of the Dunedain were still set westwards. And though they knew indeed that the world was changed, they said, Avalone is vanished from the earth, and the land of Ammon is taken away, and in the world of this present darkness they cannot be found. Yet once they were, and therefore they still are, in true being, and in the whole shape of the world, as at first it was devised. For the Dunedain held that even mortal men, if so blessed, might look upon other times than those of their body's life. And they longed ever to escape from the shadows of their exile, and to see in some fashion the light that dies not. For the sorrow of the thought of death had pursued them over the deeps of the sea. Thus it was, 
that great mariners among them would still search the empty seas, hoping to come upon the isle of Meneltarma, and there to see a vision of things that were. But they found it not. And those that sailed far came only to the new lands, and found them like to the old lands, and subject to death. And those that sailed furthest set but a girdle about the earth, and returned weary at last to the place of their beginning, and they said, All roads are now bent. Thus in after days, what by the voyages of ships, what by lord and starcraft, the kings of men knew that the world was indeed made round. And yet the Eldar were permitted still to depart and to come to the ancient west, and to Avalone if they would. Therefore the lawmasters of men said that a straight road must still be for those that were permitted to find it. And they taught that, while the new world fell away, the old road and the path of the memory of the West still went on, as it were, a mighty bridge invisible that passed through the air of breath and of flight, which were bent now as the world was bent, and traversed Ilmen, which flesh unaided cannot endure, until it came to Tol Eresea, the lonely isle, and maybe even beyond to Valinor, where the Valar still dwell and watch the unfolding of the story of the world. And tales and rumours arose along the shores of the sea concerning mariners and men forlorn upon the water who, by some fate or grace or favour of the Valar, had entered in upon the straight way, and seen the face of the world sink below them, and so had come to the lamplit keys of Avalone, or verily, to the last beaches on the margin of Ammon, and there had looked upon the white mountain, dreadful and beautiful, before they died. The Rings of Power and the Third Age, in which these tales come to their end.
Of old, there was Sauron the Maya, whom the Sindar in Beleriand named Gothaur. In the beginning of Arda, Melkor seduced him to his allegiance, and he became the greatest and most trusted of the servants of the enemy, and the most perilous, for he could assume many forms, and for long, if he willed, he could still appear noble and beautiful, so as to deceive all but the most wary. When Thangorodrim was broken and Morgoth overthrown, Sauron put on his fair hue again and did obeisance to Aonwe, the herald of Manwe, and abjured all his evil deeds. And some hold that this was not at first falsely done, but that Sauron in truth repented, if only out of fear, being dismayed by the fall of Morgoth and the great wrath of the lords of the West. But it was not within the power of Aonwe to pardon those of his own order, and he commanded Sauron to return to Amman and there receive the judgment of Manwe. Then Sauron was ashamed, and he was unwilling to return in humiliation and to receive from the Valar a sentence, it might be, of long servitude in proof of his good faith. For under Morgoth his power had been great. Therefore, when Aonwe departed, he hid himself in Middle-earth, and he fell back into evil, for the bonds that Morgoth had laid upon him were very strong. In the great battle and the tumults of the fall of Thangorodrim, there were mighty convulsions in the earth, and Beleriand was broken and laid waste. And northward and westward many lands sank beneath the waters of the great sea. In the east, in Osiriand, the walls of Ered-Luin were broken, and a great gap was made in them towards the south, and a gulf of the sea flowed in. Into that gulf the river Lun fell by a new course, and it was called, therefore, the Gulf of Lun. That country had of old been named Lindon by the Noldor, and this name it bore thereafter, and many of the Eldar still dwelt there, lingering unwilling yet to forsake Beleriand, where they had fought and laboured long. Gil-galad, son of Fingon, was their king, and with him was Elrond half-elven, son of Eorendil the mariner, and brother of Elros, first king of Numenor. Upon the shores of the Gulf of Lun, the elves built their havens and named them Mithlond, and there they held many ships, for the harbourage was good. From the grey havens, the Eldar ever and anon set sail, fleeing from the darkness of the days of earth. For by the mercy of the Valar, the firstborn could still follow the straight road and return, if they would, to their kindred in Edesea and Valinor beyond the encircling seas. Others of the Eldar there were who crossed the mountains of Eredluin in that age and passed into the inner lands. Many of these were Teleri, survivors of Doriath and Osiriand, and they established realms among the sylvan elves in woods and mountains far from the sea, for which, nonetheless, they ever yearned in their hearts. Only in Eregion, which men called Holin, did elves of Noldorin race establish a lasting realm beyond the Ered Luin. Eregion was nigh to the great mansions of the dwarves that were named Khazad-dûm, 
but by the elves Hathadrond, and afterwards Moria. From Austin Ethil, the city of the elves, the high road ran to the west gate of Khazad-dûm. For a friendship arose between dwarves and elves, such as has never elsewhere been, to the enrichment of both those peoples. In Eregion, the craftsmen of the Gwaith Irmirdain, the people of the jewelsmiths, surpassed in cunning all that have ever wrought, save only Feanor himself. And indeed greatest in skill among them was Celebrimbo, son of Curufin, who was estranged from his father, and remained in Nargothrond when Celegorm and Curufin were driven forth, as is told in the Quenta Silmarillion. Elsewhere in Middle-earth there was peace for many years. Yet the lands were for the most part savage and desolate, save only where the people of Beleriand came. Many elves dwelt there indeed, as they had dwelt through the countless years, wandering free in the wide lands far from the sea. But they were Avari, to whom the deeds of Beleriand were but a rumour, and Valinor only a distant name. And in the south and in the further east men multiplied, and most of them turned to evil, for Sauron was at work. Seeing the desolation of the world, Sauron said in his heart that the Valar, having overthrown Morgoth, had again forgotten Middle-earth, and his pride grew apace. He looked with hatred on the Eldar, and he feared the men of Numenor, who came back at whiles in their ships to the shores of Middle-earth. But for long he dissembled his mind, and concealed the dark designs that he shaped in his heart. Men he found the easiest to sway of all the peoples of the earth, but long he sought to persuade the elves to his service, for he knew that the firstborn had the greater power, and he went far and wide among them, and his hue was still that of one both fair and wise. Only to Lindon he did not come, for Gilgalad and Elrond doubted him and his fair seeming, and though they knew not who in truth he was, they would not admit him to that land. But elsewhere the elves received him gladly, and few among them hearkened to the messengers from Lindon, bidding them beware. For Sauron took to himself the name of Anatar, the Lord of Gifts, and they had at first much profit from his friendship. And he said to them, Alas for the weakness of the great! For a mighty king is Gilgalad, and wise in all lore is Master Elrond, and yet they will not aid me in my labours. Can it be that they do not desire to see other lands become as blissful as their own? But wherefore should Middle-earth remain forever desolate and dark, whereas the elves could make it as fair as Eresea, nay, even as Valinor? And since you have not returned thither, as you might, I perceive that you love this Middle-earth as do I. Is it not then our task to labour together for its enrichment, and for the raising of all the elven kindreds that wander here untaught, to the height of that power and knowledge which those have who are beyond the sea? It was in Eregion that the counsels of Sauron were most gladly received, for in that land the Noldor desired ever to increase the skill and subtlety of their works. Moreover, they were not at peace in their hearts, since they had refused to return into the west, and they desired both to stay in Middle-earth, which indeed they loved, 
and yet to enjoy the bliss of those that had departed. Therefore they hearkened to Sauron, and they learned of him many things, for his knowledge was great. In those days the smiths of Austin Edil surpassed all that they had contrived before, and they took thought, and they made rings of power. But Sauron guided their labours, and he was aware of all that they did, for his desire was to set a bond upon the elves and to bring them under his vigilance. Now the elves made many rings, but secretly Sauron made one ring to rule all the others, and their power was bound up with it to be subject wholly to it and to last only so long as it too should last. And much of the strength and will of Sauron passed into that one ring. For the power of the elven rings was very great, and that which should govern them must be a thing of surpassing potency. And Sauron forged it in the mountain of fire in the land of shadow. And while he wore the one ring, he could perceive all the things that were done by means of the lesser rings, and he could see and govern the very thoughts of those that wore them. But the elves were not so likely to be caught. As soon as Sauron set the one ring upon his finger, they were aware of him, and they knew him, and perceived that he would be master of them, and of all that they wrought. Then in anger and fear they took off their rings. But he, finding that he was betrayed and that the elves were not deceived, was filled with wrath, and he came against them with open war, demanding that all the rings should be delivered to him, since the elven-smiths could not have attained to their making without his lord and counsel. But the elves fled from him, and three of their rings they saved, and bore them away and hid them. Now these were the three that had last been made, and they possessed the greatest powers. Narya, Nenya, and Vilya they were named, the rings of fire and of water and of air, set with ruby and adamant and sapphire. And of all the elven rings, Sauron most desired to possess them, for those who had them in their keeping could ward off the decays of time and postpone the weariness of the world. But Sauron could not discover them, for they were given into the hands of the wise, who concealed them and never again used them openly while Sauron kept the ruling ring. Therefore the three remained unsullied, for they were forged by Celebrimbor alone, and the hand of Sauron had never touched them. Yet they also were subject to the One. From that time war never ceased between Sauron and the elves, and Eregion was laid waste, and Celebrimbor slain, and the doors of Moria were shut. In that time the stronghold and refuge of Imladris, that men called Rivendell, was founded by Elrond half-elven, and long it endured. But Sauron gathered into his hands all the remaining rings of power, and he dealt them out to the other peoples of Middle-earth, hoping thus to bring under his sway all those that desired secret power beyond the measure of their kind. Seven rings he gave to the dwarves, but to men he gave nine, for men proved in this matter, as in others, the readiest to his will.
and all those rings that he governed he perverted, the more easily since he had a part in their making, and they were accursed, and they betrayed in the end all those that used them. The dwarves indeed proved tough and hard to tame. They ill endure the domination of others, and the thoughts of their hearts are hard to fathom, nor can they be turned to shadows. They use their rings only for the getting of wealth, but wrath and an overmastering greed of gold were kindled in their hearts, of which evil enough after came to the prophet of Sauron. It is said that the foundation of each of the seven hordes of the dwarf kings of old was a golden ring. But all those hordes long ago were plundered, and the dragons devoured them. And of the seven rings, some were consumed in fire, and some Sauron recovered. Men proved easier to ensnare. Those who used the nine rings became mighty in their day, kings, sorcerers, and warriors of old. They obtained glory and great wealth, yet it turned to their undoing. They had, as it seemed, unending life, yet life became unendurable to them. They could walk, if they would, unseen by all eyes in this world beneath the sun, and they could see things in worlds invisible to mortal men. But too often they beheld only the phantoms and delusions of Sauron. And one by one, sooner or later, according to their native strength and to the good or evil of their wills in the beginning, they fell under the thraldom of the ring that they bore, and under the domination of the One, which was Sauron's. And they became forever invisible save to him that wore the ruling ring, and they entered into the realm of shadows. The Nazgul were they, the ring-wraiths, the enemy's most terrible servants. Darkness went with them, and they cried with the voices of death. Now Sauron's lust and pride increased until he knew no bounds, and he determined to make himself master of all things in Middle-earth, and to destroy the elves, and to compass, if he might, the downfall of Numenor. He brooked no freedom nor any rivalry, and he named himself Lord of the Earth. A mask he could still wear, so that if he wished he might deceive the eyes of men, seeming to them wise and fair. But he ruled rather by force and fear, if they might avail, and those who perceived his shadow spreading over the world called him the Dark Lord, and named him the Enemy. And he gathered again under his government all the evil things of the days of Morgoth that remained on earth or beneath it. And the orcs were at his command and multiplied like flies. Thus the black years began, which the elves call the days of flight. In that time many of the elves of Middle-earth fled to Lindon, and thence over the seas never to return, and many were destroyed by Sauron and his servants. But in Lindon, Gil-galad still maintained his power, and Sauron dared not as yet to pass the mountains of Ered-Luin, nor to assail the havens. And Gil-galad was aided by the Numenorians. Elsewhere Sauron reigned, and those who would be free took refuge in the fastnesses of wood and mountain, and ever fear pursued them. In the east and south, well-nigh all men were under his dominion, and they grew strong in those days, and built many towns and walls of stone. 
and they were numerous and fierce in war and armed with iron. To them Sauron was both king and god, and they feared him exceedingly, for he surrounded his abode with fire. Yet there came at length a stay in the onslaught of Sauron upon the Westlands. For, as is told in the Akalabeth, he was challenged by the might of Numenor. So great was the power and splendor of the Numenorians in the noontide of their realm that the servants of Sauron would not withstand them, and hoping to accomplish by cunning what he could not achieve by force, he left Middle-earth for a while and went to Numenor as a hostage of Tarkalion the king. And there he abode, until at the last by his craft he had corrupted the hearts of most of that people, and set them at war with the Valar and so compassed their ruin, as he had long desired. But that ruin was more terrible than Sauron had foreseen, for he had forgotten the might of the lords of the West in their anger. The world was broken, and the land was swallowed up, and the seas rose over it, and Sauron himself went down into the abyss. But his spirit arose, and fled back on a dark wind to Middle-earth, seeking a home. There he found that the power of Gil-galad had grown great in the years of his absence, and it was spread now over wide regions of the north and west, and had passed beyond the misty mountains and the great river, even to the borders of Greenwood the Great, and was drawing nigh to the strong places where once he had dwelt secure. Then Sauron withdrew to his fortress in the Black Land, and meditated war. In that time... Those of the Numenorians who were saved from destruction fled eastward, as is told in the Akalabeth. The chief of these were Elendil the Tall, and his sons Isildur and Anarion. Kinsmen of the king they were, descendants of Elros, but they had been unwilling to listen to Sauron, and had refused to make war on the lords of the west. Manning their ships with all who remained faithful, they forsook the land of Numenor ere ruin came upon it. They were mighty men, and their ships were strong and tall, but the tempests overtook them, and they were borne aloft on hills of water even to the clouds, and they descended upon Middle-earth like birds of the storm. Elendil was cast up by the waves in the land of Lindon, and he was befriended by Gil-galad. Thence he passed up the river Hlun, and beyond Eridluin he established his realm, and his people dwelt in many places in Eriador, about the courses of the Lun and the Baranduin. But his chief city was at Anuminas, beside the water of Lake Nenuial. At Fornost, upon the North Downs, also the Numenorians dwelt, and in Cardolan, and in the hills of Rudawar and towers they raised upon Emin Beraid and upon Amansul. And there remain many barrows and ruined works in those places, but the towers of Emin Beraid still look towards the sea. Isildur and Anarion were borne away southwards, and at the last they brought their ships up the great river Anduin that flows out of Rovanion into the western sea in the bay of Belfalas and they established a realm in those lands that were after called Gondor, whereas the northern kingdom was named Arnor. 
Long before, in the days of their power, the mariners of Númenor had established a haven and strong places about the mouths of Anduin, in despite of Sauron in the black land that lay nigh upon the east. In the later days to this haven came only the faithful of Númenor, and many therefore of the folk of the coastlands in that region were in whole or in part akin to the elf friends and the people of Elendil, and they welcomed his sons. The chief city of the southern realm was Osgiliath, through the midst of which the great river flowed, and the Numenorians built there a great bridge, upon which there were towers and houses of stone wonderful to behold, and tall ships came up out of the sea to the quays of the city. Other strong places they built also upon either hand, Minas Ithil, the tower of the rising moon, eastward upon a shoulder of the mountains of shadow, as a threat to Mordor. And to the westward, Minas Anor, the tower of the setting sun, at the feet of Mount Mindoluin, as a shield against the wild men of the dales. In Minas Ithil was the house of Isildur, and in Minas Anor the house of Anarion. But they shared the realm between them and their thrones were set side by side in the great hall of Osgiliath. These were the chief dwellings of the Numenorians in Gondor. But other works, marvellous and strong, they built in the land in the days of their power, at the Argonath, and at Aglarond, and at Erech, and in the circle of Agrenost, which men called Isengard. They made the pinnacle of Orthanc of unbreakable stone. Many treasures and great heirlooms of virtue and wonder the exiles had brought from Númenor, and of these the most renowned were the seven stones and the white tree. The white tree was grown from the fruit of Nimloth the Fair that stood in the courts of the king at Armenelos in Númenor, ere Sauron burned it. And Nimloth was in its turn descended from the tree of Tyrion, that was an image of the eldest of trees, White Telperion, which Yavanna caused to grow in the land of the Valar. The tree, memorial of the Eldar and of the light of Valinor, was planted in Minas Ithil before the house of Isildur, since he it was that had saved the fruit from destruction. But the stones were divided. Three Elendil took, and his sons each two. Those of Elendil were set in towers upon Emin Beraid, and upon Amon Sul, and in the city of Anuminas. But those of his sons were at Minas Ithil, and Minas Anor, and at Orthanc, and in Osgiliath. Now these stones had this virtue, that those who looked therein might perceive in them things far off, whether in place or in time. For the most part, they revealed only things near to another kindred stone, for the stones each called to each. But those who possessed great strength of will and of mind might learn to direct their gaze whither they would. Thus the Numenorians were aware of many things that their enemies wished to conceal, and little escaped their vigilance in the days of their might. It is said that the towers of Emin Beraid were not built indeed by the exiles of Numenor, but were raised by Gil-galad for Elendil his friend. And the seeing stone of Emin Beraid 
was set in Elostirion, the tallest of the towers. Thither Elendil would repair, and thence he would gaze out over the thundering seas when the yearning of exile was upon him. And it is believed that thus he would at whiles see far away even the tower of Avalone upon Eresea, where the master stone abode, and yet abides. These stones were gifts of the Eldar to Amandil, father of Elendil, for the comfort of the faithful of Numenor in their dark days, when the elves might come no longer to that land under the shadow of Sauron. They were called the Palantiri, those that watch from afar. But all those that were brought to Middle-earth long ago were lost. Thus the exiles of Numenor established their realms in Arnor and in Gondor. But ere many years had passed, it became manifest that their enemy, Sauron, had also returned. He came in secret, as has been told, to his ancient kingdom of Mordor, beyond the Efeldueth, the Mountains of Shadow, and that country marched with Gondor upon the east. There, above the valley of Gorgoroth, was built his fortress, vast and strong, Baradur, the Dark Tower. And there was a fiery mountain in that land that the elves named Orodruin. Indeed, for that reason Sauron had set there his dwelling long before, for he used the fire that welled there from the heart of the earth in his sorceries and in his forging, and in the midst of the land of Mordor he had fashioned the ruling ring. There now he brooded in the dark, until he had wrought for himself a new shape, and it was terrible, for his fair semblance had departed forever when he was cast into the abyss at the drowning of Numenor. He took up again the great ring and clothed himself in power. And the malice of the eye of Sauron few, even of the great among elves and men, could endure. Now Sauron prepared war against the Eldar and the men of Westerness, and the fires of the mountain were wakened again. Wherefore, seeing the smoke of Arudruin from afar, and perceiving that Sauron had returned, the Numenorians named that mountain anew Amon Amarth, which is Mount Doom. And Sauron gathered to him great strength of his servants out of the east and the south, and among them were not a few of the high race of Numenor. For in the days of the sojourn of Sauron in that land, the hearts of well-nigh all its people had been turned towards darkness. Therefore, Many of those who sailed east in that time and made fortresses and dwellings upon the coasts were already bent to his will, and they served him still gladly in Middle-earth. But because of the power of Gilgalad, these renegades, lords both mighty and evil, for the most part took up their abodes in the Southlands far away. Yet two there were, Herumor and Fuinur, who rose to power among the Haradrim, a great and cruel people that dwelt in the wide lands south of Mordor, beyond the mouths of Anduin. When therefore Sauron saw his time, he came with great force against the new realm of Gondor, and he took Minas Ithil, and he destroyed the white tree of Isildur that grew there. But Isildur escaped, and taking with him a seedling of the tree, 
he went with his wife and his sons by ship down the river, and they sailed from the mouths of Anduin, seeking Elendil. Meanwhile, Anarion held Osgiliath against the enemy, and for that time drove him back to the mountains. But Sauron gathered his strength again, and Anarion knew that unless help should come, his kingdom would not long stand. Now Elendil and Gilgalad took counsel together, for they perceived that Sauron would grow too strong and would overcome all his enemies one by one if they did not unite against him. Therefore they made that league which is called the Last Alliance, and they marched east into Middle-earth, gathering a great host of elves and men, and they halted for a while at Imladris. It is said that the host that was there assembled was fairer and more splendid in arms than any that has since been seen in Middle-earth, and none greater has been mustered since the host of the Valar went against Thangorodrim. From Imladris they crossed the misty mountains by many passes, and marched down the river Anduin, and so came at last upon the host of Sauron on Dagorlad, the battle-plain, which lies before the gate of the Black Land. All living things were divided in that day, and some of every kind, even of beasts and birds, were found in either host, save the elves only. They alone were undivided, and followed Gilgalad. Of the dwarves few fought upon either side, but the kindred of Durin of Moria fought against Sauron. The host of Gilgalad and Elendil had the victory, for the might of the elves was still great in those days, and the Numenorians were strong and tall and terrible in their wrath. Against Aeglos, the spear of Gilgalad, none could stand, and the sword of Elendil filled orcs and men with fear, for it shone with the light of the sun and of the moon, and it was named Narsil. Then Gilgalad and Elendil passed into Mordor and encompassed the stronghold of Sauron, and they laid siege to it for seven years, and suffered grievous loss by fire and by the darts and bolts of the enemy, and Sauron sent many sorties against them. There, in the valley of Gorgoroth, Anarion, son of Elendil, was slain, and many others. But at last the siege was so straight that Sauron himself came forth, and he wrestled with Gilgalad and Elendil, and they both were slain, and the sword of Elendil broke under him as he fell. But Sauron also was thrown down, and with the hilt shard of Narsil, Isildur cut the ruling ring from the hand of Sauron and took it for his own. Then Sauron was for that time vanquished, and he forsook his body, and his spirit fled far away and hid in waste places, and he took no visible shape again for many long years. Thus began the third age of the world, after the eldest days and the black years. And there was still hope in that time, and the memory of mirth, and for long the white tree of the Eldar flowered in the courts of the kings of men, for the seedling which he had saved, Isildur planted in the citadel of Anor in memory of his brother, ere he departed from Gondor. The servants of Sauron were routed and dispersed, yet they were not wholly destroyed.
and though many men turned now from evil and became subject to the heirs of Elendil, yet many more remembered Sauron in their hearts and hated the kingdoms of the West. The Dark Tower was leveled to the ground, yet its foundations remained, and it was not forgotten. The Numenorians indeed set a guard upon the land of Mordor, but none dared dwell there because of the terror of the memory of Sauron, and because of the mountain of fire that stood nigh to Barad-dûr, and the valley of Gorgoroth was filled with ash. Many of the elves, and many of the Numenorians, and of men who were their allies, had perished in the battle and the siege, and Elendil the Tall and Gilgalad the High King were no more. Never again was such a host assembled, nor was there any such league of elves and men. For after Elendil's day the two kindreds became estranged. The ruling ring passed out of the knowledge even of the wise in that age. Yet it was not unmade. For Isildur would not surrender it to Elrond and Círdan who stood by. They counselled him to cast it into the fire of Orodruin, nigh at hand, in which it had been forged, so that it should perish, and the power of Sauron be for ever diminished, and he should remain only as a shadow of malice in the wilderness. But Isildur refused this counsel, saying, This I will have, as were-guild, for my father's death and my brother's. Was it not I that dealt the enemy his death-blow? and the ring that he held seemed to him exceedingly fair to look on, and he would not suffer it to be destroyed. Taking it, therefore, he returned at first to Minas Anor, and there planted the white tree in memory of his brother Anarion. But soon he departed, and after he had given counsel to Meneldil, his brother's son, and had committed to him the realm of the south, he bore away the ring to be an heirloom of his house, and marched north from Gondor by the way that Elendil had come. And he forsook the south kingdom, for he purposed to take up his father's realm in Eriador, far from the shadow of the black land. But Isildur was overwhelmed by a host of orcs that lay in wait in the misty mountains, and they descended upon him at unawares in his camp between the green wood and the great river, nigh to Loyeg Ningloron the gladden fields, for he was heedless and set no guard, deeming that all his foes were overthrown. There well nigh all his people were slain, and among them were his three elder sons, Elendur, Aratan, and Kirion. But his wife and his youngest son, Valandil, he had left in Imladris when he went to the war. Isildur himself escaped by means of the ring, for when he wore it, he was invisible to all eyes. But the orcs hunted him by scent and slot, until he came to the river and plunged in. There the ring betrayed him and avenged its maker, for it slipped from his finger as he swam, and it was lost in the water. Then the orcs saw him as he laboured in the stream, and they shot him with many arrows, and that was his end. Only three of his people came ever back over the mountains after long wandering, and of these one was Othar, his esquire, to whose keeping he had given the shards of the sword of Elendil. Thus Narsil came in due time to the hand of Valendil, 
Isildur's heir, in Imladris. But the blade was broken, and its light was extinguished, and it was not forged anew. And Master Elrond foretold that this would not be done until the ruling ring should be found again and Sauron should return. But the hope of elves and men was that these things might never come to pass. Valandil took up his abode in Anuminas, but his folk were diminished, and of the Numenorians and of the men of Eriador there remained now too few to people the land or to maintain all the places that Elendil had built. In Dagorlad and in Mordor and upon the gladden fields many had fallen. And it came to pass, after the days of Eärendur, the seventh king that followed Valandil, that the men of Westerness, the Dúnedain of the north, became divided into petty realms and lordships, and their foes devoured them one by one. Ever they dwindled with the years, until their glory passed, leaving only green mounds in the grass. At length naught was left of them but a strange people wandering secretly in the wild, and other men knew not their homes nor the purpose of their journeys, and save in Imladris in the house of Elrond, their ancestry was forgotten. Yet the shards of the sword were cherished during many lives of men by the heirs of Isildur, and their line from father to son remained unbroken. In the south the realm of Gondor endured, and for a time its splendor grew, until it recalled the wealth and majesty of Numenor ere it fell. High towers the people of Gondor built, and strong places and havens of many ships, and the winged crown of the kings of men was held in awe by people of many lands and tongues. For many a year the white tree grew before the king's house in Minas Anor, the seed of that tree which Isildur brought out of the deeps of the sea from Numenor, and the seed before that came from Avalone, and before that from Valinor in the day before days when the world was young. Yet at the last, in the wearing of the swift years of Middle-earth, Gondor waned, and the line of Meneldil, son of Anarion, failed. For the blood of the Numenorians became much mingled with that of other men, and their power and wisdom was diminished, and their lifespan was shortened, and the watch upon Mordor slumbered. And in the days of Telemnar, the third and twentieth of the line of Meneldil, a plague came upon dark winds out of the east, and it smote the king and his children, and many of the people of Gondor perished. Then the forts on the borders of Mordor were deserted, and Minas Ithil was emptied of its people, and evil entered again into the black land secretly, and the ashes of Gorgoroth were stirred as by a cold wind, for dark shapes gathered there. It is said that these were indeed the Ulairi, whom Sauron called the Nazgul, the nine ringwraiths that had long remained hidden, but returned now to prepare the ways of their master, for he had begun to grow again. And in the days of Earnil, they made their first stroke, and they came by night out of Mordor over the passes of the Mountains of Shadow, and took Minas Ithil for their abode. And they made it a place of such dread that none dared to look upon it. 
Thereafter it was called Minas Morgul, the Tower of Sorcery. And Minas Morgul was ever at war with Minas Anor in the west. Then Osgiliath, which in the waning of the people had long been deserted, became a place of ruins and a city of ghosts. But Minas Anor endured, and it was named anew Minas Tirith, the Tower of God. For there the kings caused to be built in the citadel a white tower, very tall and fair, and its eye was upon many lands. Proud still and strong was that city, and in it the white tree still flowered for a while before the house of the kings. And there the remnant of the Numenorians still defended the passage of the river against the terrors of Minas Morgul and against all the enemies of the West, orcs and monsters and evil men. And thus the lands behind them, west of Anduin, were protected from war and destruction. Still Minas Tirith endured, after the days of Eanor, son of Eärnil, and the last king of Gondor. He it was that rode alone to the gates of Minas Morgul to meet the challenge of the Morgul lord, and he met him in single combat. But he was betrayed by the Nazgul, and taken alive into the city of torment, and no living man saw him ever again. Now Eanor left no heir, but when the line of the kings failed, the stewards of the house of Mardil the faithful ruled the city and its ever-shrinking realm, and the Rohirrim, the horsemen of the north, came and dwelt in the green land of Rohan, which before was named Kalanarthan, which was a part of the kingdom of Gondor. And the Rohirrim aided the lords of the city in their wars. And northward, beyond the falls of Rauros and the gates of Arganath, there were as yet other defences, powers more ancient of which men knew little, against whom the things of evil did not dare to move until in the ripening of time their dark lord, Sauron, should come forth again. And until that time was come, never again after the days of Eärnil did the Nazgul dare to cross the river, or to come forth from their city in shape visible to men. In all the days of the Third Age, after the fall of Gilgalad, Master Elrond abode in Imladris and he gathered there many elves and other folk of wisdom and power from among all the kindreds of Middle-earth, and he preserved through many lives of men the memory of all that had been fair. And the house of Elrond was a refuge for the weary and the oppressed, and a treasury of good counsel and wise lore. In that house were harboured the heirs of Isildur, in childhood and old age, because of the kinship of their blood with Elrond himself and because he knew in his wisdom that one should come of their line to whom a great part was appointed in the last deeds of that age. And until that time came, the shards of Elendil's sword were given into the keeping of Elrond when the days of the Dunedain darkened and they became a wandering people. In Eriador, Imladris was the chief dwelling of the High Elves. But at the grey havens of Lindon, there abode also a remnant of the people of Gilgalad, the elven king. At times they would wander into the lands of Eriador, 
but for the most part they dwelt near the shores of the sea, building and tending the elven ships wherein those of the firstborn who grew weary of the world set sail into the uttermost west. Círdan the shipwright was lord of the havens, and mighty among the wise. Of the three rings that the elves had preserved unsullied, no open word was ever spoken among the wise, and few even of the Eldar knew where they were bestowed. Yet after the fall of Sauron, their power was ever at work, and where they abode, their mirth also dwelt, and all things were unstained by the griefs of time. Therefore, ere the Third Age was ended, the elves perceived that the Ring of Sapphire was with Elrond in the fair valley of Rivendell, upon whose house the stars of heaven most brightly shone, whereas the Ring of Adamant was in the land of Lorien, where dwelt the Lady Galadriel. A queen she was, of the woodland elves, the wife of Celeborn of Doriath. Yet she herself was of the Noldor, and remembered the day before days in Valinor, and she was the mightiest and fairest of all the elves that remained in Middle-earth. But the Red Ring remained hidden until the end, and none save Elrond and Galadriel and Círdan knew to whom it had been committed. Thus it was, that in two domains the bliss and beauty of the elves remained still undiminished while that age endured. In Imladris and in Lothlorien, the hidden land between Celebrant and Anduin, where the trees bore flowers of gold, and no orc or evil thing dared ever come. Yet many voices were heard among the elves, foreboding that, if Sauron should come again, then either he would find the ruling ring that was lost, or at the best his enemies would discover it and destroy it. But in either chance... The powers of the three must then fail, and all things maintained by them must fade, and so the elves should pass into the twilight, and the dominion of men begin. And so indeed it has since befallen. The one, and the seven, and the nine are destroyed, and the three have passed away, and with them the third age is ended and the tales of the Eldar in Middle-earth draw to their close. Those were the fading years, and in them the last flowering of the elves east of the sea came to its winter. In that time the Noldor walked still in the hitherlands, mightiest and fairest of the children of the world, and their tongues were still heard by mortal ears. Many things of beauty and wonder remained on earth in that time, and many things also of evil and dread. Orcs there were, and trolls, and dragons, and fell beasts, and strange creatures old and wise in the woods whose names are forgotten. Dwarves still laboured in the hills, and wrought with patient craft works of metal and stone that none now can rival. But the dominion of men was preparing, and all things were changing, until at last the Dark Lord arose in Mirkwood again. Now of old the name of that forest was Greenwood the Great, and its wide halls and aisles were the haunt of many beasts and of birds of bright song, and there was the realm of King Thranduil under the oak and the beech. 
But after many years, when well nigh a third of that age of the world had passed, a darkness crept slowly through the wood from the southward, and fear walked there in shadowy glades. Fell beasts came hunting, and cruel and evil creatures laid there their snares. Then the name of the forest was changed, and Mirkwood it was called, for the nightshade lay deep there, and few dared to pass through, save only in the north, where Thranduil's people still held the evil at bay. Whence it came, few could tell, and it was long ere even the wise could discover it. It was the shadow of Sauron, and the sign of his return. For coming out of the wastes of the east, he took up his abode in the south of the forest, and slowly he grew, and took shape there again. In a dark hill he made his dwelling, and wrought there his sorcery, and all folk feared the sorcerer of Dol Guldur, and yet they knew not at first how great was their peril. Even as the first shadows were felt in Mirkwood, there appeared in the west of Middle-earth the Istari, whom men called the Wizards. None knew at that time whence they were, save Círdan of the Havens, and only to Elrond and to Galadriel did he reveal that they came over the sea. But afterwards it was said among the elves that they were messengers sent by the lords of the west to contest the power of Sauron if he should arise again, and to move elves and men and all living things of good will to valiant deeds. In the likeness of men they appeared, old but vigorous, and they changed little with the years, and aged but slowly, though great cares lay on them. Great wisdom they had, and many powers of mind and hand, Long they journeyed far and wide among elves and men, and held converse also with beasts and with birds. And the peoples of Middle-earth gave to them many names, for their true names they did not reveal. Chief among them were those whom the elves called Mithrandir and Kurunir, but men in the north named Gandalf and Saruman. Of these, Kurunir was the eldest and came first, and after him came Mithrandir and Radagast, and others of the Istari who went into the east of Middle-earth and do not come into these tales. Radagast was the friend of all beasts and birds, but Kuranir went most among men, and he was subtle in speech and skilled in all the devices of smithcraft. Mithrandir was closest in council with Elrond and the elves, he wandered far in the north and west, and made never in any land any lasting abode. But Kurunir journeyed into the east, and when he returned, he dwelt at Orthanc in the ring of Isengard, which the Numenorians made in the days of their power. Ever most vigilant was Mithrandir, and he it was that most doubted the darkness in Mirkwood. For though many deemed that it was wrought by the ringwraiths, he feared that it was indeed the first shadow of Sauron returning. And he went to Dol Guldur, and the sorcerer fled from him, and there was a watchful peace for a long while. But at length the shadow returned, and its power increased, and in that time was first made 
the Council of the Wise, that is called the White Council, and therein were Elrond and Galadriel and Círdan, and other lords of the Eldar, and with them were Mithrandir and Kurunir. And Kurunir, that was Saruman the White, was chosen to be their chief, for he had most studied the devices of Sauron of old. Galadriel, indeed, had wished that Mithrandir should be the head of the council, and Saruman begrudged them that, for his pride and desire of mastery was grown great. But Mithrandir refused the office, since he would have no ties and no allegiance save to those who sent him, and he would abide in no place nor be subject to any summons. But Saruman now began to study the law of the rings of power, their making and their history. Now the shadow grew ever greater, and the hearts of Elrond and Mithrandir darkened. Therefore, on a time, Mithrandir, at great peril, went again to Dal Guldur and the pits of the sorcerer, and he discovered the truth of his fears, and escaped, and returning to Elrond he said, True, alas, is our guess. This is not one of the Ulairi, as many have long supposed. It is Sauron himself, who has taken shape again, and now grows apace. And he is gathering again all the rings to his hand, and he seeks ever for news of the One, and of the heirs of Isildur, if they live still on earth. And Elrond answered, In the hour that Isildur took the ring and would not surrender it, this doom was wrought, that Sauron should return. Yet the one was lost, said Mithrandir, and while it still lies hid, we can master the enemy if we gather our strength and tarry not too long. Then the White Council was summoned, and Mithrandir urged them to swift deeds. But Kurunir spoke against him, and counseled them to wait yet and to watch. For I believe not, said he, that the one will ever be found again in Middle-earth. Into Anduin it fell, and long ago, I deem, it was rolled to the sea. There it shall lie until the end, when all this world is broken and the deeps are removed. Therefore, naught was done at that time, though Elrond's heart misgave him, and he said to Mithrandir, Nonetheless I forebode that the one will yet be found, and then war will arise again, and in that war this age will be ended. Indeed, in a second darkness it will end, unless some strange chance deliver us that my eyes cannot see. Many are the strange chances of the world, said Mithrandir, and help oft shall come from the hands of the weak when the wise falter. Thus the wise were troubled, but none as yet perceived that Kurunir had turned to dark thoughts and was already a traitor in heart. For he desired that he and no other should find the great ring, so that he might wield it himself and order all the world to his will. Too long he had studied the ways of Sauron in hope to defeat him, and now he envied him as a rival rather than hated his works. And he deemed that the ring, which was Sauron's, would seek for its master 
as he became manifest once more. But if he were driven out again, then it would lie hid. Therefore he was willing to play with peril and let Sauron be for a time, hoping by his craft to forestall both his friends and the enemy when the ring should appear. He set a watch upon the gladden fields, but soon he discovered that the servants of Dol Guldur were searching all the ways of the river in that region. Then he perceived that Sauron also had learned of the manner of Isildur's end, and he grew afraid and withdrew to Isengard and fortified it, and ever he probed deeper into the lore of the rings of power and the art of their forging. But he spoke of none of this to the council, hoping still that he might be the first to hear news of the ring. He gathered a great host of spies, and many of these were birds, for Radagast lent him his aid, divining naught of his treachery, and deeming that this was but part of the watch upon the enemy. But ever the shadow in Mirkwood grew deeper, and to Dol Guldur evil things repaired out of all the dark places of the world. And they were united again under one will, and their malice was directed against the elves and the survivors of Numenor. Therefore at last the council was again summoned, and the lore of the rings was much debated. But Mithrandir spoke to the council, saying, It is not needed that the ring should be found, for while it abides on earth and is not unmade, still the power that it holds will live, and Sauron will grow and have hope. The might of the elves and the elf friends is less now than of old. Soon he will be too strong for you, even without the great ring, for he rules the nine, and of the seven he has recovered three, we must strike. To this, Kuranir now assented, desiring that Sauron should be thrust from Dal Guldur, which was nigh to the river, and should have leisure to search there no longer. Therefore, for the last time, he aided the council, and they put forth their strength, and they assailed Dol Guldur, and drove Sauron from his hold, and Mirkwood, for a brief while, was made wholesome again. But their stroke was too late, for the Dark Lord had foreseen it, and he had long prepared all his movements, and the Ulairi, his nine servants, had gone before him to make ready for his coming. Therefore his flight was but a feint, and he soon returned, and ere the wise could prevent him, he re-entered his kingdom in Mordor, and reared once again the dark towers of Barad-Tur. And in that year the White Council met for the last time, and Kuranir withdrew to Isengard, and took counsel with none save himself. Orcs were mustering, and far to the east and the south the wild peoples were arming. Then in the midst of gathering fear and the rumour of war, the foreboding of Elrond was proved true, and the One Ring was indeed found again, by a chance more strange than even Mithrandir had foreseen. And it was hidden from Kuranir and from Sauron. For it had been taken from Anduin long ere they sought for it, being found by one of the small fisherfolk that dwelt by the river, 
ere the kings failed in Gondor. And by its finder, it was brought beyond search into dark hiding under the roots of the mountains. There it dwelt until even in the year of the assault upon Dol Guldur it was found again by a wayfarer, fleeing into the depths of the earth from the pursuit of the orcs, and passed into a far distant country, even to the land of the Perianath, the little people, the halflings, who dwelt in the west of Eriador. And ere that day they had been held of small account by elves and by men, and neither Sauron nor any of the wise, save Mithrandir, had in all their counsels given thought to them. Now by fortune and his vigilance, Mithrandir first learned of the ring, ere Sauron had news of it. Yet he was dismayed and in doubt, for too great was the evil power of this thing for any of the wise to wield, unless, like Kurunir, he wished himself to become a tyrant and a dark lord in his turn. But neither could it be concealed from Sauron forever, nor could it be unmade by the craft of the elves. Therefore, with the help of the Dunedain of the north, Mithrandir set a watch upon the land of the Perianath, and bided his time. But Sauron had many ears, and soon he heard rumour of the One Ring, which above all things he desired, and he sent forth the Nazgûl to take it. Then war was kindled, and in battle with Sauron the Third Age ended, even as it had begun. But those who saw the things that were done in that time, deeds of valour and wonder, have elsewhere told the tale of the War of the Ring, and how it ended both in victory unlooked for and in sorrow long foreseen. Here let it be said that in those days the heir of Isildur arose in the north, and he took the shards of the sword of Elendil, and in Imladris they were reforged. And he went then to war, a great captain of men. He was Aragorn, son of Arathorn, the nine-and-thirtieth heir in the right line from Isildur, and yet more like to Elendil than any before him. Battle there was in Rohan, and Kurunir the traitor was thrown down, and Isengard broken. And before the city of Gondor a great field was fought, and the lord of Morgul, captain of Sauron, there passed into darkness. And the heir of Isildur led the host of the west to the black gates of Mordor. In that last battle were Mithrandir and the sons of Elrond, and the king of Rohan and the lords of Gondor, and the heir of Isildur with the Dunedain of the north. There at the last they looked upon death and defeat, and all their valour was in vain, for Sauron was too strong. Yet in that hour was put to the proof that which Mithrandir had spoken, and help came from the hands of the weak when the wise faltered. For as many songs have since sung, it was the Perianath, the little people, dwellers in hillsides and meadows, that brought them deliverance. For Frodo the halfling, it is said, at the bidding of Mithrandir, took on himself the burden, and alone with his servant he passed through peril and darkness, and came at last in Sauron's despite even to Mount Doom. And there, into the fire where it was wrought, 
he cast the great ring of power, and so at last it was unmade, and its evil consumed. Then Sauron failed, and he was utterly vanquished, and passed away like a shadow of malice, and the towers of Barad-dûr crumbled in ruin, and at the rumour of their fall many lands trembled. Thus peace came again, and a new spring opened on earth, and the heir of Isildur was crowned king of Gondor and Arnor, and the might of the Dunedain was lifted up and their glory renewed. In the courts of Minas Anor the white tree flowered again, for a seedling was found by Mithrandir in the snows of Mindoluin that rose tall and white above the city of Gondor. And while it still grew there, the elder days were not wholly forgotten in the hearts of the kings. Now all these things were achieved for the most part by the counsel and vigilance of Mithrandir, and in the last few days he was revealed as a lord of great reverence, and clad in white he rode into battle. But not until the time came for him to depart was it known that he had long guarded the red ring of fire. At the first that ring had been entrusted to Círdan, lord of the havens, but he had surrendered it to Mithrandir, for he knew whence he came and whither at last he would return. Take now this ring, he said, for thy labours and thy cares will be heavy, but in all it will support thee and defend thee from weariness, for this is the ring of fire, and herewith, maybe, thou shalt rekindle hearts to the valour of old in a world that grows chill. But as for me, my heart is with the sea, and I will dwell by the grey shores guarding the havens until the last ship sails. Then I shall await thee. White was that ship, and long it was a-building, and long it awaited the end of which Círdan had spoken. But when all these things were done, and the heir of Isildur had taken up the lordship of men, and the dominion of the West had passed to him, then it was made plain that the power of the Three Rings also was ended and to the firstborn the world grew old and grey. In that time, the last of the Noldor set sail from the havens and left Middle-earth forever. And latest of all, the keepers of the Three Rings rode to the sea, and Master Elrond took there the ship that Círdan had made ready. In the twilight of autumn, it sailed out of Mithlond until the seas of the bent world fell away beneath it, and the winds of the round sky troubled it no more. And borne upon the high airs above the mists of the world, it passed into the ancient west, and an end was come for the Eldar of story and of song.
we hope you've enjoyed listening to this HarperCollins audiobook. Audible hopes you've enjoyed this program.